It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. As far as I'm concerned, Ted DiBiase being gone takes out all the distractions anyway. You see, I never trusted anyone, and I never needed anyone my whole career. It's on to bigger and better things after King of the Ring, after I win it all. Because there's no way, no way anyone in the World Wrestling Federation can stop Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's the Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast with Jack Encarnacio and J.P. Sorrow. It's still real to me, damn it! The Lapsed Fan. In all my years in professional wrestling, I've never seen anything like it! Dropkick and a beauty! Well, it's the Lapsed Fan Man, number one in the ring. Forget about the song, we the real king of swing. When the bell goes ding, you can kick like me. Thrown in the corner, make it splash like sting. Jerry King would take off the crown, nodding his head like he's D-Low Brown. We can get low down, but we go even higher. Flip you on your head, but you know cool driver. You be spitting more knowledge than Dragon spits fire. Give you more shock than when Edge retires. Dropping more truth than we kind of sniper. Bless you with a coconut, Roddy Piper. Jack and JP be like JYD. Dropping cupcakes and gluten, the brain by beans. The best podcast from start to close. If y'all benefit, here's a five-second pause. You know, boss, we talk about it all here on the Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast, and we have for, what, eight, nine years running now? Something like that. But do we talk about your psalms? Do we talk about John 3.16? Well, this week, I believe the stars are aligning such that we're going to talk about the night that Austin 3.16 says, I just whipped your ass. Jesus. King of the Ring 96, episode 316 of that fucking cast it was meant to be. It, it truly was. What a fucking... Wow. You know, and it's funny, it was, it was, it was mentioned, I think, and, and someone said something. So when, when they realized... So, and, I, and I apologize that I don't remember who it was exactly, but someone made a comment that Bash at the Beach was episode 315... And it was like, I wonder what tap, I wonder if we're going to get an Austin show on three sixteen. I was like, oh, that's kind of a neat idea. Like, an Austin show, we, we, we should do an Austin show. Like, oh, holy shit, we haven't done the Austin three sixteen show. Think about how many shows we've covered, and just how it feels like we've hit all the high points. And still, in twenty twenty two, shows of yeah. the consequence of the ninety six King of the Ring are still to be addressed, and just waiting for a moment of of lapsed serendipity. I Absolutely. believe the time is now. We'll put it this way to get us started. Up. <laughs> There's a uh, kind of a syndicated religious column that would run in newspapers called the Sunday Message. 
And in 2017, the author, Jackie Mike Brown, told us that there are three different versions of the biblical verse, John 3.16. One is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the King James Version. Okay. How about the New International Version, which reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And also, kind of an easier to read version, yes, God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son, (laughs) so that everyone who believes in him would not be lost, but have eternal life. Brown writes, it's a very straightforward message. And all a person needs to do is one thing, believe. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Some church leaders, he writes, may spend an hour or so preaching about salvation when it basically boils down to one word, believe. So do you believe in God? As the pro wrestling world goes, on this night, it's about as close as we get. Uh, Yeah. What do we see here? Don't don't you uh, fucking hold back. Oh, I mean, so first of all, this was the first King of the Ring pay-per-view that I ever ordered on pay-per-view. Massive. All right, number one. Number two, you, you sit there and what you see is you see a guy, this is what I remember watching as a kid or as a 15 year old, I remember saying to myself and remember I, I was a, you know, I wouldn't say I was a fan of Austin, but I liked Austin. I liked Austin because he was a WCW guy and he came over, you know, and he was one of those who came over to the good side at, in my mind at the time. And I just remember him saying what he was saying was alarming in that promo. Him talking the way that he talked made me think that what I was watching was real. Yes. Because because this guy was swearing at a time when, when swearing wasn't okay. Dangerous. You know, it was right. I, I felt uncomfortable when he said what he said. And he talked about the list and he talked about, and you know, just because also, because also I had it in my mind. It made perfect sense to me. Jake Roberts is going to win this fucking tournament. Oh yeah, they're setting up the how, motivational storyline, right? How could he not win this story? Win this fucking thing, and so then to have him crushed, like literally fucking crushed, and sell the Stone Cold Stunner in a way that almost everybody should, except the WrestleMania. Honestly, I love the way he sells it. Oh right, without going flipping and flying everywhere. He, he 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 gets on his knees and then he just kind of like he jerks up for a moment and then falls down dead. You can say he prostrates himself at the altar of Austin three sixteen is what he does. I would say yes. I would say there there was an altar indeed that that that's that Jake the Snake Roberts was kneeling at and it was the altar of Austin three sixteen. And I just knew in my like deep down, I wasn't yet prepared to accept Austin as the game changer. Okay. But deep down, I felt that something was different. I felt something, what I'm from now on watching this, this guy is not going to be 
what I like he's he's changed and everything around him has changed and he became he became a threat you know a real a real threat because I wasn't again I wasn't a fan of him as a as like a rooting fan but I was a fan of him as being a very very good wrestler and and respecting him as a fan you know and yeah just it was yeah it's it's so hard to put into words what you really were feeling during that or what i was feeling rather cuz it was it was it, it was so it, it was so much underneath you know it wasn't a superficial reaction it was a it was it was it was implanted in me in a way and and like waiting for the right moment for it to to boil over uh, there was a feeling of like we're watching somebody who's going to be a real rascal and a real problem at the top yeah. of the card kind of start making the noise. It's almost like, a, you know, like the high school teacher looks down, you know, does a does a trip in elementary school and says, oh, he's going to be a pain in my ass. You know, right. He's got this raw material, this kind of fighting spirit, this kind of defiance. And even though he's not in the crosshairs right now, I mean, even though he's not in the main event, even though he's not truly trying to command the bulk of our attention watching the WWF programming, you kind of know that something is there that just will not be extinguished, that there's a fire there that we're going to have to learn to deal with. And for Steve Austin, it was truly a moment where he felt like he could finally stick it to somebody else after having it stuck to him uh, in his prior wrestling gigs. That's so crazy. I mean, cause, cause too, it's, it's a guy, you know, what you also see there in retrospect is the Steve Austin who is not going to take shit lying down. You know, this guy is now going to just take every opportunity that he has. Yes. And, you know, and, and, and it's funny because, you know, we talked as, as we covered uh, uh, during the build up to Montreal, it's the 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 Steve Austin thing was not an or it was it was actually purely organic there was nothing there was very little planned about it until until really the the very very end of it all and so you can't not be Steve Austin at King of the Ring and 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 follow through and make them realize throughout 97 you have to be that fucking stone cold killer to to prove to the forget the people, but to prove to the to to the you know to Vince McMahon and, and and people booking that you are you are the guy you are the guy of the moment you are the right guy and you are the guy who's going to take everybody to the next level. Yes, right, exactly. He he stands on that stage after winning winning the King of the Ring nineteen ninety six tournament in such decisive fashion, and he says not only Austin three sixteen says I just whipped your ass. Not only. That's the bottom line because Stone Cold said so. He not only shows so many of the flashes that would become not only his signature as a character yep. on television, but would print, I, I don't know, hundreds of millions of yep. dollars for the WWF. Yep. If, if yep. definitely tens, uh, definitely over $100 million. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, the slogan that launched a million t-shirts. I mean, the Austin 316 shirt. And to this shirt. day, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing to this day. People, you know, how many... How many fucking three sixteen shirts did we see at uh, at what was the show that we just the live pay per view we just did? What was it? WrestleMania Backlash. Uh, Backlash. Yeah, 
You know, everyone and their mom was wearing a 316 shirt, a different version of it. Like Worcester 316. Right. My mom 316. Right. Daddy 316, the whole fucking thing. And it was everywhere in the late 90s. Oh, yeah. Every store in the mall, every kid in high school knew about it if didn't have the shirt. Yep. And there's yep. all that, and it's all sort of unveiled in the tightest package we had seen to date on King of the Ring 1996. But something else he says, which I think is getting to the point you were making, you're looking at the next WWF champion. Yes. He wasn't fed that yes. line. I mean, everyone has said no. that Steve Austin walked out on that interview podium at King of the Ring 1996 and winged it. He, he, he yes. had run some of the material by Pritchard and others in terms of, can I go there, you know, talking about Jake Roberts' alcoholism and how you can go drown your yep. sorrows in the bottle again after what I just did yep. to you and sort of go biblical. Yep. But when it comes to declaring himself the next WWF champion, you know, look, you yep. won King of the Ring and that's great, but calm down. No, no. Not only am I going to say the things you're never going to forget, and burn my character into your fucking brain uh, yeah. on a level that few wrestlers we've ever seen have been able to do by yeah. staring into that camera and meaning what you say. But he also said, I'm going to be the top guy in this company in That's June right. 1996. And somehow, I don't know, it didn't feel like he was talking out of school. I, I agree. But if you told me he's, agree. He, if you told me that people would accept his declaration of being a future WWF champion... Before King of the Ring 1996, it would have been like an eye roll. It would have been like, oh, well, completely. We'll see about that. Um, That's a nice thing to say, but geez. I I mean, because Jake, Jake put him over hard. That's correct. Jake put him over hard. And not only did Jake put him over hard just quickly, Jake, let's not forget, this is that very small period of time where he was actually working for the office. He was working on the creative side of WWF. So not only did he put think, him over in the ring we, on the mic. Did I know that? Have you told me that? I don't know if I knew that. That seems so odd to me. Yeah. Yeah. They, they gave him uh, creative responsibilities. Oh, when they, I do. I do kind of realize. I do remember that. I do remember that. You know, and he had trouble with drugs still, but he was talking to Steve and we'll, we'll get to it as we deep dive this son of a bitch deep into the night during this period of time in his career about what, wow. what should be done different, where Steve's frustrations were with how his character was being presented. I mean- the fucking ringmaster character drove Steve Austin up a wall of self-doubt. He, <laughs> it was yet another fucking deal where he thought he was bursting with like main event potential if he could just be himself and follow his own instinct on television. And he's being saddled with these like parameters that don't fit at all what he thinks are his strengths. Goes all the way back to not only WCW, but even before that. And uh, he'd just come off the ECW run where he was cutting what would be, you know, sort of proto Stone Cold promos where he's just flying off the hinges. He's talking from the hip. He's, you know, uh, you know, sparing no sacred cows. He's tearing everybody down. And, yeah. um, and you know, they bring him in, give him Ted DiBiase, give him the million dollar championship. And his gimmick is that he's a great wrestler in the ring. And what does that tell you? That tells you that's basically the extent of what they saw as his appeal it, and his upside. It's kind of, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it is so weird. Like, did you watch the guy when you were hiring him? Right. Did you actually see what he would did, did, or did you just like, did, did someone say, Hey, it's a good wrestler. This guy is Steve Austin. He's a mechanic. He's a great hand. He's a, you know, he's a, he's a mechanical engineer. You could get him to do, to, to use a wrench in the ring. It's not a bad idea. Indeed. And so the point is Jake is, not only helping Steve on camera, he's helping him behind the scenes on the telephone into the That's night. spectacular. And, uh, you know, encouraging him. And, and, you know, I don't think anyone has ever doubted Jake when he said that 
he was pushing for Steve Austin in the very brief time he had before, you know, the drugs creeped in and he, he had a lot of trouble. They put him back on the road. Um, he, one of his main imprints was pushing that this Steve Austin cat has a lot of upside and we really need to uh, present him. So when Jake goes down wow. to King of the Ring 96, it's not in protest. It's, yeah, you know, part of yeah. his uh, responsibilities for the company. But in bringing that point up, I interrupted you in saying that Jake put him over hard here. But no, but that that even makes it even more sense because if Jake was really the, you know, kind of the the driving force behind it all, it it, it makes it even. I'm I'm even more excited at the thought of because I what I keep in rewatching the show. I haven't watched the show in years, but uh, I know it very well. But I I I because any anything that I had on VHS that I recorded, I I believe the tape, the tape made its made its you know, rounds and um, the, uh, the promo that he cuts before Vader makes you really think he is the only one who can win this. Yes. And it's so great to know that because, because then when you, when you really put all the pieces together, and you realize that even though this guy was relying on God and he had this whole thing and blah, 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 and he comes out and he gets, and he gets, you know, killed by Austin at the end. It's like, wow, this guy beat the guy who had God on his side. That's right. And who they that's, never. That's heavy shit. Yes. It was, it was, um, it was such a dark outcome for WWF at the time. Sure. Know? It was sure. such a. Um, Although, no, I mean, yes, it, it certainly was dark. But you know, given that the only babyface at the time who had won the King of the Ring was Bret Hart in '93. That's true. On pay per view. I'm not saying it was a dark outcome for a heel to win King of the Ring. I'm saying it was a dark outcome for a babyface to do this for Jesus and then get his ass kicked and handed oh, to him. Oh yes, for and sure. Mocked, for sure. Mocked for yep. you yes. know yes. being a drunk as the officials are carrying him to the back, right as Austin's standing off to his right, screaming at him from the stage, the announce stage. I mean, it's just so like um, it, it was it was it was very like we've talked on under the cinemat about how you know the prevailing mood of seventies cinema was very adult, yes. very yes. about exploring like you know dark notions, adult notions. And that's yes. kind of what this was. It was like, whoa, like they're really just asking us to deal with the fact that Steve Austin just totally beat the shit out of this guy that they had built up as they would any sentimental favorite, wow. you know, nine times out of 10 with the intention of delivering. And I didn't plan on doing it at this point, but let's pull it forward a bit. Let's get that Jake bite ready. Sure. Because this, I think, sets the table nicely. This is Jake Roberts in an RF video shoot interview about a decade ago. And uh, he's still, you know, battling his demons. This is pre the whole resurrection, resurrection of Jake the Snake Roberts thing. And I think it's telling in a couple ways because he, he kind of he kind of doesn't feel like this night was such a big deal uh, to him. Uh, I'm, not, mm-hmm. I'm not sure he realized, and maybe he did, just didn't want to breathe oxygen into it, the, the, the things this set in motion. But it's really interesting, the combination of kind of nonchalance about this and also a full appreciation of, of what he did for Steve Austin uh, in both the same breath. And then classic Jake there at the end. So let's uh, let's let the right. Snake Man get us set here. All right. What are your memories of King of the Ring '96 with the final match against Steve Austin? Just another match. Just another match. Right. I talked to Steve yesterday, and he said that um, basically that you're responsible basically for his success as far as you did the promo about 316. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or? Well, it's just I just did a promo, man. I mean, 
Steve I liked very right. much, and uh, I didn't think he was getting a fair break. I, I knew he hadn't gotten a fair break in WCW. I knew that he worked hard. I liked him. He was honest, and um, they just had him packaged wrong. And I pushed for Steve, and I pushed for Steve, and I pushed for Steve, you know, in behind the scenes, and uh, being part of that behind the scenes group. And uh, then I started uh, uh, talking to him on the phone late at night after things would happen and things would go down and how could it have been done differently. And he learned. He learned quickly. And uh, thank God he's had the success. What were some of your other duties uh, behind the scenes in the World Wrestling Federation? Well, one wasn't smoking rock. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) If I I had been, I'd still be there. Wait, what did he say at the end about a- <laughs> what one wasn't smoking rock? Oh, that's you know I had a little treat in there for you somewhere. Oh yes, yeah, thank God for that. I like. I need to know that. So, what are you hearing, Jake's voice there, looking back on this night? I hear a guy who. <laughs> I mean, I hear a guy. Whatever. Pretty much. You know, he just doesn't think of it at all. He addresses that moment of the interview like he does, you know, the whole two-hour retrospective on any given yeah. point in his career. It's pretty pretty interesting. Now, he kind of came around to the idea that, hey, you could, you know, claim co-authorship of what, what set in motion the biggest money machine the pro wrestling business ever yeah. saw, uh, you know, sort of in his post, you know, drug-induced stupor thing. Uh, in 2018, he spoke to the Milwaukee Record about this night and kind of, you know, it, it's just text. It's not so much audio-visual, but... Uh, you know, kind of appreciates it a little more. It's kind of willing to play along with this idea that this was a huge night. And, um, you I know, mean, how could it not be? I mean, how could he oh, think for it sure. isn't? I just don't know if he realized his role in it. You know, Steve Austin doesn't have the raw material to work with for that unforgettable promo if he was across the ring in the finals from anybody else, you know? Right, right. Steve beats Mark Merrow in the 1996 King of the Ring finals. What are we talking about today? You can't talk about John 316. You know what I mean? You know, because yeah. that's the one thing. If, if Vince doesn't see something in you, but he can't deny the t uh, shirt sales, that's really what yep. puts you in a sweet spot. Like CM Punk yep. is a great example of that. A guy who, you know, Vince would never pick out of a lineup to put anywhere near the main event picture. Right. But his t shirts outsold everybody else's. And you can't argue with those numbers. You, you can't argue that people see something when the t shirts are moving. And no shirt moved like Austin 316. Bruce Pritchard has said that Vince hated the design of how plain it was. Really? Yep. Hated heel heel shirts in, in the first place. You know, does doesn't believe in merchandise that you know puts heels over in the, to begin Such with. Such a fucking moron. And you know, he loves babyface merchandise that has like the face of the wrestler on it and shit like that. Right, the stuff that is obnoxious. But this uh, this one <laughs> this went all the way. But yeah, Jake telling the uh, Milwaukee record. Of course, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, being the the host city for the 1996 King of the Ring. Uh, at the time, I was writing television for Vince McMahon. I told Vince, "That's your guy right there," and he's like, "Are you kidding?" No way, Jake. That guy is middle of the card. And I'm like, really? From that point on, I started getting with Steve every night. If it wasn't in the same town with him, he would call me. I'd go over his match. I'd go over and talk to him about doing different things and saying different things and creating. And we put it together. He just had to be himself, basically. That was the problem. They let him be himself, and he became Steve Austin. The Austin 316 thing, everyone was like, oh, that must have really upset you. Are you kidding me? You know how many people opened the Bible just to check that out who had never even opened a Bible before, you know? Wow. Well, Jake, I would th- I would say probably zero people, but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I've got my relationship with God. He knows where I'm going. I don't, but he does. So that didn't offend me at all. The only thing that kind of upset me is they didn't put the moneymaker out there, which would have been Austin's Ten Commandments. You know, <laughs> thou shall not kill unless thou art pissed. Thou shall not... <laughs> 
covet thy neighbor's wife unless she's really hot. Thou shalt honor thy mother and father unless they're jerks. You know, right on down the line. You could have had a lot of fun with that. That would have been a great seller, no doubt. Steve Austin, that was a, you know, a lot of guys can help themselves in this business. But to me, the people that mean the most are guys that can help everybody. And that's what I prided myself on. And that was my job in the WWF. Jake Roberts, fucking legend, period, period. Yes. Oh, appreciate him. Come on. You know what I mean? Bow, bow down. I think so. Praise his glory. <laughs> I'm pretty, boss, I mean, I'm pretty sure. So what, what story were they spinning? You know, because we can give Steve Austin deserved credit all day for yeah. coming up with the Austin 316 line off the top of his head there, knowing that Jake Roberts was, you know, essentially Bible thumping and telling the story, which was the story of his 1996 return to the company, that he was over his alcohol addictions and he was being open about his struggles and yeah. We, we as a WWF audience were supposed to, you know, help will him uh, through those challenges and back into the the deserved spotlight. So let's get a real textured flavor, boss, if you can turn to this clipping here. Oh, sure. Of how uh, Jake was talked about, <laughs> written about, thought about at the time and what Jake the Snake Robert Steve Austin pummels into fucking dirt here on this particular night. This from the Times Union in Albany, New York, July 11th, 1996. So. A month after the 1996 King of the Ring, but a, but an article yeah. very much focused on telling the story WWF was looking to tell about Jake Roberts. The incident occurred a few days before Easter in 1991, when professional wrestler Jake the Snake Roberts felt a painful tightening of the muscles in his chest, like Hulk Hogan doing a headbutt into Roberts' solar plexus. Roberts feared the pain might signal a heart attack, despite the protestations of uh, Roberts' wife managed to drag the wrestler to an Easter church service. Turned out the chest pain was merely a physical manifestation of the wrestler's spiritual conversion. There were no voices, no visions, but the feeling was overwhelming. Roberts can't explain it, but it says he knew God was was giving him a message to turn away from his destructive lifestyle and offering forgiveness and redemption. It was a rather large transformation for the six foot five inch, two hundred and sixty pound, two hundred and sixty five pound mayhem machine who brought pythons named Damien and Lucifer into the ring, and said he had made a pact with the devil, sealed with a four thousand dollar a week crack cocaine habit. Shortly after his born again experience, Roberts retired from wrestling. After a four year hiatus, he's back. Now he wrestles for God, says a flyer Roberts hands out to describe his work as a born-again Christian evangelist. Wrestling metaphors abound in the promotional copy concerning his, quote, 100% lightning total Christian knockdown witness testimony. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Writing this. Jake's incredible because he went through, he's already been through the phase that, you know, the guys like Ted DiBiase are at and all these other guys, you know, fine, it's Sean and. And all these guys, you know, Vince Russo, yeah, that, yeah. that fine religion after the, you know, after the business kind of leaves them high and dry for a little while, high and dry, but you know what I mean? When they're on the outs of the business and uh, he's been through, he, he already did this shit in 96. Right. He's on the other side right. of that whole phase of life. Right. Oh, God. Roberts will bring this new persona into the ring today at 7.30 p.m. at the Knickerbocker Arena in Albany for the World Wrestling Entertainment's Attitude Adjustment Tour featuring John Cena with headliners The Ultimate Warrior, Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, Vader, Goldust, and British Bulldogs. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Warrior won't bulldogs. be there. Warrior won't be there. Warrior won't be there. Uh, and the British Bulldogs will not be there either. That's correct. But. Uh, Robert's trademark snake will be there, a 16-foot, 130-pound Burmese python. He looses upon his downed opponents, but the reptile's name has been changed to Revelation. Although he normally schedules church appearances around his wrestling events, he had no firm plans for Albany. Last January, Robert was doing a speaking engagement at the local bar. You you added that. I added that. Let's be clear. (laughs) Last January, Roberts 41 was lured out of a four-year retirement with a unique WWE contract that allows him to preach his Christian message amid the stylized violence and screaming hype of the arena events. Basically, God negotiated the contract for me, Yep, Roberts says. The WWE has run Roberts' testimonials about his faith on TV, and he often speaks to youths about dedicating himself to Jesus Christ. Roberts says the response from his fans has been positive. His fellow wrestlers are another matter. When I first went back to the WWE, a lot of guys giggled behind my back and made jokes about it. Yeah. Roberts concedes. Yeah. They're the same guys who I partied hard with for many years, and now I've they see I've changed. I'm happy. I have my family back together, and my life is blessed. <laughs> I love how you're doing 2014 Jake in 96. Yes, yes, yes. They're slowly starting to ask me about my faith. I think it's just a matter of time before I get some of them back to church. WWE wrestler Barry Horowitz, who is Jewish, isn't looking to be converted by Roberts, but he says he respects the change he has observed in his colleague. This fucking guy, this poor reporter, you know, he's trying to round out the profile with kind of a voice outside of Jake's, and he's trying to get somebody to comment on, you know, how this religious stuff is landing with the locker room. And he ends up running into the only Jew in the locker room. (laughs) He's like, like, Uh, well, you know... I, I'll give you a quote. I mean, just to be clear, I, I don't really, I, yeah. I don't, I'm not a, you know, I'm, yeah, my Christianity, not my thing. <laughs> just to be clear. Just to, you know, eh. 
I didn't want anything to do with Jake's style of living when I first met him back in 83, Horowitz says by telephone from his home in Brandon, Florida, on a break after appearing on a cart with Roberts in a WWE coastal swing last week through New Haven, Connecticut, and Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, after a match, I like to get dinner, watch TV, go to bed, work out in the gym the next morning. That's the schedule Jake kept when I was just with him. He believes in what he's saying and doing, and I wish him all the best of luck. Horowitz, 37, a 225-pound, six-footer, known for patting himself on the back after a good move, says other things remain unchanged about Roberts. And Jake is still cocky and has an attitude, Harwood says. He convinced me of his religious sincerity, but the proof will be in the pudding. That's correct. Robert says he finds nothing odd about placing his ministry amid the body slams, the eye gouges, the half-Nelsons of the wrestling milieu. People thought it was a bizarre that I was doing my ministry through wrestling. Yeah. Robert says. Yeah. If you want your candle to shine, you've got to go into a dark place. You're not going to save people in church. Before he discovered redemption in the Lord, Robert says he was a hell-bent on self-destruction in the WWE heyday of the late 1980s. I was pulling down $500,000 a year and blowing it all on drugs and partying. I basically did drugs 24 hours a day. I found a doctor in every city and got painkiller prescriptions, everything from Valium to morphine. Then I'd smoke some crack. (laughs) It does not say that. What? It does not say that. It says it. I know. I'm kidding. All right. What? Then I'd smoke some crack. Mr. Roberts. They worked the show together. What? Crack. Then I'd smoke some crack. Take some pills to bring me down. And then Vader. Drink a case of beer just to bring me level (laughs) and do some more crack. Okay, we're going to have you reread that. But I have to say, not only does it get Davey Boy's attention, but then Vader comes in and goes, did someone say something about pudding? This is my kind of party. I heard about pudding. Proof is in it. Or Damn something? it, where's the pudding at? So reread. Oof, oof, yeah, he's on the show and he plays a role. I mean, he in the semifinal, right? Sure. He splashes Jake and hurts the ribs so that, uh, so that, you know, Jesus can. He also create. hurt the ribs at catering as well. <laughs> yeah, no, not the only rack of ribs he damaged <laughs> that night. And, you know, he damaged uh. Jake Roberts' ribs so that the Lord could create Adam from it. And I would like you to reread Jake giving that litany there at the end of how hard he went. I was pulling down $500,000 a year and blowing it all on drugs and partying. I basically did drugs 24 hours a day. I found a doctor in every city and got painkiller prescriptions. Everything from Valium to morphine. Then I'd smoke some crack, take some pills to bring me down, drink a case of beer just to keep me level, and do some more crack. Oh, my God. Do some more crack. Robert says he tried to kill himself three times with drug overdoses, but the suicide attempts failed. I woke up and was mad about not being dead. That's how crazy it gotten. Roberts also says he was sexually addicted. Yeah. I had to have at least two women 
I'm just going to read this one straight. I had to have at least two women a day. Everything from groupies to prostitutes to crack addicts to the hotel management. <laughs> there, he, she knows who he's talking about. Oh, yeah. She remembers that oh, yes. night. Yeah. You want some of my snake? Correct. My python. I was just fortunate I didn't wind up with AIDS. Claire, Claire stopped climbing in the uh, best Western corporate hierarchy after that came out. Yeah, yeah. Well, but it was worth it. Claire, Claire, did you have sex with a wrestler? <laughs> Claire, where were you during your shift uh, the night the wrestlers came into you town? Know, we, you know, there were, uh, Claire. Claire Lynch. <laughs> were, you, were you fucking? Yes. Were you fucking in a room? Is that what you were doing? Were you? Were you? This guy's like the senior man. VP of operations. Were you fucking in a room? I just want to know the truth here. Were you fucking in a room? Did you? Did you get your rocks off in a fucking room, Claire? With a wrestler? Get the fuck out! You're fired. And as she's leaving, with he goes, a "Fucking Carney." <laughs> hey, you want- tell me one thing at least. Did you come? I mean, for God's sakes, tell me one. Did you come? <laughs> did he come on your face? Tell me something good here, because all I see is you having sex with a non-employee who is a fraud in our hotel. Is that, sir, is that speakerphone on? Is that a newsroom in Long Island listening into this call about a fraud? What, what the about f- wrestling being a fraud? God damn. What the, somebody. Get down here right now. I got a fucking, I got a juicy one. This broad's been fucking a wrestler in a fucking hotel on the job. Get it out there. This guy's a fucking phony. The problem isn't that she's doing that. The problem is that he makes money pretending to fight people. He's fucking phony. All right. Tell, write this down right now. But boss, this, this story happened to, Halfway across the country, it's not even in our in our. You shut the fuck up, you motherfucking piece of shit! You fuck! You piece of shit! You piece of garbage! I ate you this morning. I shit you out, and there you are. My shit type what I fucking say. Yes. Get on it. You say, woman in hotel fucks a fraud. All right. Write it. That's the fucking headline. I'd like to repeat his call to arms. It it goes a little something like this. Get on it. That's awesome. (laughs) Anything more from Jake here? (laughs) Yes. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um... Roberts counts his blessings that has long-suffering wife of 12 years, Cheryl Roberts, didn't leave him. I don't know how she did it, but she stuck with me. Uh, They have three children, Cody, 10, Tyler, 2, and Tara, 4 months. Robert's wife and kids often travel with him on the road these days in their van. In between wrestling matches, they preach at local churches. The tour can be a grind. This week is typical. East Rutherford, New Jersey, New Haven, Connecticut, Providence, Rhode Island, Albany, and back home to Athens, Georgia. In his born-again testimonials, Roberts doesn't pull punches about his troubled past. Children of a teen mother in Texas, Roberts and his sister were given to relatives to be raised. Roberts grew up with his grandparents. His grandmother died of cancer when he was 12 years old. The grandfather couldn't raise him, and he was sent to live with his biological father and stepmother. Roberts says his stepmother mentally and sexually abused him. 
His sister also was abused by the father, and she got pregnant when she was 13. Fuck me. Oh, you don't know this story? I didn't know that. Did he talk about that? I mean, I, did he talk about that in the movie? I don't remember. Uh, not so much in Beyond the Mat in terms of like, yeah, I mean, they touched on it. He, he's a he's a child of love, and I still love him. And then the Grizzly Smith, of course, says that after Jake says right. uh, elsewhere in the documentary that it was a rape. Um, but yeah, Jesus. much more detail on the Grizzly Smith uh, episode of Dark Side of the Ring, if you're interested. All right. Yeah, I'll have to go. Robert's father, a professional wrestler, pushed his son into the ring at the age of 19. I've been wrestling for 20 years, and my message to kid is that I've tried drugs, alcohol, money, food, sex, and everything you can think of, and it doesn't help. The only answer left is God. I give him a lot of talks to gang kids to try to get them through, to try to get through to them, to, to help them get their past anger and disappointment and loss of hope. I want to show them that God will help them feel at peace with themselves. Roberts, who tried substance abuse rehabilitation programs in the past without success, says he still struggles with his compulsive personality. If I get frustrated and have a bad day, the temptation is always there to go out and get drunk. My urge isn't just to go out and have a couple of beers. I have to drink the entire case of beer climb on a telephone pole and swing off the wires and break my damn head. I could never do anything in a small way. Roberts adds that he is randomly tested for drugs and alcohol once a week as part of his WWE contract, a far cry from the no-holds-barred debaucheries of his past wrestling life. Roberts uses another meta- another wrestling metaphor. I can put a whooping on guys in the ring, but I, but I couldn't whoop my problems myself. Only when I humbled myself in front of God and the Lord whooped me, whooped some sense into me, and did things start, and did good things start happening. WWE's Attitude Adjustment Tour, today, 7.30 p.m., Knickerbocker Arena. Seats are priced from $10 to $17. Call blah, blah, blah for more information to, or to order tickets. Very good. So there you go. That's the guy Jesus. that Steve Austin beat the living shit out of. And left a pool of pathetic loser at King of the Ring 96. All of that, that it simply just turned into a way to light the fire under the Stone Cold character. And that's remarkable to me. And there you have oh, it. Oh, absolutely. It's crazy. So it's King of the Ring 96. There's a ton, a ton to talk about. This is probably the best King of the Ring of all time in terms of a show itself. Would you disagree? No, I, I would I would agree. I, I would say, let me think here. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I think I think the, the, you know it was. At first, I didn't like it when they when they made the big change to have only the semifinals and the finals. But I think it made for a much better show. No question. And uh, I mean, it's it's the, the the whole show is just packed with with amazing stuff. I always loved the show. It's one of my. It, it was one of my favorites um, of the time period. And it it speaks to such a particular sort of captive point in WWF where they were going with Shawn Michaels as the babyface world champion. They were trying to see if he could be, you know, a Hogan, basically. Um, and they had Warrior uh, could just come back at WrestleMania that year to really try to, you know, bolster things. Holland Nash had left, so they're feeling that pressure. He, they just left the month before, and the NWO was just starting to percolate, yet Hulk Hogan had yet to turn heel. So put yourself in that frame of mind. Um, Owen and... Um, That's crazy. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Owen is on commentary. Uh, Owen is on fire. Owen is fucking incredible on this show. He 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 is he is so goddamn funny. He missed his he calling. He is so man. off the fucking walls. Everything he says is is just gold. And he's defiant, and he doesn't want to yep. hear it when you say that he's wrong, and he sees things that aren't there if it benefits the heels, and he just it, it, he's just he's incredible. Uh, so we get a glimpse of that and a flavor of that. You know, to say nothing of the consequentialness of if that's even a word of Steve Austin's promo and what he does on the show and Mark Merrow's probably best WWF match in the quarterfinals against Steve and all the lore around Steve's lip getting busted. Shawn Michaels versus Davey Boy Smith in the main event. A terrific match. match. Terrific. Great match. Just them putting forward like, look, this is what we are in contrast to WCW. You know, this kind of a main event, this kind of a world title match is, is what we're about. Um, that that comes through big time. You have Sonny. It's it's great. I love. I always love the. Um, I love the. Uh, um, what is it? The uh, um, oh, at the end when he has both Davy Boy and Owen in moves, and it's like beating them both oh, at yeah. the same time. Yeah, I always love that. He's got uh, Davy Boy in the figure four, and then he cradles Owen. He finds a way to take them both on to neutralize them both. Yep, and it's fucking um, awesome. You've got Sonny just starting to be, you know, the AOL download queen. They're starting to play around with this idea that we really have something with with, with kind of like the, you know, sultry females on yeah, roster. Yeah. It's like oh, this. Yeah, and then you got a guy named Brian Pillman. Brian Pillman shows up having company. just signed a contract after destroying his ankle in a car wreck. And they're trying to find a way to weave him into the show without him being ready to wrestle yet. You have um, you have Ahmed Johnson defeat Goldust yeah, to become... Intercontinental God. Champion, and where the Goldust character was at the time. Jesus. The gold, yep. The, the Goldust thing, man. And and the, the Ahmed Johnson thing was so fucking... I, it, you know, I, I've, I've, I've said it before. He was he was a Hogan for me. Yeah? He was a Hogan, Ahmed me, Johnson. Meaning for those who aren't familiar? Huh? Meaning that he, oh, that he was going to be the next Hulk Hogan in my mind. Keep in mind, Hulk Hogan hadn't been in the WWE for three years. <laughs> and you're still, still, I'm still looking for him. They are too, for that matter. But I'm still looking for a new Hulk Hogan. Well, they wanted Shawn Michaels to be your Hulk Hogan. Why wasn't he in 1996? Uh, because I liked Shawn Michaels as he was. And so, like, basically, for my Hulk Hogan, it needs to be a Hulk Hogan that I can basically use my figure. Right, you know? right. Like, if, if Ahmed Johnson's going to be in a match, I need to use, I need to be able to use uh, Hulk Hogan in, you know... Uh, I need to be able to use Hulk Hogan in this, in this part. And I like Shawn Michaels. So I was, there was something about me that got really excited about Shawn Michaels being world champion. And like, it just seemed, it seemed so fresh to me yeah. to have Shawn Michaels be the world champion. Cause it just seemed like it was never going to happen. Very I didn't buy it as a thing. And then they proved me wrong. And look, of all the things we just listed that are significant about this show, a lot of them end up being dead ends. You know, the warrior run yes. goes nowhere. The sunny thing doesn't necessarily end uh, in, in a in knockout situation you know uh ahmed johnson um goes basically nowhere this this turns out this is this is this is this is the climax of the ahmed johnson story correct for reasons it's all downhill from here and it's a disaster absolutely yep uh so true the Shawn michaels title reign you know it was it was successful on balance but you hear sean talk about it and it was just like this this constant barrage of stress and self-doubt and things going wrong they're coming off the beware of dog pay-per-view in may which was the in your house show which was the first time They've lost power during a live pay-per-view transmission, and it turned into. Still a, haven't done that show. Isn't that funny? Uh, yeah, it's out We've there. Another weird thing, you know. It's a show we have never done. Yep. Yeah, a lot of 1996 blind spots in the catalog. Yeah. I would argue. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
you know, so yeah, a lot of the stuff, what's so interesting about all those cross currents is a lot of them go nowhere. So they're more historical curiosities. The Steve Austin thing is the one thing that, you know, they'll still talk about King of the Ring 1996 in 40 years because of that. A lot of the other stuff, it's kind of like it's lost to history because it's, it's a lot of things they were trying and experimenting with in early 96 that, that, that didn't catch, but yeah, like gave us an idea of what direction they would generally try to push the product in to counter WCW's momentum. And um, th- I mean, to say nothing of the fact that Steve Austin wins, wins King of the Ring this year. Why? Because Triple H, who they originally were going to give it to, participated in the uh, the click sendoff in Madison Square Garden in May. It's just fucking crazy, isn't it? Really is. Really remarkable. It's just fucking crazy time so if we're going to set the table i think one of the things we can do is go back to warrior because as we mentioned right. you know, ton of overtures ever since he walked out on vince in 1991 and came back in 92 and then had the the gh shipment and they had, to, yep. they had to get rid of him again and we've talked ad nauseum on the show about you know his role in the steroid trial and as <laughs> yes, we did baltimore baltimore the hotel there <laughs> our very first episode of this show was about SummerSlam yeah, 91. The warrior jumping, leaving, yeah, running to the, running back of the curtain and never coming and never returning. And all the um, the records that came out about the pay dispute yeah. with him and Hogan yeah. and the letters back and forth about Linda McMahon being his mommy and all. It, it's it's a <laughs> wild story. But finally, it did, there was a overture made in uh, December 95 where it looked like Warrior might come in and that fell flat. But finally, they get the ink on the deal. Warrior gets all his goodies in there. Like, you know, I got a comic book. You literally have to insert into you, your WWF magazines that you ship out to all your fans. You have to promote my uh, wrestling school on television down in Phoenix. You have to you know, always believe campaign. You have to put your, you know, promotional and production muscle behind that. Spend thousands of dollars. You have to wear my hat to the ring. Oh, well, that you know why that was, right? Because he was afraid to have Lawler break the picture frame over his head because some glass might get embedded in his skull. Oh, really? All right, well, that makes sense. So that's the only reason he did that. But um, yeah, just, you know, total prima donna, totally like, you know, headed for another disaster. But what's important is- so bummed. All I wanted was him to just make it to the, make it to the Royal Rumble. (laughs) Is that right? Because you thought he would win it? That was it. That was always my thing. I just wanted a guy, I, I wanted to believe, you know, they'd always come back at WrestleMania- and then they'd be gone. Hogan did the same thing in 93. It's like, just please, can I see these guys in Royal Rumble, like live? So it was about seeing it. It wasn't about thinking Warrior would win the 1997 Royal Rumble. I mean, I'd want him to win, for sure. But I would be just fine seeing him participate in a Royal Rumble. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, as much as clearly 96 was about Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin and so many other things that happened, uh, 1996 was about Ultimate Warrior in WWF. The first half of the year, like... Yeah, he wasn't world champ. He wasn't in the main event. He was nibbling around the edges, having programs with like part-time semi-wrestlers at the time, like Jerry Lawler, because they really couldn't slot him anywhere else because he couldn't lose to anybody. They weren't, he wasn't about to go for that. So he right. runs over Triple H on Hearst Helmsley at the time in his WrestleMania 12 return to the company. And then he basically, um, he, he's clothesline Invader all over the place on house shows. Invader has a big fit about that because he, in fact, he walks out of the ring on one house show and refuses to really? yeah, do the agreed upon finish after taking a couple of Why? Because he just doesn't think it's making any sense for him to put over Ultimate Warrior. Uh, Jim Ross said that one of the things um, Vader always harped on was his, his marketability in Japan. His sort of like back pocket thing was always like, you know, Japan knows if I lose and if I never lose, no matter what happens in this current run, I can go back to Japan and make significant money. And, you know, JR mocks him for that and says, Jesus Christ, who cares about Japan? Like Japan is, 
but that was Vader's whole thing. And so, you know, it, and maybe if it wasn't Japan, it would have been something else. Leon White probably just didn't like right. the idea of looking vulnerable in the ring. It's not how he made his millions, and it's not, you know, it's not his, his uh, optimal booking. Sure. But, sure. Um, you know, it's no one's optimal booking to lose when you get right down to it. Um, anyway, you know, they, they put that match together because, as Jim Ross said on his podcast, that, that had some sizzle on the house shows. You know, Warrior Vader, I'd fucking check that out. But never- I mean, my God, that, that to me is... That that that's the main event, right? That's WrestleMania, right there. Could be, yeah. If they played their cards a certain way. And look, I, I was in 1996. Shawn Michaels versus Ultimate Warrior. Okay. Oh fuck Take yeah! Take me to that promised land. Take me to a world where Shawn beats somebody that makes me feel like no, this Shawn Michaels is actually better than my Hasbro era early 90s WWF yep. repertoire. Yep. Like yep. They, were, yep. they had a chance there if Warrior was willing to put him over, which we know would never have happened. But it was. The same idea, roughly, they had for the 1993 Royal Rumble, where Bret Hart would, right. after winning the title for the first time, defeat Ultimate Warrior by sharpshooter to go into WrestleMania really hot that year, and maybe even face Hulk Hogan later in 93, um, and, and beat him. Um, that would have been it. That would have been like, wow. Oh, brother, we never agreed to that, dude. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Day to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Terry? do that, brother. What? I expect you to make an appearance on this show. I thought this was one show. We didn't have to worry about you. Did we not spend well, enough make, hours? I, I, well, I mean, you brought me up, dude, so I don't know. I said your we name. We never agreed with that, brother. We had, we had, we had, you know, maybe we talked, but there was no promise ever made, brother. What, what did, what did we talk? What? We talked turkey. Turkey sandwiches, brother. Don't get me started. All right. It's only May. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but Shawn Michaels for Ahmed Johnson, too. I was all about yes. Shawn having a... Babyface versus Babyface epic program in 1996. I felt like that was one thing that was missing from his title reign. Not to say that that's some indispensable part of any WWF title reign. Those are very rare, but I felt like there was room for that. Maybe it's because of the way they marketed Sean and Brett as Babyface versus Babyface at WrestleMania 12. But Yeah, maybe. I mean, but, and then in a weird way, I know he was a heel, but still against Diesel, it's still kind of a, you know, it's not an official Babyface, but he's facing his, you know, best bud. Yeah, yeah. At the at, at good friends, better enemies, yeah. I, you know, I I agree, I agree with that. I mean, there are there are a few 
a few kind of holes in a way that I, I you know, could have had a much more interesting match. I mean, I, I, I like the Mankind one, but the Mankind one never made sense to me. In at at at, at buried alive, not buried alive. Uh, oh, mind games, yeah, mind games. You know that never made sense to me then. Uh, again, it's a great match, and I, I, you know, when we watched it, I was first time I ever saw it, and it was it was fantastic. But you know, it just never made sense. Like you're going to try to sell a a pay per view with that as your main event. I mean, I don't I don't remember how well it did, but it just didn't work in my head. Yeah, like, yeah. try something different, a little edgier. Well, Sean was kind of casting about for a money opponent as champ. Right. That was kind right. of a problem. And that's what I felt like a guy like Warrior could do for him. But, you know, Davy Boy Smith, two pay-per-views in a row. He's working Goldust on the road. You know, these are hot heels, but they are not main event, right. pay-per-view main eventers. Vader, you know, was being positioned as such. But, of course, we know the backstory that Shawn Michaels was hardly thrilled with Vader and his attitude and wasn't really happy about the idea of dropping the belt to win it back from him and the SummerSlam 1996 finish changes because of that by the time we get to Survivor Series which was supposed to be the Shawn Michaels Vader rematch it becomes Shawn Michaels versus Sid Sid who's only brought back because Ultimate Warrior uh, leaves the company um, after they had promoted him being in the main event of International Incident the uh, six-man tag in July 1996 which we just talked about because there was a six-man tag main event on the last WWE pay-per-view which was Mm -hmm. reminiscent of that but yeah this is Ultimate Warrior's final WWE pay-per-view appearance can you deal with it? Um, if you don't count him coming out on the stage as a new Hall of Fame inductee. No, this is his final WWE match. That's pretty fucking crazy. Yeah. And, and the show ends clearly wow. with the signal that, like, we are to see Ultimate Warrior as our mega babyface savior. Even though Shawn Michaels yep. is WWF champ, who saves the day at the end? It's I, Warrior who comes out last. I was electrified when they did this. I was oh, so I electrified yep. because it was like they know in my heart the pecking order. Right. They they understand me. They understand that, like, I want to see Ultimate Warrior involved in, in the main event. You know, they understand s- that that fans are. For some reason, like, I don't I, I wanted Warrior to be champion again. Right. It wouldn't have hurt. It just made sense. I wanted him to be champion when he came back in 92. Yeah, well, I was they, hoping he beat Savage. They did too, but it didn't work out. I know they did. I mean, and I don't, I've never heard anyone connect the two, but I don't think it's any coincidence that they dropped steroid testing officially in early 1996, right around the time Warrior came back, because you know he was a fucking mess because he couldn't I mean, use the gas. Yeah, I just think we don't need to do it anymore. And they had to, uh, they had to uh, fire, Patterson, fire Patterson, him. Get in here. What's up, boss? I got so I'm thinking. I got an idea. So I'm thinking. Maybe, you know, we've had a good run, a good run, uh, you know, since, uh, since, um, you know, the, the trial, since I was acquitted. And obviously there is, uh, the, obviously it's proved that I did not have anything to do with steroids ever. Oh, of course, I, I wouldn't you call know, it a good right? run, but that's fine. No, 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 no. We had a, we had a good you run. Sure you, that, wanna, so. you sure you don't want to go to pay phone to finish this conversation? I, we're okay. Because I think what I just want to do is I just want to, I think, I think we're okay. I think we've made our point. I think we have done the the testing to the to the degree that we need to do it i think we should just drop it for now yeah I don't we need to do it anymore okay you just let them use the guys are safe yeah i, I think that's true i think it's a lot of media yeah, hysteria about the teenagers well, and we're gonna do the, the drug test for jake because he's a fucking problem <laughs> but besides that i think we can just drop it go back to 87 we're just testing for yeah. the coke and the, yeah. the yayo sure whatever you know the, the 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 things like that and um so yeah i just wanted to say we're, we're gonna drop the testing so you can you can get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> Thanks for letting me. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, one thing I just want to throw this by. Uh, so I'm I'm bringing Warrior back. 
Oh, unrelated? No, it's coming back. Unrelated, completely unrelated. Had nothing to do with steroids. He's uh, he's looking quite good. Oh, good for his non-steroid battle physique. Glad you figured that out. Thanks, boss. Looks real. He looks very real. All right, I'm going to go call Jason. Very real. What you can do for me is is just understand that steroids are not in anybody's body right now. Right. Not mine. Not warriors. Definitely not warriors. Warrior. Uh, he's been clean, so he does not need to be tested. Ever. Well, he was tested. Uh, you know, I think Vince McMahon's patience was tested, is what it comes down yeah. to. Oh, yeah. More than anything. So they brought him back in early 96. Uh, David Bixen Span had an excellent article in Fighting Spirit magazine years ago talking about Ultimate Warriors, uh, many, you know, departures and returns and, and the legal paperwork around it. And uh, some of those documents from a warrior lawsuit talk about uh, how his contract was, uh, according to the article, notable for a number of customized terms, particularly an agreement that Ultimate Warrior trademarks would be transferred to Warrior from Titan Sports. He was to be paid a guaranteed $1 million dollars for the 18-month duration of the contract, and if he worked more than 14 days in a month, he was to be paid $2,500 for each additional day. Warrior elected to forego any additional compensation, including without limitation royalties, residuals, and the like, in exchange for these terms. So, uh, a nice setup for Warrior to come back. Very nice. Sure. Um, a, a cash out. Not as good as Hogan's, though. No. Well, no. And we know this. Um, <laughs> and that's that was the story of Ultimate Warrior's life, feeling like there is no reason Hulk Hogan should make more than he did. That's why he walked out at the 1991 SummerSlam, and that turned out to be the animating force of his whole life, if you ask me. Isn't funny? Isn't that, isn't that just sad? Yes, it is indeed. So this is an Ultimate Warrior returning to a WWF for the first time since 1992, when all of our, our warm, fuzzy, Hasbro-era characters were still mm-hmm. populating the locker room. There's a lot of new faces, a lot of guys that have been brought in that had cycled out of WCW, like your Steve Austins, Mark Marrows, yep. Vader's, mm-hmm. Mick Foley's. Mick Foley's. Yep. Undertaker is, you know king shit now and things have changed um so he's looking around and this is uh, an excerpt from a book called titan shattered which was written by okay. james dixon and kind of takes uh the measure of this time period in wwf and, and and laces in some some quotes from shoot interviews and podcasts and other things so the quotes here from warrior i believe are from a shoot interview that he did um okay uh helwig noted i didn't know half of the guys of course referring to his 1996 comeback all I knew was that the guys now on top were B-team players when I was there before, and I had come back to make an impression. B-team players. Dick. So yeah, imagine I mean, him you looking know, at but Steve you do Austin. Realize, uh, you do realize there, Jim, that you know the B-team eventually becomes the A-team. That's the whole fucking point. Right. There's no other way to do it. It just eventually will happen. You know, just some people are with it and some people aren't. But, you know, you have to remember a guy of Warriors generation walks into the locker room in 1996 and looks at a Steve Austin, looks at a Triple H and says, what a bunch of jabrones. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, you know, the fact that Warrior disappears mid 1996 might have more to do than we tend to realize with creating the open, creating the lane for a Steve Austin to punch through. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever they would do with Warrior for the balance of 96 and beyond would probably occupy a lot of oxygen toward the top of the card. Does Steve Austin end up in a program with Bret Hart at Survivor Series 1996? Yeah, that's that's a very good point. You know, we don't know. Uh, possibly. Although I can I can see because didn't didn't Brett like is Brett. Yeah, he pushed for it. So like, he saw that. But, you know, Austin is allowed to run even more wild because you know, I'm not saying the two are directly connected. I'm just saying what occupies the thoughts and yeah, priorities of yeah. Vince McMahon. And if Warrior's there, managing him is taking a lot of his energy. 
and his yeah. creative is yeah. taking a lot more time and effort and initiative than anybody else's. And you know, does a Steve Austin get the chance to make the impression that he did in 1996 uh, with those right. kinds of issues on the front burner? So everything is happening, and I just thought it was it was just fascinating to think of a Jim Helwig walking into the WWF locker room, such as it was at this point in 1996, and seeing a bunch of B team players. And yeah, that would um, be pretty crazy. And that's pretty much where he shows up and insists. And you know, we've done WrestleMania 12 as part of the journey all those years ago, so yeah. we didn't really set much of a foundation there. But that was not a that was not Paul Levesque's favorite night in the business. Let's put it that way. He uh, yeah <laughs> shows up to the building um, expecting to be able to talk to Warrior about working out a match where he can get some shine. And, you know, this is his, his first WrestleMania as well. And the Ultimate Warrior's return, despite how big Sean and Brett was in the Iron Man match, was the biggest thing on that card. Uh, the biggest marquee attraction was the return of the Warrior. And, um, you know, Paul Levesque, Triple H, was pretty excited about sharing the ring, knowing, of course, he's counting the lights. But, you know, when he goes to talk to uh, Warrior about uh, what they're going to do... Um, as James Dixon notes, Helwig had never met Levesque prior to the show and would later claim his opponent offered no suggestions for the match when they first discussed it. Instead, he outlined his own plan that would see Helmsley hit the pedigree finishing move straight away, only for him to kick out, respond in kind, and win the bout quickly. He was looking to recreate the uh, 1988 SummerSlam Hunky Tonk Man finish. I don't see the problem. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but, you know, Triple H is like coming up with all these spots and um, he... He goes to um, some of the agents and some of the people working backstage for the company and tries to get them to try to persuade Warrior to give Triple H a little bit more in this match. And yeah. uh, Dixon writes, despite having remained a silent witness as his proposed career assassination was laid out in front Oof. of his eyes, Levesque evidently did have a problem with how Helwig wanted everything to play out. Troubled by the plan, he sought out respected veteran road agent Jerry Briscoe for advice as a decorated former amateur and professional wrestling traditionalist. Briscoe had little time for a character like the ultimate warrior. He advised Levesque not to kill his finish in the manner that had been suggested and shared his belief that the contest should be a competitive back and forth encounter prior to Helwig getting his hand raised. Levesque returned to Helwig's locker room as he was showering, bringing Briscoe alongside him for backup. He began outlining a number of ideas that he wanted to work into the script, but Helwig cut him off immediately. <laughs> Staring a hole through Levesque, he barked, if there's anything you need to discuss with me, then you come to me and discuss it man to man. That's right. Even if Levesque had done that, Cornette attests, it probably would not have made a great deal of difference. Warrior, Cornette said, wasn't going to hear of it. He wasn't going to let anyone get any offense in on him during his first match back. Helmsley wasn't important at the time, so it didn't matter, but he didn't take it well. Levesque would later call Helwig, quote, one of the most unprofessional guys I have ever been in the ring with, noting that his staunch refusal to show any weakness ruined the experience of his first WrestleMania appearance. Realizing that trying oh, to argue with Helwig... You know was, it's fake, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just ask your buddy Scott Hall. He'll tell you whether Jesus you should be feeling Christ. some kind of way about WrestleMania. Um, so yeah, obviously uh, Triple H takes stock, goes out and does the thing, gets run the fuck over, and that's that's that. But, you know, it's kind of a... A comeback is, is around the corner. He's going to win the 1996 King of the Ring. You know, eventually those that word starts to percolate. Do they come up with it as maybe a make good for doing what had to be done to get Warrior off to a rip-roaring start? Maybe. Maybe mm -hmm. that factored mm -hmm. into it. But they were ready to go with him. He impressed them with his uh, Henry Godwin feud in the tail end of 1995. Hey, you know, the, 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 the Greenwich snob beat the fucking, you know, the, 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 the little the hog master. Correct. Huh? Look at that. What do you know? 
hog pen match maybe, where you slip it and slide us, us fucking Yankees are a little smarter than those dumb fucking hicks down south. Maybe you represent that for me, pal. Huh? What? Yeah. Maybe, Paul, I, you represent that for me. I'm Paul, you... I was going to say that, that, Paul, if you're willing to do... If you're willing to be me and you're willing to beat the, the Ted Turner version of Henry Godwin... I'm okay with that. Right. And I'll take you to the next level. Wow. So that was a plan, for sure. Um, and as Triple H if writes... If you want to beat him, I'll make it happen. I have that power. So it's amazing to think about, you know, Triple H being the guy that they wanted to push in 96 um, and, and go with it King of the Ring. And Austin was not the plan. He just simply was not. He was still... yeah. With Ted DiBiase, he was still the ringmaster and all that shit. DiBiase, of course, leaves the company and goes to WCW and joins the NWO later in 96. But we turn now to Triple H's book, Making the Game, for oh boy. Uh, you know, a little sketch here of how he was feeling around this time and how he reflected upon it. I kept yeah, on getting... He's working on his memoirs now? What's now that? that he, now that he's retired? What's that? You think he's working on his memoirs now, his full memoirs, now that he's retired? That's a great question. No, you know, I think a guy in his position is still like telling himself that his best days are ahead of him. And that exercise would indicate something other than that. Uh, and plus mm. there's, if he writes a book, everybody's going to read the dirt, want to read the dirty laundry about how NXT fell apart. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to talk about that. I'm sure he doesn't want to detail that. And if he puts a book out without that in it, it'll just be panned and create even more interest in what he's trying to not talk about. So All right. maybe, maybe if another 10 years passes, I don't know. But, um, All right. Fine. Sorry. That's my guess. Uh, He writes, I kept on gaining... a better book than that fucking fucking travesty that he wrote. Yeah, it's so weird. You know, you go back to these old books, some of these guys did, like, Keynes is about, like, politics, and his is about this, and JBL's is about managing your money, because all these guys think they, you know, have a market beyond wrestling fans for their books, which, of course, none of them do. No, you do not. None of them do. But, you know, they do basically write a traditional wrestling biography. They just lace it, you know, right after this chapter about 1996, it's how to build your abs. It's like so infuriating. Right. It's the worst. It really is the worst. So bad what he, like, what he thinks he's accomplishing here. But, hey, it's the best we have. I kept on gaining steam, he writes, with the fans, and the creative team was giving me a big push toward the top. They had me scheduled to win the King of the Ring 1996 and follow that with a series of matches with Shawn Michaels that would result in a championship bout. So how about that, boss? HBK versus Triple H title program, 96. I don't buy it. No. The plan was all set. About two weeks prior to King of the Ring, we had a house show at Madison Square Garden. It was a live event that wasn't for television. We were only performing for the people in the arena. It was also Kevin and Scott's last night with the company. The two had signed on with WCW as the Monday Night Wars really started to escalate. As it worked out, the four members of the clique who were working the show, Sean, Kevin, Scott, and I, were involved in matches with one another. I beat Scott, Vicious Brawl. Um, Sean took Nash in a cage to finish the the night off. Sean asked Scott and me to come back into the ring at the end of their match for a final photo of the four of us who were like brothers. Uh, I don't know how Sean explained it to Vince beforehand, but when we all got together, things went in a different direction. It was an emotional night. There was hugging and backslapping and smiling. The four of us remained in the ring, our hands locked as we raised our arms in triumph. This clearly broke the code of secrecy in our business moments earlier. The four of us were all trying to pulverize one another, and now we were revealing the truth, that we were actually the best of friends. The fans at the show that night loved it, but a lot of people from the office were pissed. And I could see why they were, even though the company had already admitted it was entertainment. This was the first public display proving that label true. Not to mention that we did this in Madison Square Garden, long considered our company's home arena, and this was a huge deal. We did pull back the proverbial curtain of our business and revealed our magic. 
I don't know if they revealed any magic. They just stood there. I mean, it's like they know, told the crowd how to fucking, do a suplex. I mean, right. You just, you know, you raised your hands and stuff. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't fucking take out stools and start taking questions. I love, uh, you know? like most things, I love JR's salty take on this now. Like, come on. And his thing is like, you know, were you really doing it because you guys just couldn't stand to be apart from each other and were just as great friends? Or did you really do it just to be defiant and just say, look what we can do? Yeah, just another page out of the book of the click acting all goofy, like, you know what I mean? I mean, duh. Absolutely. That's why there was heat, because they did it to piss people off. Right. And and it did. So this idea that, like, there's, like, this, um... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This kind of innocent, like we just wanted to say goodbye no, like these these are four pricks who like want, especially Sean Diesel and Razor. I think Triple H was more of like the bag man at the time, more of like the the tag along guy, you know, the guy who would like bully the bully you if if all of his friends were right. bullying you. But if if you saw him one to one, he wouldn't bother you. I still think of him that way at this time period. Uh, the, the the driver, basically, the guy who wasn't fucking high all the time, and that's, right. that was right. his utility for the click. But um, but yeah, they're doing it. They're doing it because they're not supposed to do it. They're not doing it because they just can't help themselves because they love each other so much. Like Jim Ross says, like, they didn't even talk to each other for, like, years after this, you know? Do they talk to each other today? Like, not really. Yeah, right. No. Because, you know, remember when, like, Scott and Kevin Nash got inducted into the Hall of Fame and it just felt so forced the way they were all, like, you know what I mean? Yep. Trying to bro yep. it up. Yeah, there was, it was, there was a lot of falsity. I'm not sure about that. I felt that. falsity. Um, so Triple H continues... We did pull back the proverbial curtain of our business a bit and revealed our magic, but that wasn't our intention. We didn't set out to deliberately attack the code of secrecy that surrounds our business. At first, Vince didn't have a problem with what we did. I think there was a part of him that respected it because he saw that it was never meant to be more than two guys saying goodbye to two other guys they had shared a lot of great times with over the years. An emotional goodbye between four guys who became brothers traveling. Okay, stop. Despite understanding all this, he still had to lay down a punishment. Problem was that Kevin and Scott were leaving. And as the world champion and biggest draw in the company, Sean was untouchable. 
That meant the entire fallout would land squarely on me. I didn't complain because I should have known better. It was a major screw-up that was going to cost me dearly. Vince didn't fire me, though. He knew that as the youngest guy, I definitely didn't come up with the idea. I didn't lead the other three into it. I also think he believed that I was a valuable performer, someone he didn't want to hand back over to Bischoff. When he met in his office about it, Vince offered me the opportunity to get out of my contract. I didn't know that. And go to WCW to be with my friends. I told him I came from there and no way did I want to go back. So he explained to me, with brutal honesty, what that meant for my immediate future. You're not going to win the King of the Ring, he said. You're not getting involved in a program with Sean. Let me tell you something. I don't know who you think you are. All right? I don't know who the fuck you think you are, but you are not. You are not. You're not winning King of the Ring. You're not working with Sean. All right? At least not Sean Michael. Maybe, maybe some other Sean. Maybe, maybe, maybe Sean Waltman. No, he's going to be gone anyway. Whatever. You're not working with any Seans. Maybe you'll work with a, a Steve or something, but not a Sean. You're also not going to be able to marry my daughter. Right. Ever. Say what? <laughs> 96. You heard me. You can't fuck Stephanie. She's like a sophomore brain. BU at the time. Get your mind out of my daughter's pussy, you fucking asshole. Exactly. You're done. If you stay here, I'm going to bury you. Bury you like my fucking father. And I'll say, sir, may I have another? (laughs) You're not going to win the King of the Ring, he said. You're not getting involved in a program with Sean. Your career will get put on hold for a bit. You're going to have to learn to eat shit and like the taste of it. The only thing I asked Vince during our meeting was that I get his assurance that the incident was done. I apologized and told him I respected his decision to punish me, but I needed to know. Okay, kind of getting weird. Daddy. Yeah. But I needed to know that one day he was going to feel that I'd taken enough punishment, and when that day came, he would give me another opportunity to shine. No. Not happening. I make the decisions, and maybe someday I'll make a decision about you. But until then, I'm going to keep making decisions about me. And right now, you're where you are. Yeah. That's clear. Uh, You don't like it? You can kiss my ass and (laughs) suck on my nuts. Yes. All right. Triple H goes. I'm not here to fucking make friends. I'm here to do what I got to fucking do. And what do you have to do? Ah! What do you have to do? What is it that... (laughs) Forget it. I don't know, damn it. <laughs> Hogan's gone. There we go. He left me. The son of a bitch left me. He's not coming back. I don't know if you know this, but I've been sitting here waiting for Hogan to come back all these years, Paul. That's the only reason I still show up to work every day. Paul, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you something that I've never told anybody before, not even Patterson, especially not my wife. I only stick around because I keep waiting for Hulk Hogan to walk through the, the doors of Titan Towers. I, other than that, I, I would, I would just as soon bury myself in a grave. I just wait for Hogan. I get to my office. I wait for Hogan. <laughs> Looking, I masturbate. I wait for Hogan. <laughs> I look out my I, office window I'm, across Long Island Sound and I wait for I, Hogan. I wait for Hogan. <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes I think about going to the roof and waiting for Hogan. <laughs> it's like waiting for Godot at this point, Vince. <laughs> I, 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 I call him. He doesn't return my calls. I don't know why. I said, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. He doesn't answer. He doesn't respond. 
I leave messages that say, Terry, I need you. Call me back. <laughs> I, say, I say, Terry, Terry, I love you. I love you. I need you to come home. And he doesn't respond. Terry, I forgive you for your testimony that exonerated me on federal charges. I, 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 I tell him, I forgive him for, for, test, for testifying against me in the trial of my life. <laughs> the trial of my life. And what a magnanimous son of a bitch you are, Vince. And, and, and what thanks do you get, you know, at the end of the day? And here I am. All I want to go on is a little bit of Hulkamania. You know, Paul, that's, that's all I want. He's telling it's a little this. bit of Hulkamania that I, can, that I can have for my own. He's spilling his guts to 1996 Triple H. <laughs> and instead, all I do is come here and I cry. Game, I come here and I cry. Game. Because I know that Hulk Hogan, no matter how long I wait, he's never coming back. So, uh, so with that, I have a question for you, Paul. Do you have Gary Stridham's number? <laughs> so, so, with that in mind, and um, that notwithstanding, are deep, and that notwithstanding, and, and um, you know, uh, the question I really have: Do you know Gary Stridham? <laughs> are you a friend of his? Is he in the click? <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, the click. Geary, Geary stride him. Because uh, I think it's about his time yeah. to become Hulk Hogan. Yeah, I think so. I would call him Gary Hulk Hogan stride him. <laughs> well, that would, get, that would get through legal, I'm sure. So, you Triple understand H- my pain. The Vince McMahon story. So, Triple H... <laughs> Triple H goes from winning the 1996 King of the Ring to losing to Jake Roberts in the first round on television via pin in nine minutes, 34 seconds. I think it aired on syndication. I don't even think it aired on Raw. That's amazing. Also, in the first round, Ahmed Johnson um, versus Vader. Vader gets the the, uh, pinfall win uh, to advance, interestingly, with Johnson on his way to uh, becoming uh, champion. Ultimate Warrior and Goldust. Warrior was in the 1996 King of the Ring, if you're prepared to deal with that. You know, they always, you know, it's funny. Those those teases are just the worst. Aren't they, though? They really are. Like, come on. Can't you, can't you, can't you, like, if you're not going to put him in there, don't, don't have him, quali- don't have him qualify for the, uh, or don't, don't make him have to qualify if you're not going to put him in. Yeah, right, right. That he goes to a double count out with gold dust, so um, Vader gets a bye because no one advances to that bracket quarterfinal. Uh, right. As mentioned, Jake pins Triple H. Uh, Justin Hawk Bradshaw, at the time, that was the gimmick Ugh. he had, beat uh, Henry Godwin to advance. Gross. Yes. Steve Austin gets his first uh, win of the tournament over Bob Holly uh, to advance, and um, Savio Vega defeats Marty Jannetty to advance, setting up Steve Austin versus Savio Vega in the tournament, which boss at the time was a bit of a... Savio! Hot feud, right? You know, yes. Savio and Steve. Well, I don't know about hot, but it was, it was happening. It was a thing. Let's put it that way. It, it was, was a thing. It existed. It lived in some, in some, you know, corner of the universe. There was there was story to that particular confrontation. Is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, so yeah, Warrior. Um, let's see who else uh, factors in here. We have where's the bracket? Okay. Um, uh, Mark Merrow faced Skip of the Body Donnas, uh, Merrow advancing, and uh, Owen Hart 
uh, with the cast, um, actually advanced over Yokozuna, his former tag team championship partner, in the opening round, pinning him in three minutes, 58 seconds, moving to the quarterfinals against Mark Merrill. So from there, again, Vader got the bye to the pay-per-view. Jake Roberts beats Justin Bradshaw on Superstars. We see a clip of that on the pay-per-view broadcast itself. Steve Austin beats Savio Vega on Raw in a match where he debuts the Stone Cold Stunner. Stone Cold Stunner, yes. So talk about more historic shit going down. Um, As if you needed more. I know. And Mark Merrill beats Owen Hart to advance, setting up our semifinals on the pay-per-view. Vader versus Jake Roberts to face the winner. Uh, the winner of that match to face the winner of uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mark Merrill, which, of course, opens the uh, the pay-per-view. As for Bob Holly, let's... <laughs> oh, 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 shit. You gotta tell me in advance. Well, I kinda, I'm kind of calling an audible here. I don't even know. I, I have a vague memory of him saying something about King of the Ring here. Um, oh, you know, just, uh, just take your time. Take your time. All right, well, we're, we're in position here. And uh, we want to we want to get you ready. Um, um, <laughs> shit, where is everything? I don't know where I am. Let's I'm ra- so nervous I'm gonna now. Rain down the pain. I'm so fucking nervous. Ah! Rain Come down on! the pain. He, he remembers. Uh, what does he remember, boss? Huh? Does he remember the the song by any chance? Does he remember the the riffs, the, the takes, the <laughs> the scorched earth fucking venom? A fire-breathing takes. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Almost there, almost there. Oh, it's dead air. It's your, it's your fault. No, it's mine, actually. I know. Well, it's yeah, mine, I know. It's mine. I, I wasn't expecting fucking, you know. Maybe you don't have to do it every time. It's fine. All right. It's got to happen. I'm going to read then. You ready? Here I go. Wait. wait Here I wait. go. You got you to gotta say, you got to say this. You got to start off. You got to say, and and we reach up. To the lap's bookshelf and grab. You got to say that first. So and we then reach to the lapsed bookshelf here in our 1996 King of the Ring coverage and grab the hardcore truth. Which, but hold on, I, I didn't hear you. Uh, what did you say? Can you say that again? The hard. From, from the beginning? We reach you up on the lap. We reached Wait, up. Hold to, on. What? You reach where? I'm not going to do this all day, son. Do it now. Uh, we reach to the lapsed bookshelf here in our King of the Ring 1996 coverage and we bring to you. The Hardcore Truth. Everything changed in the middle of 96 when it came out the National Hall of Sign with the opposition. WCW had gaining ground and were trying to sign a lot of our guys, but everybody in the locker room was shocked and hauling match quit. I couldn't believe it. After all, Vince had done for them. They showed absolutely no loyalty. Before they got to the WWF, they were nobody. Vince took care of them, paid them well, made them who they were, and they shit on them. Loyalty didn't mean a damn thing to those guys. They had been pushed to the moon and they beat everybody on the roster, and then boom, they were gone. All the other boys in the roster worked hard, put all in Nash over, and then they just upped and left. They were making tons of money while none of us were making any. They deserved to have their asses kicked. Being a bunch of jackasses, they <laughs> couldn't just right. leave the company without doing something stupid, too. I got back from another tour in Europe, and Jerry Briscoe told me what had happened at Madison Square Garden on Kevin and Scott's last night with the company. Sean and Kevin worked together. Sean is the babyface. Kevin is the heel. After the match was over, Kevin got up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, then Scott, another babyface, did what he did. Uh, Hunter was standing in Gorilla with Vince and Jerry and said, should I go out there and join him? 
He knew that Jerry would have wanted to stop him, yes. so he was looking to Vince for approval. Maybe it was because Sean was his golden boy, and he wanted to piss him off. But apparently Vince looked at Hunter didn't say a thing. Hunter went off and joined his buddies in the ring. Hunter was a heel and had fought Scott earlier in the night. Suddenly all those guys were in front of the audience shaking hands and hugging and doing their little click hand sign like a bunch of fucking idiots. <laughs> Think think of his face, picture his face, hands on hips, his hardcore holly, all salty and saucy. Jerry wanted to rip Hunter apart. He and Vince were both pissed. Management couldn't do anything to Hall and Nash because they were leaving. They wouldn't do anything to Sean because he was over, making the company a lot of money, and I'm sure there was something going on behind closed doors with Vince, too. He doesn't fucking care. (laughs) He gets the fucking flamethrower out at the slightest provocation. Yes. I mean, this has nothing to do with him in the grand math of it, and he um, is just scorched earth. Yes. He's going yes. nuclear. He's a fire-breathing dragon is what he is. Hunter took the fall. He was scheduled to win King of the Ring tournament, so they took that away from him and made him do jobs for a couple of months. Steve Austin ended up winning the King of the Ring that year and took off. I don't think the punishment fit the crime for Hunter. Sure, he lost a bunch of matches for a while, but he didn't do a job to me or any of the other guys who could have gained from it. If he'd been made to do a job to me, that would have made a statement, especially Stud busted my ass, putting him over so much the summer before. After a couple of months, they figured he'd paid his dues and they gave him the Intercontinental title. That sure showed him. Fuck yeah. King, king, king. So, I thought he said something about uh, Steve Austin. Who cares? He just fucking put the howitzer out, per usual. (laughs) For a guy that I absolutely hate as a wrestler, his shit is so fucking funny. Oh, he's incredible. I fucking hate Bob Holly, but God damn it. Oh. He always brings the goods in that fucking book. on people. And that's like, yep. you know, Bob Holly, he, he's every wrestler when they yes. strip away the bullshit. You know, yes. he's, he's what every wrestler actually is like in private, you know, talking about their colleagues, you know, shitting on them, shitting Just, on them, oh. being annoyed by them, pretending. And now it's even worse because the business has this whole like veneer of everyone getting along and it being a team right, and right. everyone being happy go lucky Instagram pals. And they all fucking hate each other. They all talk shit. You know what I mean? They all feel like someone's getting their money. Oh, yeah. Give me a fucking break. Nobody's happy. So Bob Holly is every man. Bob Holly is your favorite wrestler in every meaning, in every sense of the term. So Bob Holly is your man. That's correct. He is every man. Uh, the only thing I asked Vince during our meeting, Triple H wrote, was that I get his assurance, like he said, that this was all done. Um, I needed to know one day he was going to consider that enough, give me the opportunity to shine. I needed him to tell me that this was something he could get past. Yes, this is over right now. Well, that's putting the cart before the horse, Vince. How do you know it's over? <laughs> you have to do your punishment, do your time. But between you and me personally, this issue is over. Done. Forgiven. I took his word, accepted my punishment, and got ready for the day when my opportunity would come again. My punishment went on for six months, a year. I don't know exactly because it wasn't like I was called back in the office one day and told, okay, we're putting your career back on track. When I look back on the whole thing, and this is something I never would have seen while it was going on, I'm actually glad. Isn't that Vince, man? He punishes you and he makes you glad he did. Yes. Yes. This all went. Yeah. Just think about it. I mean, you're better off than if you just, listen, if you just been, if we just, the push had continued, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have been where you are now. But you came back to the stable. You came but back to you, daddy. I mean, you, 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 you know, you wouldn't be where you are if the, you know, the timing worked out for you. So, you know, I know you're grateful. I know that you realize that 
in the long run, I knew what was best for you because you're mine. I fucking own you. Let me do my best. And don't you forget that. Let me do my best Darth Vader imitation. You, you be mm. Luke. Okay. Okay. Yeah, right. No, no. Um, Vince is saying this. Oh, 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 I see. He's very much Triple H's daddy. You're my, I'm your daddy. Yes. Paul, your parents never told you what happened to your father. Wow. He's alive, but. <laughs> I'm your fucking daddy. Yes. I am. And I reserve the right to relieve you of your life. I think you, uh. Got that incest angle after all, didn't you, Vince? With it was just with Paul and Steph. There it is. They didn't know they were, they were uh, related. So when I look back on the whole thing, I'm actually glad this all went down the way it did. I now know that I wasn't mature enough performer to become a main event guy at that time. The punishment, oh my God. whatever. The punishment forced me to take a bit longer to get to the top, but I learned so much during that period. I learned how to truly be a man in the business. The tune allowed me not only to improve my work in the ring even more, but also to pick up knowledge outside the ring on the business side of our industry. I was in a much better position to take advantage of the opportunities presented to me when the punishment was over. It prepared me for the rest of my career. When Sean and Jay eventually started Degeneration X, Jay... Uh, I don't know, maybe that's a typo. A group we formed on our programs... So that's I. He, it's supposed to be I. Oh, thank you. Uh, that was based on the click. I was in a match, a much pardon me, better position to capitalize on it. When Sean split and I took over DX, I was way ready to be in that spotlight to lead that group. So how's Shawn Michaels doing? He's WWF champion at this time. You know, he's, mm. he's feeling, you think he's feeling good or do you think he's a fucking wreck? No, no, I think he's a wreck. Let's turn to his book, Heartbreak and Triumph. Ooh. One week later, we're in Florence, South Carolina for the Beware of Dog pay-per-view. Vince called Hunter and me into his office and said that he had received a lot of heat for letting us do the goodbye. All the old-timers were offended, he said. I didn't know it was going to go that far. But you told Hunter it was okay, Jack. Not to do all that, I, I never, didn't. I never said that. That's Vince, yep. okay. Not to do that, I Why didn't. Would I, I mean, not to. How? Listen, it, I said that, I said that, 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 you know, after the fans leave, you could do some kind of reconciliation in the ring, but I would. There is no, no way you said that, Vince. I said that. Why would we ask you permission to do something with no people in the house? I don't know. I didn't ask the question. I just figured you guys were doing one of your weird click things. Right. I don't question you. Yeah, that's for much. sure. <laughs> I just, I, 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 I would never allow Hunter to, to, to do something that I'm not willing to do myself, for myself, or to myself. <laughs> you understand? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just... I don't know where, you know, you're basically telling stories. You're like a child. That's awesome. You're being a, you're being a bitch. How was I supposed right. to know? I was in the ring. Sean, you were the champion. I can't punish listen, you. You're the champion. I can't, listen, I can't, I can't fucking baby you. You're the champion. You have to make some decisions on your own. You have to be responsible. Think about the betterment of the company. Think about the betterment of me. <laughs> well, there it is. He finally <laughs> said it out loud. Sean, you are the champion. I can't punish you, but I want you to apologize to everyone. Hunter, I can punish, and, if I, and I have to. If I don't punish you and show everyone that I'm serious, I'll lose credibility. You're going to have to eat this. And then he hands him a chicken sandwich. Chicken sandwich. <laughs> also, I want you to do something. I'm gonna, <laughs> I need you to 
can you kiss my ass? Like, <laughs> take my pants down and you kiss my ass in front of everybody. I think that's fair. Hunter had been scheduled to win the upcoming King of the Ring tournament, but Vince told him that he wasn't going to hap- that wasn't going to happen. For the next year, all Hunter did was put other people over. I want you to consider this for a second, okay, about, sorry to keep interrupting you, but I want you to consider this regarding sure. wrestling books. How many wrestling books tell the same fucking story? Oh, well, all of them, because they all know that there are certain things people want to hear their take on, and they're going to cover it in their book. <sighs> For sure. It's just like, you know, we hear, we've already heard it from Triple H's point of view. We've heard it from Hardcore Holly's point of view. Now we're going to hear from Shawn Michaels' point of view. And it's basically the same shit. Yes, basically it is. That's exactly right. Except, I love except it. one guy thinks it's bullshit and the other guy thinks he's like some kind of victim. But you right. said, but he right. said, but he said it was okay. Uh, I said nothing. I never said My hands are okay. clean on this one. I swear to God. My mom says that things are okay. Juanita. Yeah. What's her name? Um, Vicky. Vicky. Isn't it? Victoria. Tyson? Vic- well, God damn it, Austin. Angle. <laughs> angle. He said angle. Austin. <laughs> uh, Steve Austin ended up winning King of the Ring, Sean Wright's beating Jake in the finals. I didn't pay much attention to other people's programs, so I didn't know it at the time, but the night he beat Jake was the first night he uttered the phrase, Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Thank you, Sean. This was the beginning of Steve's ascent to the top. Oh, what do you know? Steve was great and deserves all the credit. I never caught on to that one. In the world for becoming the star he did, but it's strange how things work out in this business. Hunter gets in trouble. Steve gets plugged in, and the rest is history. Before Hunter and I went around to apologize to everyone, we we talked. You asked him, didn't you? I asked. Yeah, he said it was fine. He said it was okay. I felt bad for Hunter. He hadn't done anything wrong. Vince turned on us because he was getting a lot of heat, and now Hunter was going to pay the price. I'm sorry, I said, but he's the boss and there's not much we can do. Why would he care about getting heat from the guy, from the older men, from the old timers? Why would he fucking care? It's a good question. Um, Vince McMahon's the boss. Yeah, but I think he he really counts on his ass kissers to stay as ass kissers. And if there's like a mutiny in that circle of people, he counts on to always tell him he's doing the right thing. And yes, sir. And I feel like that would get to him. That would make him feel like the walls are closing in. I don't think we can overstate how much it freaked him out that WCW switched the momentum on him in 1996. You know, like. No, I know. I know. I think it shook his confidence. I think he was like. But, I don't know. It just seems weird to me that 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 so that this would make him such a big thing. Yeah. Like yeah, that, I never that it would done. become like, I guess I guess here here to like. If he actually gave permission, I guess that's where I, what I don't believe. I don't necessarily believe that, that he gave permission. To me, that seems... Well, what it says is, you know, and it's part of the reason we read, you know, multiple perspectives on the same yeah. shit, is the little small omissions, you know, the little small differences in language. And the way Sean yeah. puts it is, you know, Vince didn't say anything. Or that's the way Holly put it. Vince didn't say anything when Triple H asked, should I go out there? And so that was kind of like the tacit, like, I can't say yes, you know? But I'm not saying no, and that's as close as you're going to get to a yes on this because yeah, I need I to, guess. I need to protect. But you know, he he was much the same way about Montreal after that happened. He wasn't like fuck you. I did what I had to do. He had a big meeting with the talent at the next tapings in Maine and told them all about, you know, his his philosophy on why he did what he did. And he was he was disconcerted that people might not yeah. be buying his bullshit. That they might think of him as a Machiavellian fuck. You know. He thinks he's good enough to be a Machiavellian fuck and nobody 
realize it. You know, he really, mm-hmm. he thinks he's mm-hmm. that clever. But there are times where, you know, shit, you know, falls into place in a certain way where you can't hide that, where you've got to show your hand in that regard. And yeah. this is like, you know, I don't get it, but, you know, I think Jim Ross puts his finger on something important when he talks about this click reunion thing. It's like, it's because these guys were dickheads that it pissed people off so much. You know, I think if someone right, right. <laughs> that actually had respect in the locker room came out and shook hands and hugged uh, somebody he wrestled earlier in the night across a babyface heel line, I'm not so sure this would be a a thing. I'm not so sure it would piss off like a Jerry Briscoe as much, you know? Right. Or a right. Jim Cornette who couldn't fucking stand Shawn Michaels, you know? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So that's probably part of it, too. Also, yeah. yeah, I guess you're right. We listened to them and apologized again, he says, about uh, the agents. Every agent, Sean writes, wanted to discuss what we did and tell us why they were offended. Obviously, we didn't take the agent's feelings into consideration. Um, We had some of our greatest moments in the garden. Now we were back to selling it out. We felt like we were a big part of that. It was an honest-to-goodness, heartfelt moment for us, and that's all we wanted to convey. We didn't mean to offend anyone. Whether they liked me or not, they respected me, were patient with me, and helped me with my career. He's talking about the agents there. Yeah, yeah. So all that is to say, King of the Ring 96 would have been a lot different if it wasn't for that episode. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say. Jesus. Who knows where we'd be today. But slot in the Texas rattlesnake. We turn to the stone cold truth, his WWE tome. I was still living in Atlanta while I was working oh. with WWE. And I was watching HBO one night. This HBO documentary about the Iceman. A serial killer for hire named Richard Kalinsky. Kuklinski. Please prepare Kuklinski, boss, for the solar system. He used to put, and then have your finger on Austin Stone Cold as well. He used to put his victims in freezers, Steve recalls, to keep the bodies preserved. Then he'd finally dump them out a year later. Man, I watched that show, and it got my gears spinning because I was a heel, and here was this cold-blooded guy who didn't give a damn about anybody. Not that I approved of what he did. It was just that cold. I don't have a conscience attitude that attracted me. I saw something in this psycho that I could use in my in-ring presentation. I could, Mm. as perverse as it sounds relate to this animal hit Kolkinski. How do you feel about killing? I don't. Oh, fucking A. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't have a feeling one way or the other. 
I think if I had a choice, I wouldn't. If he had a choice. Oh. So that's who Steve Austin, the impressionable Steve Austin, searching for. Okay. I, 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 gotta, I gotta just tell you this. This is the fucking funniest. Did you look at his Wikipedia? Who's? Kuklinski's? Uh, briefly. Under that main thing, it says, Occupation, Hitman, comma, Film distribu- Distributor. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of movies made about this guy. Maybe he distributed one of them, I guess? I, I guess, maybe. I don't know. I'll, I'll the fucking take a look. That was a mob, I, hit, mob hitman, basically, but he was obviously a yeah. fucking psychopath at the same time. And that was what was so wild about the documentary about him, was that he, he looked back on all the bodies... He collected with such a distance, such a lack of remorse, almost as if like he couldn't, he wasn't hiding or suppressing emotions. He just literally did not have access to emotions about killing people. And that's why he was of great utility to, I think, the Chicago mob was because he just killed motherfuckers and wouldn't bother him for a second. And so he went away for a long time, but he became quite famous because documentaries were made about him and his and psychological sketches of him abounded. And Steve Austin caught wind of one of these watching TV at the house, at the damn house, (laughs) while he's frustrated with the ringmaster and where his career is situated. And so he starts pushing in this direction. He tries to adopt that personality and turn the ringmaster into stone-cold Steve Austin. And we'll talk, and we have talked, and we'll continue to talk about where the stone-cold piece of it came from. Mm. But if you hit Austin stone-cold, this is a piece of tape from a superstar show at the very, very, very beginning of him switching from the ringmaster to the stone-cold character. And, you know, it's not the... It's not the big, wild, loud-mouth Texan that we see on the stage at King of the Ring at the very beginning. It's a lot closer to what we just heard from Kolkinski. All right. A million-dollar dream. That's a nice way of putting it. I look at it as cutting the flow of blood to a man's brain. I'm sure you think that's cold. It is stone cold. Damn. What's he going for there? That's much. That, I mean, that, that's an, that's <clears throat> that's an impersonation of of Kuklinski. Totally. Yep. Yeah, that was. Um, there weren't many shows where he was trying to basically imitate the voice. Of um, Kuklinski, but yeah. that, that's one of them. And um, that's yep. included in yep. the uh, Steve Austin, the bottom line documentary that they have on Peacock on his um, his career. Wow. And um, yeah, so he starts putting this idea together. And as he said in his book, I pitched my concept to Debbie Bonazio. Oh, I'm sorry, Bonnet. Bonanzio, senior vice president of WWE Creative Services. She was in charge of gimmick characterization. Fuck. Oh, my God. I'm annoyed so much. They would have like this, we've got a piece of talent coming in, we've got to ship it off to creative services for some ideas. And they'd come back with <laughs> sketches of the fucking outfit. And, we have, um, we need to create a, a service for creative oh, uh, input, output, and development. Typical Vince, you know, like, let's create a department that makes me feel like yeah. a real TV I, show. I mean, I, we, basically, you know, we, we, we cover, you know, within this, we cover a lot of ground, but I mean, in, in our... <clears throat> In our attempt to diversify and to create and optimize in in uh, vertical ascension, we are looking at kind of um, uh, uh, departmentalizing different areas of the company. And I believe that in you know regarding uh, writing and, and regarding characters and the uh, the different 
areas of talent and product that where they combine, I believe we could create a service for the uh, the talent so that they're not always kind of coming up to you know other people who have other responsibilities. I think we can create a a um, a creative uh, 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 hub, if you will, where they can talk about story and uh, they can talk about about character and development and gimmicks and, and things like that that can kind of push them to to make it basically create an efficiency um, and a, 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 a chain of command, uh, you know, to kind of integrate into the, the current system that we have and we can create uh, and, and empower, really, the talent to create um, their own their own characterizations within this organic the optimal service. It's interesting. You're almost describing something, something like a what a creative services department almost. I think I think that is exactly what I, I think creative a creative service department is what we what we deserve in the WWE at this stage. So Steve pitches his concept to Deb, Debbie Bonanzio, senior VP WWE Creative Services. She was in charge. He writes of gimmick characterization. Yeah. And they started faxing me pages and pages of names. But oh, my God. The names. That's, that's where it starts, right? Oh names. Oh, my God. They're so fucking ridiculous. But the names just weren't working. How about the $6 billion man, This is the same Austin. brain trust that spit out all those gimmicks like Freddie Joe Floyd and Duke Drosy and the goon and who. And How about Harold Harrison? Oh. He's just, he's a guy who goes to the office every day. He's just a, a typical uh, Joe Schmo. Yeah, How about that? perfect for the Stone Cold characterization. What, uh, what about, um, what about, uh, <sighs> Sam Spiegel? Oh, my God. I just name him Brugger's Bagels. Hey, let me ask you a question, boss. Have you ever heard the names that they came back to Steve with? I have never. I think I've heard a couple, but not not a lot of them. They were all temperature. I would like more. They were all temperature-based things, Steve oh, writes. Oh, my God. Like Fang McFrost. <laughs> Fang McFrost? Yep. You know, I never understand how stupid. What the fuck is wrong like, with them? I, I just don't understand why, Stand down. why people can't come up with good ideas. Why they come up with such patently bad ones and even put them on paper. Yeah. You know, it's such a check-the-box exercise. Ivan the Terrible. <laughs> Ice dagger okay names like that the names were horrible our creative group did not feel my new character idea i was thinking man they don't understand where i'm coming from on this i could just hear howard finkel the ring announcer saying ice dagger (laughs) accompanied by his famous sled dog nantucket (laughs) or non-reality based horse manure because he right. can't say horse shit in his book at the time, apparently. So, back at the house. The names come in. And Steve is still married to Jeannie Clark, uh, Lady oh, Blossom yes. at the time. and She's, in fact, pregnant with uh, uh, Steve's soon-to-be daughter at the time. And um, she writes in her book, Shattered, or Through the Shattered Glass, or whatever it's called. I love I consider myself the world's leading expert on wrestlers' wives' biographies, from Julie Hart to to to, to Martha to uh, what else? We Diana. Have. Yes, we have Diana. Did you? 
<laughs> to Jeannie Clark, to uh, Triple H, <laughs> to Linda Mike Tyson, Linda Hogan. It's just my favorite stuff. It really is because you definitely get to get a uh, a different a different look, a different look. Just them at home, you know, being slobs. Yep. Yep. You know, basically. What was it like? What After calling like the WWF front office, she writes, Steve explained his new idea and how he envisaged the direction of his character. He was told that the marketing team would discuss his notion and return with a suitable new handle, which could replace his dreaded ringmaster name. We were astounded by the creative team's suggestions as they sent through a fax listing potential new names for Steve to consider. The team had taken the temperature element of the Kuklinski precedent to form a series of names that would give Steve the lethal credibility he had been seeking. As soon as we received the fax, Steve called Brian Pillman. And put him on the speakerphone. He read mm. he read out the options that the Federation had devised for him. Otto von Ruthless. Ice Dagger. Otto von Ruthless? Oh. Imagine Steve Austin calling Brian Pillman on the speakerphone in 1996. You gotta hear this. <laughs> Holy shit, Brian Pillman. <laughs> Steve! Steve, what do you got? <laughs> I can't believe they did that. What a horde of horse shit! <laughs> hey, by the way, I don't even like my own family! <laughs> <laughs> Brian! Effin- <laughs> Brian! Well, I can't even do it. All right. Uh, Steve called Brian Pillman, put him on the speaker. Uh, Otto Von Ruthless, Lice Dagger, Fang McFrost listed Steve <laughs> as he waited for Brian's response after a short. Fang McFrost. <laughs> I think we need to make Fang McFrost shirts. We, we have a shrug shadow one. We do. Ice dagger. I got to write these down. These are fucking money in the bank. Hashtag laughs. I know. I that's a that's a great that's a great little subline to do. You know. Yeah, just like to the, have um, the abandoned names, all, like, like potential potential gimmicks. We get an Axel one for Diesel when he was going to come back to WWF, oh, yeah. uh, WCW rather. Um, hold on. So we have. God, there's so many that I haven't even had a chance yeah, to do. Of course. ProWrestlingTees.com slash the lapsed fan, by the way. McFrost. Um, Ice Dagger. Yes. Uh, go ahead. Oh, and. Uh, oh, Otto. Uh, yeah, forget that one. Oh, okay. That one's not as good. You can also make a creative services shirt. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, uh, ProWrestlingTees.com slash the lapsed fan, your headquarters for shirts that. You know, key off the show, just a deep archive at this point, of course, just like the podcast. Oh, it's including it's your section 11 subparagraphy shirt from the Bash of the Beach 2000 journey that we just wrapped up. That's get it there. There should be a couple for 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 Cinemat fans. Uh, there will be one coming out. Um, wrestling. It's bent. I guess indeed from uh, our good friend Pat Roach. That's right. Teaching us the ways of the British slang and the ways of the cinema and the ways of the ring. And uh, we're talking about Ice Dagger. We're talking about a cold one. We're talking about Stone Cold. We're talking about Fang McFrost. We got to be popping the top on a fucking Pabst because we're. Oh, fuck yeah. Balls deep in the 1996 King of the Ring. Are we not? That's about as ice cold as you can get is a nice ice cold Pabst fresh from your refrigerator and your local alcoholic dealer. And the weather's starting to turn in our part oh, of the country, boss. You must be about time reaching for that fucking red, white, and blue can. Oh, it's wonderful. I like. I do like. You know, we've got a. We've got a. For the first time in our life, we have a second fridge. You know. Oh yeah. And and it's just it's 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 fun opening up the fridge, and there is just you know that second fridge lined with that 
at PBR. Our good friends at Pabst, keeping us stocked for the summer season and ready to keep you stocked as well as members of the solar system. Uh, This is a beverage brand that gets what we're doing, that understands that our link with the audience is true and genuine and the envy of podcasts everywhere. It will continue that way. And so long as PBR recognizes and puts cash on the table, your co-chairman will fully endorse your decision to crack open Pabst. Make a statement. Be about it. This summer and beyond, it's that fucking cast. It's that fucking Pabst fan. Yep. Bringing to you, among Fuck other yeah. things, this coverage of King of the Ring 1996. And so Jeannie Clark continues waiting for Brian's response. After Steve read off the names, after a short pause, she writes, the pair burst into hysterics. They could not believe that these were legitimate uh, suggestions from the Connecticut Brain Trust, but they were. Within minutes, it was contagious. I was now in stitches simply at the cacophony of Steve's jock guffaws and Brian's raspy cackles. It was not long until the laughs faded and Steve was still stuck with the quandary. He was sitting at the edge of our bed, staring at the floor in meditation. Being English, I did what we Brits frequently do when we are faced with a dilemma. I went to the kitchen and put on the kettle for a good old cuppa. Here we go. Okay, calm down with the British stuff. Jesus Christ. Um, Okay. Yeah. I returned to the bedroom and put Steve's tea next to him and went about tidying the room. Despite the of course tea, you did. Yes. Despite the tea being placed nearby, Steve never moved. Motionless, he just sat there without drinking a sip. I could tell he needed reassurance, so I went over to him. Don't worry, something will come up. Just drink your tea before it gets stone cold. Stone cold. Now, I've heard Steve tell this story, but I haven't heard it told as happening moments after the Fang McFrost phone call. But yeah, no, that's fucking awesome. Maybe it did go down that way. I can see how he would be in the frame of mind of searching, yes. searching for something that sounded more catchy than the dreck he just heard on the, on, on the phone. Within a split second, I turned around with excitement. That's your name. Stone cold with wide eyes. Steve looked up at me, grinning in disbelief. I could immediately tell that he loved the name. Oh, hell yeah. After weeks of hunting, including odd, Damn, Buck. <laughs> he had finally sur- snared the elusive identity that would give him a chance at stardom. Now, I love it. I I wonder if Steve would agree that she said that's your name or he said, oh, it sounds like a hell of a name. Because I've heard both. I've heard like she said it and it sparked his thought yeah. process or that she straight up said you should call yourself Stone Cold. I told a few guys about this and damn, Steve says about the names. They ribbed me terribly about it. I got frustrated as hell. Then one day I was just sitting there in the kitchen thinking about the name thing. So let's get his version. Jeannie, my wife, who's English, drank tea all the time. Knowing how frustrated I was, she made me a cup. Ah, she said, putting the tea down in front of me. Don't worry about it. Just go ahead and drink your tea before it gets stone cold. Then she paused with this light in her eyes and said, that's your new name. Okay, so we have confirmation. All right, there we go. Stone cold Steve Austin. I raised my eyes up from the cup of tea and said, yeah. After I'd had a chance to think about it. Oh, yeah. That's not bad. I wondered if I might not be too long. Stone Cold Steve Austin. That's four words, I said, but I liked it. It had a ring to it. Those four words together. Originally, I was thinking about using the Iceman name, but Iceman King Parsons had done that in Dallas and world-class wrestling, so I couldn't just take his name. Anyway, I pitched the Stone Cold idea to someone at TV. They told me to call Jerry Briscoe and JR. I called Jerry, explained the concept, and finished up saying, I want to be this guy, and I want to call him Stone Cold Steve Austin. Jerry said, okay, let me check through the normal channels. Oh God! Sure, that's what he said. Did we? Did we? Did we? Did we pass this by Debbie? Debbie, <laughs> Debbie. Yeah, Debbie's not going to be happy that we didn't take her suggestions again. 
Yeah, Debbie, we really haven't needed you until we signed 10 Smoky Mountain cast-offs to job on fucking challenge. But that's fine. Uh, he called somebody else, and they put it through legal to see if it wasn't trademarked or something. Eventually, Jerry called me back and said, you're cleared, you're stone cold Steve Alston. I was thinking, oh, hell yeah. And they... All right, well... And they just... Hold on, hold on, huh? Yeah, that's Jim Ross. That's true. And they just started introducing me that way. That's. Do you remember this? All of a sudden, he was called Stone yes. Cold Steve Austin. yes. I do. It was very, it was very sudden, um, but it did, I did, it did kind of make sense because it happened, didn't happen right after um, uh, uh, DiBiase was gone. Yes, it did. Yeah. So it, it did make sense. I, I, I kind of like, was like, all right, now that he's gone, he can be, it also very, you know, because he looks so different without his hair. It also was to me the first time, okay, they are acknowledging that it is Steve Austin now. Okay, good. Very good. Yeah, that's true. The ringmaster was just the ringmaster. Ring, you know, right? They just called him the ringmaster. Yep. So that was uh, that was pretty big, and he was he was still bald under Ted DiBiase's tutelage, but uh, he was he was bald. No, but he had like a little buzz cut. Yeah, throughout the whole thing, he never yeah. was totally bald with DiBiase. I think he was. Oh, and he had no goatee. Oh, jeez, that's fucking. He had no goatee. He was clean shaven, and had like the, a very very like probably about less than a centimeter of hair. You know, you know what that was inspired by? That haircut he had. What? Uh, Bruce Willis's haircut in Pulp Fiction. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, because he he knew. Okay. We'll talk about it more later, but you know, he knew his hair was going in WCW. It was thinning. Oh yeah, it was going all right. It was all stringy, so he cut it real short. The Hollywood blondes cut, and even then, the hairline was receding like a motherfucker. So he um, he still wanted to do some kind of hair, and he saw the movie, and he said, "I'll go with that." instead of totally bald, and then one day he just says, fuck it, and goes all the way. There was no big build-up or explanation or anything like that, he writes. There were no vignettes or interviews to provide some background on this cold-blooded guy. The name just started catching on, and I was Stone Cold Steve Austin from Victoria, Texas. But I still wasn't going anywhere. I had the name, but no one knew how I had gotten so cold-blooded. I had to get this thing kick-started somehow. Austin 316 all came about at the King of the Ring pay-per-view on June 23rd, 1996. When WWE announcer Doc Hendricks, Michael P.S. Hayes, a former fabulous freebird, told me in the locker room that Jake the Snake Roberts was going to cut a religious promo on me. Jake, who had a string of personal issues, had been preaching in the ring lately about how he turned his life around. That got me thinking about how I would respond after the show was over. In my first tournament elimination match at King of the Ring, I got kicked in the mouth pretty badly by Mark Merrow. And yes, he did, wow. boss. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty brutal. Um, it was one of those... I mean, um, it was like his lip is so fat. You know, and there's blood and like it's in his teeth and shit. I mean, it's 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 funny. It, it, it's fantastic. It's actually fantastic for for what he was scheduled to do. I'm kind of here to say that Steve Austin's most important moments coincide with him bleeding like crazy. Absolutely. I mean, all the way through. No question. Kind of wild when you think about it. I mean, it, it, it makes you realize what a badass he is because right. He is he is physically he is physically in suffering, but he will still fight his way through. Yeah, yeah, and it's and true. Most likely win, and it it lends it you know lends that undercurrent of credibility when Jr. goes off about toughest sob in the WWF and all that. Yeah, actually, have you know got dropped in his head by Owen Hart and kept wrestling and came back right. from that. Yeah, that was a huge part of it. Like you know, as awesome as. He was with picking the right words at the right time, the right facial expressions, the, the Vince feud and hitting the perfect notes and all of that stuff and knowing where to go at, at the time the audience wanted him to go there. 
that was a huge part of the presentation is that he went through real tribulations. You know, obviously the WrestleMania 13 blade job wasn't some sort of accident that he fought through, but still it was, it was a gory scene that we felt a different way about him after it was over when he still was standing, you know, even though he was a heel, yeah. it was fucking awesome. And that started in a lot of ways at the 1996 King of the Ring where he fought through this bloody lip. And it picked up a lot more lore later, uh, as we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, it happens when Mark Miro does, uh, I think it's called the Japanese rolling reverse crotch hold, whatever it is, where you like jump, <laughs> you put both your feet under the armpits and roll you back. It's, yeah. So when you yeah, did yeah. that. Oh, right. Like a pinning combination. Exactly. And one of the sure. feet went up too high when it got under Austin's armpit and kicked him right in the lip. Um, so that got me. wrong. That's right. Um, after I beat him, I had to go to the emergency room and get stitched up. Now, this is a fun little thing about King of the Ring that is right. weird. Did Steve Austin actually leave the premises of the building in Milwaukee and go to a hospital to get stitched up between both of his King of the Ring matches? I'm going to say no. I don't think he went to an emergency room. I don't think he left to go to a hospital. I think he just went into an ambulance that they had on site. Right. I believe that. Because I've heard him say it almost like in a cute way, like when I got off that ambulance, man, I walked right in the to make it sound like he was transported back to the building. Yeah, yeah. For what it's worth, I looked at like a street view right around the arena, which is called something much different now. Um, I don't see a hospital like proximate to uh, it. JR once said on his podcast that Steve went across the street to the hospital. It's it's weird. I, I think... I don't buy that. I, I mean, because they've got doctors on site. Yeah, you can stitch... The, stitching is like... The, right. The least they can do for, for somebody. It's, it, you know, if anything, I mean, did... Did they report that, that Jake Roberts did the same thing? I don't know about that. Yeah, he seemed to I mean, be more you know, He had his busted ribs. He faved one, but yeah, I know. I think, in a lot of it started too, because I think in the original, yeah, indeed, the original Observer report on this show, Meltzer went ahead and said that even though they said on television he went to a hospital, he was actually just stitched up backstage. So I think this became yeah. like a thing to keep up the the lore that Steve Austin left the building and came back, stitched up, but I yeah. I don't vote that that happened, and I don't think... okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it did either. It doesn't make sense. Um, this was going on while Jake Roberts, he writes, was wrestling Vader. I came back to the arena right away, never missing a beat, and got ready for my match against Jake, who had won his match. Just made more made me more intense because I was booked to win the thing, but I had to be there to do it. When I did my infamous 316 promo after winning the King of the Ring, that was a strong-ass promo, and none of that stuff was scripted. At the time, the Doc Hendricks stuck that mic in my face. He had no idea what I was going to say, and what neither wow. did Vince. JR or the guys in the TV truck. It all just came out. We know the promo, and we'll certainly be playing it for you when we deep dive this son of a bitch. Oh, for sure. Um, no question. That, the whole thing's there. But uh, it all happened that night at King of the Ring. By the next night, Austin 316 signs and posters had already started showing up in the crowd. When WWE came to me with the idea of doing a Stone Cold Steve Austin t-shirt, I said, just print a black t-shirt with plain white lettering, put Austin 316 on the front and a skull on the back with Stone Cold written on it. So there you go. If you claim to have come up with that T-shirt, you're saying Steve Austin is a liar. Wait, say again? If anybody out there claims to have come up with Austin 316 oh. T-shirts besides him. Oh, okay. Somebody says you're saying Steve Austin is a liar. No, no, no. I was like, I was like what? I, I love it. How fucking brilliant is that? Like, to, you know, sometimes those ideas, and, I've, and you know, you get them every now and again. It's that simple, oh, the yeah. simple little fucking thing. Absolutely. Makes the biggest fucking noise. Do you remember when the 316 signs started popping up? Um, I, no. I kind of remember it being like, wow. I don't. He said that, 
and I would have forgotten it if someone in the crowd didn't have a sign. I, I kind of remember that being like, oh, yeah, he did say that. Like, it was impactful when he said it that night, but I can't say by the end of King of the Ring I remembered that exact line. It was the existence of the signs everywhere. You know, it's weird because I've watched that show so many times that I can't tell you if that stuck with me or not. Right, it's hard to remember. Because I've literally, I mean, it was literally, you know, in in reenacting a, a um, you know, pay-per-view with my, with my figures, it was a go-to show. As far as, did you do the same matches? Huh? You would imitate the same matches with the toys? Imitate the matches, but with different, you know, based on my own stories with different wrestlers put in their places. I see. You know, like one time when I was doing my my big, um, when I had just done my big NWO thing, like I used Hogan, like I didn't even treat it like a, like a like a pay, like a a tournament. I just treated it like a regular pay per view, and I had Hogan win the championship. I don't know why I remember this, but I fucking do. I had Hogan. I, I used the um to the uh, uh the King of the Ring final as the template for my Hogan just wiping the ass clean with whoever was the WWE champion. I see. At the time. I see. And winning the belt, and then. Like Shawn Michaels had a non-title. Maybe maybe he had the King of the Ring. Maybe I did make a King of the Ring, and he, he had the King of the Ring, won the King of the Ring in the main event or something like that. I don't remember, but yeah, that's what I would do with, with my pay-per-views, use them as templates for other ways to concoct my own storylines oh, wow. and stuff. Yeah. I would just use it for... Uh, a- after a while, it was just, it was just kind of like, to, to actually... Some t- after a while, like doing my own shows... It became exhausting because they could go on for days. Yeah. You know, like I could have a show, a pay-per-view, because I just have these crazy matches that I wasn't feeling in my heart, but I needed to get over in my mind. Wow. And I would have a match go on for like a half hour until until it got over. But the TV... Having the, sh- the the tape going would bring discipline Having the to tape, your time. It gave me a limit here. It's like okay, now right. finally, you know, I can, I can just do a a three hour show as opposed to a a show that lasts a week because uh, I can't fucking, you know, because I get exhausted fucking booking matches on the fly. You know that came in handy playing Royal Rumbles. I'll tell you that. Let sure. it, letting the tape be your countdown. You don't have to worry about yep. it. Yep. Yep. But uh. Yeah, so I do remember the signs. I remember the signs being all over the place more than you would expect for a guy in his position on the card. It's a big deal to win King of the Ring, but I didn't sense that like Mabel and like Owen that he was going to get a title shot. You know what I mean? I didn't sense that that was next for him at uh, whatever the next show was. So it it was kind of weird. In fact, he ends up in the fucking free-for-all match against Yokozuna at the next pay-per-view, SummerSlam. Not even on the main pay-per-view card. So it's really um well the next pay-per-view was no he's on the he's on the next show. The next big 4 I mean, yeah. Oh, the next big 4, yes, you're right. I should have said he was he was on uh well, it was big 5 back then. Big 5, right. That's right. Cuz King of the Ring was was a part of the big 5. But he was on International Incident? Yeah, I think he wrestled Mero again. Sounds right. Yep. He had the weird tights on. The one that had like Remember he had oh he had God. the tights, the, the black tights that had like the weird 
almost like a bird on his ass oh, or something I like that. I hated that. Yeah, it was weird. Didn't uh, yeah. really fit in with the character at all. Yep, absolutely. So uh, the shirt probably outsold any shirt in the history of wrestling, he writes. That's why I think we need to get back to the way it used to be, with guys spitting out their own ideas and learning how to develop a character, because Austin 316 would have never happened or even been come up with if I was waiting for writers to tell me what to say. It all came from my heart as soon as I learned what Jake Roberts did in his pre-match promo. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, he went to Doc Hendricks and asked him, like, what'd he say? And he characterized it for him, and that was wow. it. That was all the spark he needed. Wrestlers are not trained actors. To be successful, a wrestler must truly feel and understand who he is as a performer. If he really feels that he can deliver a promo that is both believable and entertaining, if he's simply memorizing his lines, the promo fails much more often than not. I do not have... I do have to say that even after I did my 316 promo at King of the Ring and I introduced my new catchphrases, Vince still didn't listen to all of my ideas. I don't think he had ever pushed anybody like me before. I'm not saying I was the best. I was just a different breed of cat. I was just trying to be a heel. But I was accepted universally as a babyface. This was new ground for me, too. Yeah, I think that's this might be the first guy, Steve Austin, pop this show. Yes. When he says yes. he's going to win the WWF championship. They're like, yes, yes you fucking... Yeah, you punch yep. above your weight. You he's because he's like because he's he's a guy. Look at him compared to all the other the other heels in the business, and he's a guy who's literally going to kick ass and take take names. That's what he wants to do. And you know, British Bulldog, he wasn't. He, you know, he was he wasn't a tough talker like that. You know, he was right. just a guy. Owen Hart was a sniveling little worm. Um, Vader was tough, but I don't know. You know, Vader. You know, Vader was just even even though they 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 were pushing him, he was just kind of misused until international incident. Absolutely, he you was, know, yeah, miscast just, like, yeah, like just this guy, like you know, and like I was actually surprised they were gonna that, that when he won. Uh, you know, when I remember hearing that he won inter- the the main event of International Incidents, I'm like, are they ever going to do anything with this fucking guy? <laughs> like, I, know, seriously. I was waiting for him to be a to be a world title contender from the very beginning, and it was like they did nothing with him. You know, he this was the first. This is the, Austin was like the first heel that felt like a real, like a threatening individual who I feel would hurt me for no reason. Right. Right. Yeah, there was like as a fan, a heightened danger to it. He took that serial killer thing, but he added, you know, just a brash trash talk. He wasn't psychotic. He was just like he was just a fucking dog with a bone. That's what he was. Right. Right. And And he was a a very, a very confident, arrogant guy who backed it up was what made it different. It's right. Yeah, because, he, you know. Everybody's building their character for this guy around the fact that he's so sound in the ring. It's like, well, shit, what if instead of that being his whole identity, that's like the the extra layer to him that makes him more dangerous than all the rest yeah. of the tough-talking heels is that he actually knows how to really conduct himself in that ring. So it made him doubly dangerous. It was kind of fortuitous for him that it came in the order that it did. He didn't have to, he didn't start out as a psycho and then have to, you know, show that he could wrestle. He started out showing he could wrestle and built on that. And that's an important foundation. So you know he can go. You know, so it's like this is a guy that there's no limitations here. You know, there's no reason not to believe him when he says he's main event material. Um, and as yeah. for Vader, one of the things that happened to him after, of course, he came into the 96 Rumble um, was they were going to program him against Yokozuna and he was supposed to wrestle Yoko right. at WrestleMania. 
But Yoko got so goddamn fat oh, God. that they just relegated him to tags only, and he ended up doing a six-man tag at WrestleMania 12 with Camp Cornette. And that kind of put the whole first stage of how they were going to push Vader into kind of like this neutral zone where they weren't quite sure if they were going to go with it. There's a lot of audibles called as far as like putting him in matches that weren't necessarily the expectation at the last minute, including the Warrior yeah. series uh, on the house shows. So I think that that probably had something to do with why it just seemed like they were missing the mark with presenting Vader as a threat right away because what they had in mind for him kind of collapsed. And then he had the attitude issues too. That clearly uh, JR still Obviously. sticks in his craw. Obviously, he could have been, he, you know, you don't want to ruin Japan. <laughs> I yeah. want Japan. I own Japan. Yeah, that'll be fine. Don't worry about that, Leon. It's a wholly owned subsidiary now. The whole country. <laughs> I've purchased Japan. That's right. I kept my hair short at the time, but I wasn't happy with it thinning out. More as time went on. I did my 316 debut with Jake Roberts at King of the Ring with very short hair. I don't. He looks bald to me. He looks bald to me on this show. Mm. He's got a beard, which is so weird. He's he's got facial yeah. hair all yeah, the way he's up. Not, yeah, yeah, he's not there yet. It's very weird. It's like from a distance, it looks like he just has a goatee. But when the camera zooms in on him at King of the Ring, you can see he's going for a full beard, actually, all the way up to the other uh, ear. Um, but the sudden change in my demeanor called for a few adjustments in the way I looked. Stone Cold Steve Austin needed some new visuals. Now I wonder. Agreed. I wonder if Jeannie Clark has found a way to take credit for the Austin 316 catchphrase as well. I hope so. Steve doesn't talk about this. While he gives her her props for coming up with the Stone Cold nickname, as we just demonstrated by the record, as we tend to do around here, um, he doesn't mention her at all when he tells the origin story of the 316 catchphrase. Or as we hear, he's backstage. He hears that Jake Roberts is spouting religious stuff, and that's what he's going to key off of. And he talks about where, and we will talk about where, 316 as a notion, was kind of already in the air um, as, as it regards something that would be said or featured on sports broadcasts. We'll get more into that in just really? a moment. Yeah. But uh, so it makes some sense that he'd have a place to draw from. But to hear Jeannie Clark tell it, she's back home, deeply involved with a church group. So she had someone to talk to while Steve was never home when they were still living in Georgia before moving back to, uh, to Texas. And uh, here's what she has to say. Meanwhile, I had started to notice some of the church patrons had been wearing Christian T-shirts. Stirred by an idea, I started to scour the Christian bookstores for a particular item that I had in mind. I decided that I wanted a shirt which proudly emblazoned the most famous verse from the Bible. Jeannie. Jeannie, are you reverse engineering this story, Jeannie? I think Jeannie had it all along. The sheer thought of it filled me up with the joy I had not experienced. I think Jeannie may be the stone cold genius. She may be the genie in the bottle. <laughs> I had not experienced since I had worn my cute duck pattern dress as a child. I could not find one anywhere, so I was inspired to craft it myself using a plain gray top and some black fabric paint. Steve was home for a few days, and we were at a bit of a loose end, so we arranged to catch up with two buddies from our darts team, Jim and D. Oh, hell, Jim. Hey, D. Come on out of the house. We got darts going. It'll be a hell of a time. I got a busted <laughs> lip from my last match, but we can still hang out the house, have some beers. <laughs> Talk about the good times. Yeah, and the bad times. a couple of burgers on the grill. <laughs> Eat up that... D- you, let me ask you a question, <laughs> Jim. Broil gimmick. You got, <laughs> do you hunt, son? 
we had heard that Georgia Renaissance. You hunt, you hunt buck. Got that right. We had heard. Most wrestlers do, actually. They're usually always on the hunt for a buck. (laughs) They're always short for one somehow, too, I've noticed. We had heard that the Georgia Renaissance Festival was closing up soon, so they offered to pick us up and spend the day there. The festival is an annual fair held in Fairburn, a small city about 20 miles outside Atlanta, down Interstate 85. As soon as we parked on the grass field near the fair, Jim looked... I love the idea of Steve Austin going to Renaissance Fair on his week out. Oh, yeah. I hope I hope, I hope. hope he does, like, some cosplay oh, shit. Oh, my God. Just standing there with a turkey leg, like, oh, hell, it's a great... Yeah, I'm having a great time. <laughs> the fucking... The big puffy pants, <laughs> you know, that... that, that, that and. That, that cut off at the chin and he wears, you know. Uh, yeah, fucking Shakespeare. <laughs> the, um, all right. Is that a dagger I see before my goddamn beady little eyes? Ice dagger? <laughs> Is that an ice dagger I see? Oh. <laughs> as soon as we parked on the grass field near the fair, Jim looked over and complimented my new tee, which I was wearing that day. Steve looked at the shirt with a puzzled face and asked about its meaning. I explained... What the hell is that? <laughs> the goddamn hell are you wearing? The fuck? I explained... <laughs> I the explained, fuck is that? Here, here comes Jeannie. I explained that it was in reference to John 3.16, which is in many ways the definitive passage within the Bible. In one verse, it explains God's plan for the salvation of mankind, McFoley, through his only begotten son. Jesus Christ, the most elemental aspect of Christianity. Steve paused to absorb my explanation for a few seconds before dropping the subject. His mannerisms Mm -hmm. and smug remarks had made it clear that he was starting to get agitated by my religious convictions, so I had stopped communicating that aspect of faith within my life to him. Wow. We then arrived at the festival, which had a 16th century theme and featured a variety of weird and wacky activities from the English Renaissance period. We had a really nice day out at the fair as Steve welcomed a break from the soaring demands of the WWF. So how about that? How about the idea... That Steve Austin on that podium at the 1996 King of the Ring, not so much lashing out at the perceived hypocrisy of Jake the Snake Roberts in his newfound religion, but actually channeling his animosity towards his wife's newfound Christianity. I like that. I like. I think. I think might be. I'm not. I'm not afraid to say that maybe it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Yeah, you think that lights a little fire in his belly when he's up there spouting that anti-religious rhetoric. And, and, and here's Jeannie Clark saying that, you know, I put John 3.16 in, in front of him before anybody else. Now, he has kind of a different story, as we'll get to, but I like that hmm. one. That's one that doesn't make the cut when Steve tells no. it. I really that's like one that not, that's, not, that's one that doesn't make it into the WWE documentaries. That's for sure. That's for sure. Um, so, yeah, really interesting. A fateful trip to the Renaissance Fair leads to uh, the hottest selling piece of merch in wrestling history. I can dig it. As for the hair, Steve writes, I really liked that Bruce Willis had a buzz cut in Pulp Fiction. I thought he looked very cool for a guy who's been losing his hair and very cold-blooded at the same time, so I got a buzz cut. Then I saw Woody Harrelson with a shaved head natural-born killers, and that was it. I decided to just completely shave my head smooth. Boss, please prepare Austin Bald. He seems to be just on a weird... He's making me feel uncomfortable. How so? I don't know. He's like, you know, obsession with killers and shit. Hell yeah. Like, seriously, he was all he was about it in the beginning. He really was. 
Yeah. He was really ready to train. We heard it. We heard that little piece of tape when he was sure, trying to imitate sure. Kuklinski or whatever. It's, it's almost kind of disturbing. It sure is. It's, it's kind of, you know, I'm, you know, but. Like the question kind of is, why were you watching the documentary about right. the serial killer in the first place? Just ima- okay, I want you to imagine ringmaster Steve Austin. So imagine you're Jeannie Clark, okay? Yep. And you wake up in the middle of the night and, and Steve's just not in bed. All right, and you come downstairs. Yes, all the lights are off, except you can see the flickering of light from the TV room. My God, and you and you walk in there, and all you see is Steve Austin. You can hear the audio now from this documentary that clip, like the like the clip that we played, and Steve's just sitting in the fucking chair and watching the thing and like she comes out to his front and he doesn't move doesn't flinch oh my god his eyes are just wide i can wide. see it i can see it right now yeah right and he's just watching and it's like this, this fucking television it's like this kind of echoey big house you know what i mean like yep yep you could, yep like she could hear she could even hear like she woke up and he wasn't there but she could hear the tv up in the bedroom right exactly yeah because it's kind of yeah. like the, the sound travels up an open staircase and like yep. a yep yep Steve, honey, what are you doing? What are you doing, honey? Steve, and he's just—he is just fucking locked, like it's like completely entranced. There is no—he like, doesn't play, make a sound. Doesn't play even Kuklinski, notice. Play Kuklinski. Genie. Play Kuklinski. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, and picture Steve Austin's face. Yep. Oh God. It's so fucking horrifying. Hit the sound. So fucking Hit the sound. Hit it. Oh, hit the pald. Oh, no, the real... Austin? Kuklinski, yeah. Oh, Kuklinski. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, staring, listening. Yes, yes, yes. Oh. How do you feel about killing? I don't. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't have a feeling one way or the other. I think if I had a choice, I wouldn't. Thoughts? Oh, I'm, I'm horrified right now. I'm horrified. I love how it's he like, like f- keeps talking. Like he can't stand the silence. Yep. 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 Oh. Keeps adding horrifying. to his answer. That's Steve. Horrifying. It's like 2.45 yep. in the morning. Yep. Yep. Very uncomfortable. And 1996 too, which makes it extra creepy oh. somehow. Because it's like, you know, backwoods TV channels at that hour. You know what I mean? It's not like on demand. Yeah. There's definitely insomnia. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. That's part of this. So, yes. uh, Sorry about that. Please hit Austin Bald. This is him and his podcast not too long ago talking about the, as only he can, the process of arriving at a bald head in the WWF in 1996. Absolutely. I came to WWF. Vince kind of wanted me to change my look. I was actually in the process when I was down in ECW of growing it back out. You know, I was going to hang on to it for as long as I could. But when Vince called me and wanted me to go up there and be the ringmaster, he wanted me to change my appearance so people would forget about who I was and think about who I now was making their debut in WWF. So after watching the Pulp Fiction movie with Bruce Willis, that's the haircut that inspired me to get a buzz cut. A couple of months later, I was traveling on the road, <laughs> Dustin Rhodes, Goldust and me travel together. We was working Pittsburgh, Mellon Arena, 
And before I went to the show that night, I just said, fuck it. I went in the bathroom with a razor blade and shaved all my hair off. It was only about, you know, a half inch thick anyway. And my hair was so light colored, it damn near looked like I was bald. But it just had that scruffy appearance and it didn't look good. So I shaved it all off and it turns out that was one of the keys to my appearance. Then I grew into goatee and everything came full circle. Sure did. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. So right according to what I found online, the very first time Stone Cold Steve Austin shows up on WWF television with a fully bald head. Do you want to take a guess? Month, maybe, if not exact day? Um, when, he, when he showed up with a fully bald head? Yes. It, it was, um, it must have been May. February 19th, 1996. Get out of here, really? Told you, he was bald while still the ringmaster under Ted DiBiase. Holy shit, I really did not remember that at all. Yep. Um, so, that that's the... St- I, do remember, I do remember there being an article in WWE Magazine about him. Oh. Hold on, I'm going to find that. Yeah, do tell, do tell. Uh, we'll continue here. Um... I was decide. I decided to just completely shave my head smooth. I grew a beard, mustache, and recreated myself as a whole new persona. Uh, I looked stone cold and felt stone cold. All of a sudden, I was getting more promo time, but a new problem reared its ugly head. Some of my best stuff was getting edited out. I remember running down Elder Montoya, just incredible, on one of our TV shows. He had that yellow mask on his face, and I called it a jock strap. I just cut him and cut him and cut him. Then later on, when I watched the show, I noticed some of these good things I said I'd said weren't on the air. I was like, man, what the hell? We were in a real... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what the hell? (laughs) Snowy town in the Northeast at the old building in Lowell, Massachusetts. And I called... Building alone? Lowell. Building alone? Oh, building alone. (laughs) And I called Vince aside. I said, Vince, can I talk to you? He said, yeah. Yeah. I said, man, what's going on? Seems like every time... Seems like every time I say something, y'all take it back to the shop and chop all my stuff out. What? (laughs) (laughs) Really reassuring response. In one ear out the other. That's what I heard. (laughs) What? (laughs) What can I do for you, pal? Well, what the hell is this with cutting all my stuff out? Who are you? What? (laughs) Well, pal, let's talk. We haven't caught up. What's on your mind? Well, you know, son, I've been watching my TV show and every uh, half the show. Who are you? Well, you know, son, I've been watching the TV show and half of my zingers aren't making the air. I wonder what the hell the deal is. What? 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 Vince is not paying any attention. Huh? It's like pre-cell phones. Huh? What? Did you? Zinger. What? uh, You want to be called the zinger? Sure. Yeah, go for it. You mean the the zinger Steve Austin. Big fan. Zinger McFrost. Top of the, top of the card. <laughs> yeah, well, sounds great, pal. Onward and upward. Can I get a, can I get a protein bar, please? <laughs> I'd like at least 15 protein bars. <laughs> at least 15. He doesn't order 18. <laughs> he doesn't order 30. He orders at least 15. <laughs> so what does that mean? When I f- I'm going to go somewhere, presumably, and get, uh, presumably, where they have a lot of protein bars now yes. Yes. am i to stop at 15 
Or am I to take everything because... Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, it's at least 15, so I want no less right. than 15. But if you if, 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 if you feel like maybe you're in the mood for providing extra sustenance to myself, the boss, then I would suggest you do that. But see, I didn't think it was a question of my mood, Vince, because I thought implicit in what you said is basically get me all the protein bars. <laughs> but if it's I didn't less... say that. That's if, not the words that I used. I, I said specifically at least 15... If you don't understand what that is, I don't understand what you are. I understand what at least 15 is, but I'm wondering if I encounter 26 protein bars uh-huh. and the request is for at least 15, am I to bring all 26 or just 15? I'm sorry. Is this is this like a second grade math class? Uh, you tell me. What? I just want to deliver to your well, expectations. You tell me, damn it. I, 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 want, I, I give the orders here. I just want to deliver to your expectations. And yes, your order uh, By was, the way, I want you to consider a a... September issue WB Magazine ninety six featuring Diesel in the uh, the the merchandise catalog. Excuse me, I'm looking at it right now. This is the September ninety six, and I don't know why are they, are they selling. Oh, they're selling dudes with the two dudes with attitude shirt in the fucking magazine, and there's Diesel like Diesel's next Undertaker in this fucking thing. Are you sure this isn't September nineteen ninety five? September 1996. I'm having a very difficult time dealing with that. Uh, also, they're promoting uh, uh, Full Metal, the album. Oh, my and God. And both Diesel and Razor Ramon are right there on the cover. Oh, my God. Got that inventory, pal. Got to move it. Yeah, I'll say. That's great that you have that magazine. So, I'm man. trying to find. Yeah, I'm trying to find the specific. I remember this. This, this, or am I, you know, that we do have a couple missing issues in the 96 catalog. And of course, I'm sure what I'm looking for is. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Never yeah, fails. Never. I do have one. I do have something about the ringmaster, though. Um, but give me a, another moment. You keep going. Yeah, sure. He said, well, Steve, your stuff is making people laugh back in the studio. We're concerned because as a heel, we want the fans to not like you. I said, well, Vince, let me tell you something. I'm 6'2", 250 pounds. I got a bald head and a goatee. I got black trunks and black boots and a big mouth. Man, if you take my personality away from me, I can't compete with anybody here. You got guys here, 6'10", 7 feet, 350 pounds or whatever, 7 by 20. These are are a lot of numbers. Is this a fucking carpentry class or what is this? (laughs) What by what now? Zinger. This is why you should be the zinger. But... But if you give me my personality, I can compete with anybody. I guarantee it. Vince listened to me and said, okay, and walked off. <laughs> okay. Uh, whatever. Whatever. It's fine. Whatever, whatever is going to you know, prevent you from talking to me and any longer. Whatever is going to push this conversation to the wayside. <laughs> the fastest. He pulls a Kendall Roy on him. O- okay. Whatever. I'm good. <laughs> But Vince had gotten the message. He started letting me just go and stopped editing a lot of my lines out of the show. Vince was beginning to feel and understand the Stone Cold character, which was essential in the development of my in-ring persona. I tell young wrestlers that they must always be thinking about their TV character and wear down the WWE creative team with their ideas for that character. Oh, my God. And above all else, they have to develop a positive working relationship with Vince. There you go. I'll say. Well, let's read this. uh... Yes. Ringmaster thing that I got here for you. Um, 
This is the uh, Rookies to Legends, Heroes of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase had an impact on the world of wrestling entertainment unlike any other man in the sport of kings, buying up titles, corrupting officials, and punishing ad- adversaries with a variation of the sleeper called the Million Dollar Dream. Now, DiBiase has passed on his legacy to the Ringmaster, a gladiator that he insists represents every ideal the Million Dollar Man holds close to his heart. This gladiator doesn't come across his nickname by chance. Without DiBiase's backing, he'd still be one of the most versatile athletes to ever step through the ropes. His repertoire includes lightning lightning quickness, remarkable power, and the ability to shift strategies as the situation dictates, keeping one step ahead of his opponents. Then there's his attitude. Anyone who ever meets the ringmaster rapidly realizes that this is a very bitter man. Uh, Before entering the Federation, he competed in other venues and never was satisfied with the quality of his foes. As a result, he contends his skills were ignored until DiBiase came into his life. The Million Dollar Man not only gave the ringmaster the opportunity of a lifetime by bringing him to the Federation, but DiBiase also taught his protege the deadly Million Dollar Dream and awarded him with the Million Dollar Belt, a glittery ornament that the ringmaster insists is as important as the Federation Championship. Finally, the ringmaster has the attention of his long Uh, He's long coveted, but new visibility can also mean new problems. Not only does he now have to contend with his ring rivals in the Federation, but also his cohorts in DiBiase's corporation who may resent his position as the manager's pet. Wow. So that that a Stone Cold character does not make. No, it does not. That's such a cheesy fucking idea. So, like, wrapped up in Ted DiBiase. It has nothing to do with I him know. at all. I know. I mean, that's what it was about, about Ted DiBiase and his stabla of individuals. His stabla. Competitors. We got stabla. that. Stabla. St- stable. So, uh, yep. So, that's the story on how the look changed, <laughs> setting him up rather beautifully for um, for this uh, this moment at the 1996 King of the Ring. Um, now, back to the 316 piece. Yeah. This is pretty important. Anybody who had watched televised sports in the 70s knew of the Rainbow Man. Do you know of the Rainbow Man? No. Rainbow Man was a guy named Roland Stewart from California who one day bought a huge Afro wig with rainbow colors on it and would make it his business and his life's work to go to big high-profile sporting events figure out where the television cameras were trained in terms of focus and angle on the game and get himself on television. Okay. And he would obviously stand out because of his wig, but he would also look to convey religious messages as well and the signs he would hold and the T-shirts he would wear. If you hit Rainbow One, we'll get a bit from a great uh, ESPN Sports Center piece that was done on Rainbow Man, who again was such a fixture of 70s sports television broadcasts that uh, people really knew him and had a deep curiosity about who he was and what his story was, and he was so good. at He would, he would basically like use um, like a radio to monitor the broadcast of the event to figure out where the cameras were trained at a given time. Fucking weird. And find his way over to that section. 
And as we'll talk about, he became the bane of the existence of sports television uh, directors and producers of the time because they was just so goddamn distracting in the World Series to have this guy in the top left frame putting on a show and drawing attention to himself. But we'll start with Rainbow One. This is um, the first piece of sound describing a moment that Roland Stewart had upon returning to his hotel after attending the 1980 Super Bowl. Later that night in his hotel room, Stewart saw a televangelist preaching about the end of the world, and he was born again into a self-ordained minister with one mission, convince the world via the Rainbow Man character to accept Christ as its savior. In other words, John 3.16. You only have a few seconds. And if, that, if, if, if all you've got is a few seconds, what are you going to say? Reg Hammond shared Stewart's mission. We got it down to the fact we're going to say John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Because you, in the media, immediacy world, you have a little sound bite and then you're off. I remember seeing him at the World Series. He had set up. Wow. So there it is. John Jesus. 3.16 becomes a thing on the signs of the Rainbow Man at the most watched sports and entertainment broadcasts of the time. He became a nuisance, as said. Rainbow 2, we'll put a finer point on it. This is a gentleman who used to direct uh, professional sports broadcasts during Rainbow Man's heyday, talking about what a pain in the ass it was. Which one is this? Rainbow Rainbow 2? You got it. I know directors who threatened to kill the guy in their anger in the truck because he would get in behind uh, very dramatic shots and the eye, as you watch the screen, would be attracted immediately to this wacko wearing a rainbow-colored wig, holding up the sign that said John 316. Jesus. So they shoot around him. They did what they could. They found ways to neutralize him and make sure his impact wasn't too distracting on the television broadcasts. And as this ESPN piece talks about, he kind of grew increasingly desperate to do things to draw attention, not so much to himself, but what he saw as the word of God that he was trying to convey uh, through the magic of television uh, to the nation and trying to turn them on to things like John 3.16. Hell, as Jake Roberts said in that interview we talked about earlier, how many people opened a Bible as a result of King of the Ring 96? That was the same yeah. wavelength that Roland Stewart was on. And, you know, he thought, he, he envisioned a future where everybody would be bringing banners and shirts and signs to sporting events talking about their favorite scripture and thus spreading the word of the Lord uh, that way. Hmm. But he grew in- Jesus. increasingly desperate, increasingly desperate about ways to get the message out because, as mentioned, they found ways uh, to shoot around him. And he felt an increasing urgency because he really felt, boss, that doomsday was coming. But he just couldn't get the camera on him. He just couldn't do it. His old tricks weren't working anymore. I a wrestler named Doomsday. (laughs) Couldn't think of one. And so when you get increasingly desperate and you're the rainbow man and you need to have the team... you might kill somebody. Camera's trained on you. Los Angeles Times, July 14th, 1993. No. Roland Frederick Stewart, known to millions as Rainbow Man because he wore multicolored wigs as he flashed religious placards at televised sporting events, was sentenced Tuesday to three life terms in prison. Oh, my God. For a hostage-taking incident last year at a hotel near Los Angeles International Airport. Stewart, 48, was removed from the courtroom of Superior Court Judge Robert P. O'Neill after he repeatedly called out warnings of a nuclear holocaust during a prosecutor's appeal for the maximum sentence. 
At one point, Stewart said he had not intended to harm anyone during the nine-hour standoff with police at the airport Hyatt Hotel September 22nd, but staged the incident to warn the world of its doom. I feel I have a right to speak, he told O'Neill, before several bailiffs wrestled him to the floor. All I'm trying to do is make a statement about the end of the world. Sitting in the rear of the courtroom, weeping during the outburst, was the maid who, would tra- who was trapped in the room that Stewart took over. As he was carried away, Stewart asked God to forgive the bailiffs, for they know not what they do. Oh, my God. Earlier in the case, Stewart was offered a plea bargain for a 12-year sentence, but he insisted on going to trial. Had he accepted the deal, he would have been eligible for parole in six years. Instead, three life sentences. Life sentences are to be served concurrently. Stewart is still eligible, I would say. How are you going to serve a life sentence in any other way besides concurrently? Fucking stupid sentence. Yeah, I'm going to serve my second life sentence after my first one ends. Why not? Stewart is still eligible for parole, but it is up to prison officials to determine when he can have a parade, a parole, not a parade, (laughs) a parole hearing. That'd be amazing. He presents a threat and his actions cannot be tolerated, no matter his religious belief, O'Neill said, in imposing the life terms. Stewart's pastor, Charles Taylor, criticized the sentence as being too harsh and said it had not been Stewart's intention to harm anyone. But Deputy District Attorney Sally Lipscomb has characterized Stewart as being dangerous and told O'Neill that Stewart has a is or was a David Koresh waiting to happen. Yikes. Referring to the Branch Davidian leader who died in a fire April 19th in Waco, Texas, along with 85 of his followers. Stewart was convicted last month of taking the maid hostage and making terrorist threats. In April 1991, he was linked to a remote-controlled stink bomb set off at the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta, Georgia, but the golf club declined to press charges. A few weeks later, he was accused of setting off similar bombs at various sites in Orange County, and an arrest warrant was issued. The day of the standoff, Stewart picked up two transient laborers and took them to the Hyatt, promising them jobs. He led the men to the seventh floor, where he went into a room that was being cleaned by Paula Madeira Chan, 39, when Stewart, who had a pistol, tried to force the men into a bathroom. Oh, my God. With Madeira Chan, they fled, and she locked herself in, then telephoned the hotel management. During the standoff, police said Stewart threatened to shoot at planes flying into LAX and plastered signs that read John 3.16, referring to a Bible verse to the hotel room windows. Boss, hit Rainbow 3. Let's hear the man. Let's hear the voice. This is my last hurrah. No one gets hurt. The media gets the message. They present it, and then it's over. As the hours wore on, the negotiations failed to progress. God, I just want to share what the hell the Lord said so that people would have a chance to consider it. Why did you do it? Get the word out for Jesus Christ. On the day of his sentencing, he tried still to get his message out. Forget the Lord, for they know about what they're doing. They know not what they're doing, Lord. They know not what they're doing, Lord. They know not what they're doing, Lord. I'd say it's a great success story. I'd say it's a tremendous. What the? F- it's a great success story because the world can see what one man can do. The fact oh that we're God. talking about John three sixteen banners. And that message is getting out still today after me first meeting him 15 years ago. 
at success. How would you characterize your story, Roland? Well, in a sense, it's a sad story, but in a sense, it's a glorious story. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the, probably the most magnificent story in the world. If a person has the Holy Spirit in them and lets Jesus direct their life, they can be successful even if they end up in prison. I think Steve was watching that at three in the morning. Yes, I do. I'm looking at this fucking guy right now. He is horrifying. Look into his eyes. Oh, Grapple God. with that reality. Like, there is nothing... There is nothing more chilling than this. <laughs> Stand by. Oh, my God. He's got the wig, and it says Jesus saves on his T-shirt. Like, and he's he's got his beard like separated, so he's got these two daggers. Like, this is this is somebody who's going to harm people, multiple people, on a regular basis. And this is the reason, unless you believe Jeannie Clark, that it occurred to Steve Austin at the 1996 King of the Ring to channel John 316 because he was aware, and Steve Austin has talked about this. Because of this guy, he remembers you kicked a damn field goal on the football game, and as it went through the uprights, you'd see in the crowd, John 316. I feel like we've talked about this guy before. We've always talked about him. We've always talked about him in a certain way. He's always been with us. Do you agree that, do you agree that his story is a beautiful story? No. No. Do you know how many letters he wrote in, you know, wild over the top font from prison sent to various family members, media organizations and everything about his you know, about the coming judgment, about the coming rapture. Do you know he's still alive as we sit here? Yes, I know he's still alive. Do you know alive. he probably is going to hear this? Yes, I know he's probably going to hear this. He'll probably get a letter at the P.O. box. He's probably going to try to save us. John 3.16. Not a small deal. Okay, when Steve Austin channels this, he's not channeling something without significant baggage. No, not at all. I mean, also, I mean, I think, I'm pretty sure the even the, just saying John 3.16 is one of the most... Did you say that, that it's one of the most uh, commonly used Bible verses? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's thought yeah. to most uh, succinctly sum up the, oh, my God. what Jesus has done for us and, uh, and what he did for Steve Austin. And I got to wonder what, I really have to wonder what the Rainbow Man, Roland Stewart, thinks about Austin 316. Now, John 316 exists on many planes, thanks to... Yes, the Rainbow I Man. Found another couple awesome things in the mag in the magazines. If you want, at some point, I'm just yeah, we'll sprinkle them in as we go. Yeah, there there, there will be a time to circle back. Thanks for that. Um, and uh, and among them uh, was Tim Tebow, former Broncos quarterback in the NFL, who of course is um, a highly religious man. And uh, yeah, Steve Austin's association with 316 was back in the news when uh, Tim Tebow. Uh, wore uh, those letters. Um, he actually had them, he used to have them inscribed uh, on his eye. Um, you know, eye, the eye black you put under your eyes in football, right? 316. Yeah. 
He passed for 316 yards. And here's an article uh, kind of talking about um, Steve Austin uh, addressing Tim Tebow, adopting the 316 moniker and the 316 branding, for lack of a better term here, on WWE.com. One of the greatest WWE superstars to ever enter the squared circle is, without question, well, Vince wrote that, WWE Hall of Famer Stone Cold Steve Austin. Because of the Texas Rattlesnake, there was no series of numbers in WWE history as legendary as 316. At King of the Ring 1996, Austin 316 was immortalized after Stone Cold defeated Jake the Snake Roberts and exclaimed Austin 316 says, I just whipped your ass. Of course, the rattlesnake was referencing Roberts' quoting the Bible and the verse John 3.16, that famous biblical verse, has garnered a fair amount of media attention in the past week following Denver, Denver Broncos quarterback Tim Tebow's NFL playoff performance against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Tebow, who used to inscribe John 3.16 on his eye black in college, passed for 316 yards. Additionally, the NCAA Heisman Trophy winner also averaged 31.6 yards per completion, and the game's overtime broadcast drew a 31.6 rating. Wow. Adding to the eerie numerical coincidences is the fact that Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger threw the game's only interception of third down and 16 yards to go. Holy shit. Happenstances aside, the John 316 reference reminded the WWE Universe of Stone Cold's famous speech. WWE.com spoke with the WWE Hall of Famer about the origins of his famous catchphrase and Tebow's use of it today. At King of the Ring, when you famously exclaimed Austin 316, was it something you had been thinking about or did it just come to you? So I was getting my lips stitched up following a match against Mark Merrow. I was told that Jake Roberts just did an interview about me referencing John 316. Did he, boss? Did Jake Roberts reference John 316? Um, no, I don't believe he did. No, I don't think so. I knew the verse, but I also remembered that at football games, there was always a fan in the end zone. There it is. A fan in the end zone. Hmm. The rainbow man holding up a sign that said John 316. So... It was a pretty famous quote to begin with, and after I won the tournament, it just came to me on the fly. To me, it was just pure luck that Austin 316 would become what it did. No mention of Jeannie Clark there in the Renaissance Fair, you notice. (laughs) Did you ever think that an Austin 316 t-shirt would become one of the hottest sellers in WWE history? I remember I used to ask if there were any t-shirt ideas for me, and there wouldn't be. Then after King of the Ring, I was asked for some ideas, and I immediately thought, put Austin 316 on the front and a skull with Stone Cold chiseled into its head on the back. I know, I don't know. How many of those were sold, but I know it was the number one selling t-shirt in WWE history. The big news in sports right now is Tim Tebow. He used to wear John 316 on his eye black when he played in college, just taking the NFL by storm. As a devout Christian, Tebow is making the biblical verse a top search term. You told TMZ.com recently that if he throws for exactly 316 yards again this weekend to beat the New England Patriots, you would relinquish the famous 316 to to Tebow fully. What are your thoughts about him? I first started following Tebow's career when he was a Florida Gator, not because of him and hell, not even because of the Gators, but because I was a fan of then Florida coach Urban Meyer. Because of that, I witnessed Tebow's phenomenal collegiate career. Phenomenal. He loves that word. (laughs) Now he's a pro. And sure, he's having a great run right now, but it's a whole new season next year. We'll see how it plays out and if he's even starting. I'm no football analyst or real religious person, but I think he's a great role model for young kids, and I wish him the best. So yeah, if he can throw for another 316 yards, this guy fucking the Jordan's Furniture guy, the Red Sox win the World Series, you get a freak out. Oh my God, I know, right? Jesus Christ. And beat the New England Patriots, the 316 is all his. What's your prediction? Do you think it'll happen? No, I don't. Being that he's a devout Christian, we may not see Tebow 316 t-shirts to rival your Austin 316 shirts. When referencing you and Tebow, some critics have pointed out that what you said could be considered blasphemous. Do you feel that has any truth? 
When I said Austin 316, it wasn't meant to be anti-religious or anything. In fact, I can't tell you how many priests and nuns have asked me for my autograph throughout my career. There was nothing sacrilegious about it. Uh, Steve, I don't know about that, pal. Yeah, exactly. Calm down. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about, you know, fucking priests and nuns (laughs) asking for your autograph. Friar Ferguson count? I know, yeah, maybe that maybe that's what he's going for. Austin 316 says, I just whipped your ass was prophetic, and it became a phrase that defined my career. It is still one of the most popular phrases in WWE history, and anyone who doesn't like it can piss off. <laughs> Steve Austin, <laughs> fucking tremendous. So there it is. there's all kinds of associations with 316, from the mildly disturbing story of the Rainbow Man to Tim Tebow embracing it wholeheartedly upon a series of eerie coincidences around the numbers uh, 316. And perhaps one we really need to keep in mind uh, one that really needs to drive home just um, the full range of associations that 316 has. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Massachusetts State Police revealed oh boy, that Tebow's teammate during a championship game, former NFL player and convicted murderer Aaron Hernandez, oh, fuck. had written John 316 in red... Oh. In red ink, on his forehead, before hanging himself with a bed sheet in a prison cell. What the fuck? He also scrawled it in blood on the wall of his cell, according to state police. Exactly what message Hernandez was attempting to convey with the verse in this particular context is unknown. That did not stop some from speculating. Aaron Hernandez, through his struggles, either came to Christ or was already... There and was feeling remorse. Brian Bolt, a professor at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, told the Boston Globe, Bolt is co-chair of Sport and Christianity, a group of Christian coaches, administrators, and theologians. Joseph L. Price, professor of religious studies at Whittier College, told the Globe, it might have been an ultimate protest, a final act of defiance, to use such an affirming verse at the culmination of such a violent life. Austin 316. Mm-hmm. We haven't heard from Vince Russo yet. Oh, no, no. I mean, all by all means. I mean, if we're talking, if we haven't had enough of him in the last few fucking weeks. I mean, if we're talking about one man's journey from self glorification to sanctification, right? I mean, got to include him in in, in talk of three sixteen and whatnot. Of course, I mean he's he's the ultimate when it comes to turning your life around. He's going on two years as editor of the magazine. He's starting to get involved in writing promos for the guys when they you know, do their local market insert promos to sell tickets on, on syndication. Right, right. And, um, and he recalls being around. You know, it, it just never fails when you fucking, you know, you always find a fucking way to disturb me. Why? What was disturbing about that? Oh, what you know? I play, here I am play, thinking we're just going to be here talking about play you know, Rainbow. One of my play Rainbow Three, kid. Play Rainbow Three again. This is my last hurrah. No one gets hurt. The media gets the message. They present it, and then it's over. As the hours wore on, the negotiations failed to progress. God, I just want to share what the hell the Lord said, so that people would have a chance to consider it. Why did you do it? 
On the day of his sentencing, he tried still to get his message out. I'd say it's a great success story. Oh, fuck you. I'd say it's a tremendous. It's a great success story because the world can see what one man can do. The fact that we're talking about John 316 banners and that message is getting out still today after me first meeting him 15 years ago. That's success. How would you characterize your story, Roland? Well, in a sense, it's a sad story, but in a sense, it's a glorious story. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the, probably the most magnificent story in the world. If a person has the Holy Spirit in them and lets Jesus direct their life, they can be successful even if they end up in prison. They know not what they do, Lord. He's getting tackled to the ground while he's saying this. You know, the thing is, the most disturbing one out of those photos that you just, you know, needed to put up on, <laughs> on the feed, it, it is still not as horrifying as him with the fucking leg on his head. I know. And, like, I, I honestly, like, it, it's like I could, I feel like he's hunting us right now. Do you? feel his presence yeah you better hope there's not some sudden like noise right outside your window or oh, something don't even not even funny the, the first one i sent you with the glasses um yes. i want you to picture you know just tucking in at a local diner for like an impromptu oh. 11 a.m like brunch you're by yeah. yourself it's a tuesday you know for some reason you had a an hour open in the middle of the day so you went to get a bite and you're sitting there and it's empty you know it's relatively quiet and it's it's sparsely populated and you know as you take a look at the menu and make your selections and your eyes dart over to the bar and and the kitchen the, the you know the lunch counter and somebody you know somebody playing with their phone somebody flipping eggs and and then your eyes dart back to the far end of the diner it's sort of like a you know a trailer shaped building right it's it's got a lot of longevity to it it's elongated mm-hmm. and sitting at the furthest table from yours, but looking at you without a second to blink, without a second to, uh, you know, avert the gaze locked coldly on you is that guy with the glasses. And he's yep. looking yep. at you <laughs> and he's waiting Just, for you to do something about it. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's like, he's basically, he's a predator stalking his prey is what he wants. He's, and we're not sure what it is that he is going to do. Exactly. If he moves, yes. is he going to attack? I don't know. Yes. If he stay? Is he upset that you're, that you're there? <laughs> I don't know. Is it, he? It's, you know, you, you just know 
At that point, you just know that the end is near. So I, so. And Stewart, and and Roland Stewart is going to have just another victim. I don't think it's some, you know, cutesy little deal to talk about Austin 316 and John 316. Like, it doesn't end this fucking way, okay? And I invite us to consider the possibility that Steve Austin knows this about John 316. And ki- of course he does. And kind of loves he's it. Not a, he's not, of course he does. He's not a fucking dumb guy. He fucking, of course he does. This shit, this shit fucking fuels it, all right? Fuels. Fuels the need. Yes. Fuels the desire. Well. Oh, fuck it all, man. I hate wrestling. <sighs> it's like the San Diego chicken. Remember that? We we start oh. we started with the Survivor Series egg and we found out like what actually inspired the notion and oh. it turns out to be a twisted fucking story. Right. This one's it's even always, more twisted. I mean, if it if it I mean honestly, I don't expect anything less. I expect there to be some kind of disturbing <laughs> but when it comes to like these these I mean I th- I I thought we had it with the other guy with Kuklinski. Then you fucking bring up this fucking clown, literally a clown. It's fine that he's got oh. that wig. I mean because he he thinks he's justified. That you know that's what makes him equally terrifying is like Yes. He 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 feels like he's going to heaven if he kidnaps these people. I just I I I want to I mean I want to know you know what it is that I like I I I, 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 I there's no answer to it because there you, you know it's there's something that is not right, but kind of taking extreme actions yes because of of this like what is it that that compels people to be like this yeah and why do other people not feel compelled to do this what is the chemical shakeup that went on in somebody's brain right right you know i mean what something happened hmm? do you hear that shut up fuck you no, I no, no, I did not. And <laughs> I will not play your games. <laughs> I just dropped this gimmick on the floor. It's fine. I just realized what it is. Yeah, it's yeah, not a problem. Yeah. I mean, that's no. that's what I need you to remember. <laughs> it's it's not a problem. problem that this guy. It's normal. Walked the earth and was on our television screens for a decade, and we were, thought it was fun and games. And then the second we took the lens away from him, we realized he's going to fucking take hostages. Like. I mean, he's he's a wrestler in a way, in a weird way, you know. You know? He's he's, tr- he's trying to keep his spot. I mean, do we think no wrestler has ever written John three sixteen down before taking his or her own life? I, oh no, couldn't find evidence of it, but it was on Aaron Hernandez's forehead. How twisted, right? From Tim Tebow's eye makeup to Aaron Hernandez's forehead, two players of the same generation of the same you know peak on on the gridiron. How poetic is that? How twisted is that? John 3.16, is it supposed to inspire me to greater heights? Or is it supposed to be a last fuck you as I swing by my neck from the door right. frame? Can't be both. Vince Russo. 
Let me give you another perfect example of why Vince McMahon needed someone like me. He writes, here's one of my favorite stories from my magazine days. I was backstage at King of the Ring, the year Stone Cold Steve Austin won it in 1996. Moments before making his acceptance speech, he ran it by me. Did he, Vince? Huh. Asked Steve for confirmation on that. I must admit I wasn't paying. I, hmm? I, don't, ask, I don't ask for confirmation. I never asked anybody for confirmation. I believe I confirmed. Wrong Vince. What? Attention at the time. Man, I suffer greatly from tunnel vision. <laughs> I have my whole life, bro. When someone something is on my mind, I focus on it 100%. I don't let anything else get in the way. I just don't believe in wasting brain power. I do. He goes through all this shit to like explain like oh my God. why he wouldn't have more particular memories. But he knew he it was run by him. <laughs> He knew. Yeah, I get it. It was 20 years ago, right? Just just use the fucking Bishop excuse, <laughs> for God's sakes. All right. I deal slowly alone. with the matter at hand when the matter's at hand. So Steve ran this promo by me, and I, I honestly wasn't paying much attention because I was preoccupied with something else. Then he went out and gave it. Holy shit. Right then, right there, it hit me with the impact of a Catherine Zeta-Jones lap dance. Austin 316 says, I just whipped your ass. I don't what? know. What? What the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> it was just magic. The As, impact of a Catherine Zeta-Jones lap dance? It'll give you throat cancer and everything. <laughs> well, that's eating pussy. The, eating <laughs> pussy gives you fucking throat cancer. As the word but, sprayed out of his mouth. What the fuck is he doing? He's such an idiot. <laughs> I just loser. knew. I just knew. I yeah. just knew that that phrase was going to make Steve a star. Yeah. It was just one of those things. Maybe I have a good instinct for the business. But I just knew kind of like the first time I met Rena. The following day, I couldn't wait to get back to the office. Austin 316 was going to be the cover line for the new edition of Raw Magazine. Do you remember that one? I do. The Raw Magazine cover with Austin 316 on it? Um, I think it was. They did the, um, the, the bloody forehead one. Yeah. Um, and they did the bloody, but they did the bloody lip one. It's a stone cold king. And it was. Yeah, that's the one I've got in front of me right now. You've got that magazine right now. You're kidding. No, I've got it right in front of well, me. Let's right fucking now. go. What do they have I've to say? It, it's one of the things that I was ready. I, was, I have ready for you. I fucking do, get it going. I'm still looking. But um, all right. Let me read it. The whole thing. Yeah, well, well, what's the article? It's just about him and his. Stone cold king. The, the saga of Steve Austin by Keith. Elliot Elliot Greenberg. Greenberg. I think the time is now. All right. Once, in the days before he entered the World Wrestling Entertainment, he was known as Stunning Steve Austin. The name came out of the imagination of a public relations professional based on the wrestler's platinum locks and surfer boy looks. Austin went along with the moniker grudgingly, tormenting opponents with a ruthlessness that didn't suit his pre-packaged image. He remembers that time with more than a hint of bitterness. Stunning is fine if you're a male model. He, oh, stunning is fine if you're a male model. Yes. He sneers, his golden strands shorn and wholesome features contorted by a mixture of inner demons and time spent in, a, in sweat-soaked gymnasiums. <laughs> what the fuck? All right, Keith, calm down. Take but a- I'm a wrestler. There's nothing stunning about twisting a man's limbs until they pop. Rubbing your knuckles against bare flesh, walking up those ring steps when your body's still aching from the beating you took the night before. 
To make it in the world wrestling entertainment, you have to have a stone cold heart. Because when, when the curtain comes down and you're too banged up to wrestle another day, stunning won't get you a bus ticket home. Yes. Today, the Steve Austin fan see on television is the Steve Austin wrestlers know in the dressing room. The Steve Austin who comes into the ring to fight and win or yes. lose goes home with his opponent wondering what makes this guy so angry. It's Raw Magazine uh, ready is. because they're talking. For the mature ab- fan. Right, and because they're talking about his WCW gimmick. Right. That was a big thing in Raw was to wink, wink at like talking yeah. about non-WWF stuff. This past June, Austin proved to be to a skeptical public that he was the real deal, bulldozing his way through the rigorous King of the Ring tournament, then vanquishing the dynamic Mark Merrow and the legendary Jake the Snake Roberts in the finals. Yeah, I don't... Oh, no. I don't... I don't like the man too much, offers... <laughs> Savio Vega. Okay. Savio! Got comment. The Ruffin, huh? Got comment from him. That's appropriate. I don't like that comment very much. Yeah. Uh, the rough and tumble street fighter from the South Bronx who's been tangling with Stone Cold, uh, the Stone Cold brawler on and off for the last several months. But there's something about him that I have to respect. He's not in the World Wrestling Entertainment because he wants the glory. He's not in the World Wrestling Entertainment because he likes the money. He's not in the World Wrestling Entertainment because he thinks it'll get him into the movies. He's in the World Wrestling Entertainment because he likes to bang heads. And I'm the perfect guy to bang his head right back. Fans who watched the May in Your House pay-per-view vividly remember the head-banging brawl between Vega and Austin. The two went after each other in a Caribbean strap match. The rules stipulated that each man would be bound to the other by a leather strap. The winner would have to tie up his adversary, then drag him to all four corners of the ring. And even though Savio was more experienced at this type of battle, Austin was touted to take the contest. In fact, Stone Cold Steve was so confident that his manager, Ted DiBiase vowed to leave the World Wrestling Entertainment if Vega emerged triumphant. Near the end of the skirmish, Austin had Savio just where he wanted the popular Puerto Rican to be. Vega was on his knees and being pulled from one turnbuckle to the next. What Austin didn't realize was that Vega was also touching the corners, planning to turn the tide on his opponent at the last moment. After the third buckle was passed, Savio decided to engage his foe in a tug of war. Austin yanked on the strap, and Vega flew into the fourth turnbuckle, making contact with it to earn the victory. As a result, DiBiase, the man who first recruited Austin to the World Wrestling Entertainment and taught him a lethal variation of the sleeper hold, was exiled to the lower reaches of the Matt Wars. What the... Who writes this shit? Keith Elliott Greenberg does. I guess. Yeah, I was pretty mad. I mean, I kicked Salvio's butt, but he cheated me out of a win. And now I didn't even have a manager. But you want to know something? I didn't need Ted DiBiase. I made this big deal out of him. He made this big deal out of himself. Like he's like like he's the one who taught me all this wisdom. If it wasn't for him, he'd like to say I'd be wrestling in some little cow town pining for the days when my name would be on the marquee in the World Wrestling Entertainment. Well, he's the one who belongs in the cow town. I'll be in the World Wrestling Entertainment today, even if Ted DiBiase was never born. That's where I belong, in the middle of the ring, with the referee raising my hand, and everybody else better just stand back and accept the cruel truth. 
Austin has been making waves with such frank comments since his first wrestling match in the now defunct World Class Championship Wrestling promotion Mm. based in Dallas. Once World Class Championship Wrestling had been an internationally acclaimed territory, the Von Erich brothers were the group's stars packing the fans at the Dallas Sportatorium. But by the time Austin arrived, the gravy days were over. World-class championship wrestling was a shadow of its former self, and Austin wasn't too happy about it. If I wanted to go play in the minors, I would have picked baseball. Soon, world-class championship wrestling went out of business, and Austin moved to another southern promotion. World Championship Wrestling. This is where the Stone Cold Grappler was given the the label Stunning Steve. To add insult to injury, he and Brian Pillman, another no-nonsense ruffian, were paired up and christened the Hollywood Blondes. The front office staff may have seen them as pretty boys, but Austin and Pillman were down-and-dirty scrappers, pinching the territory's tag team belts from Rick Steamboat and Shane Douglas on March 3, 1993. Striking out on his own as a singles competitor, Austin won the group's U.S. title on two occasions, from Dustin Rhodes on December 27, 1993, and from Steamboat via forfeit on September 18, 1994. True, he was arrogant, but he was also a gifted competitor who, time and time again, overshadowed his fellow world championship wrestling performers. He claims that the powers that be in the territory overlooked his assets, keeping him out of the spotlight for political reasons. This was no way to gratify a wrestler who already had a large chip on his shoulder. And earlier this year, he finally fought his way into the majors, debuting in the World Wrestling Entertainment. In an organization spilling over with noteworthy newcomers, Austin rose to the top. Mere months after his first World Wrestling Entertainment card, Austin wasn't just a main eventer, he was king of the ring. He hasn't main evented yet. No, he hasn't made a damn yet thing at all. No, not even close. Right. To say he's found contentment would be a fallacy. To put it bluntly, Austin is a bitter man and probably wouldn't be happy anywhere, but at least he's being matched against opponents of comparable aptitude, and nobody in a suit and tie has attempted to suppress his stone-cold nature. Now, with DiBiase gone, Austin is fully in control of his career. Whether he thrives or fall or fails is a matter of his own skill and determination. His future achievements may be exacting, spectacular, and dramatic, but but Austin swears they'll never be stunning. Wow. That's how they were framing him in their shoot magazine. Yep. I don't know what the hell Russo's talking about. We'll read more from what he says, but this cover decidedly does not say 316 on it anywhere. It's a picture of Austin's bloody face, and it says Stone Cold King on it. It doesn't say Austin 316 on the cover, which makes this next passage from his book kind of difficult to deal with. The following day, I couldn't wait to get back to the office. Austin 316 was going to be in the cover line for the new edition of Raw Magazine. Along with the photo editor, I searched for a picture that would best fit the phrase. We agreed on a black and white, up-close shot of Austin immediately after winning the event. We would then add a grainy texture to the picture and use red as a third color on the cover to highlight the blood that dripped from his lip and nose. Excited that I was onto something, I took a mock-up of the cover over to the television studio to show Vince. I remember this like it was yesterday. Vinnie Mac, what does Austin 316 mean? Me. <laughs> Austin said mean? it during his King of the Ring promo. It's going to be huge, Who? Vince. Who said what? I don't get it. Change it, he said. What's, what, 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 do you, what do you mean, Austin? 
what's Austin? Yeah, who, who is are this? We going to, are we going to do this for every town that we go to? Is it going to be like Austin 316 and then, and then, and then Boston 316 and <laughs> Richmond 316? <laughs> Allentown 316? I don't understand. Tyson 316? Tyson? What about Mom 316? Right. Are we going to go with Russo? What, I don't understand. What is this all about? Imagine if he made, Can you please explain it to me? He made Russo change it to Mom 316. This exact cover, and it says Mom 316. This makes sense. You know, if you're telling me this is what makes sense, this is what makes sense. I don't know what you want from me. My mom, 316 times. So here it is. I don't get it. Change it. Vince McMahon says. <laughs> Do you understand how much money that short phrase, Austin 316, has made Steve Austin? Vince McMahon and Titan Sports over the years. Russo writes, more money than you and I will ever see in our lifetimes. Yet at the time, Vince McMahon couldn't see it. So I guess that's why Austin 316 isn't on this magazine cover. Vince himself kiboshed it. Vince McMahon, that is. Deal with that. That's really fucking funny. Another little-known fact is when Austin was brought into the WWF and given the moniker Ringmaster, I swear to you, when Pritchard first told me I thought it had something to do with the circus, Vince gave me direct orders. When writing for Steve, let Ted DiBiase do most of his talking. And when Steve does speak, he should speak only in a monotone. I could care less what Vince McMahon will tell you today. Back then, he saw nothing in Steve Austin. The only reason we'd had a discussion about him in the first place was because I brought it up. When he first came to the WWF from ECW, Steve was viewed as one of those underneath guys or mid-carders that Vince didn't have much, if any, time for. I had to to laugh a few years later when Vince, on a biography special about Austin, said that he saw Steve at ECW and knew immediately he could be a huge star. First of all, Vince never watched ECW. The only thing he knew about the promotion is that what others told him. And for him to say that about Austin, Steve would be the first to tell you that he practically had to beg Vince for a job. But to be honest, Steve and I didn't see the success that lay before him. Yeah, I was a big fan of his over at WCW, but I never knew he would almost become bigger than the game itself. Man, I can remember producing those early promos for Austin. He how, would, how would he know at this age that he's going to be bigger than Triple H? <laughs> bigger than the game itself? Yeah. That's pretty good. Well, he didn't say the game himself. Uh, Um, He hated that monotone nonsense. Interesting, he hated it because that was his first instinct for the Stone Cold character, too, was monotone. Right, I know, right? But it was... Yeah, but it's still creepier the way he did it that. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't don't remember the Ringmaster talking at all, to tell you the truth. I I, I do vaguely remember like a... uh, Like one little thing, like at his first, when when he debuted... In in December, I think of ninety five. Yeah, I remember him being in the ninety six uh, Rumble. Yeah, he's there. He's in. I remember. I, I remember. It's this is this is what they were like in back then. Is that they would debut these guys and make a big deal out of them, and then you'd forget about them. Yeah. And I remember <clears throat> they made a big deal out of them, and I'm like, yes, Steve Austin's here. And then you like they didn't talk about him or do anything big with him. And I, when he came in the Royal Rumble, I was like, oh shit, Steve Austin's here. I forgot. You know, it was weird. Yeah. Yeah, that would happen at Rumbles because they needed to dig deep down into their roster, including the people that they had kind of cycled out and given up on, but they still have utility on that night. He hated that monotone nonsense, but it was what the boss wanted. So he did it. No complaints. The character of the ringmaster went on for a while until Steve himself busted out of that shell and refused to be denied. As Vince and I were hitting strides and becoming comfortable uh, with each other, 
so was Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'll never forget, right around the time he won the King of the Ring, there was an episode of Raw in which Austin sat in color for the first time. It was one of those true TV moments, like seeing Gene Simmons spit blood live and in person from the front row of Madison Square Garden for the first time when I was six. My mouth hit the floor. What had we been thinking? Boss Austin Raw. This is the appearance that he's talking about. Headed into King of the Ring, Mark Merrow's in the ring, and Steve Austin is just going to be stone cold, and we're going to have to deal with it. All right. Austin will face the winner of the Wild Man Mark Merrow Owen Hart matchup. And I feel sorry for that man. I really do. I don't show a lot of sympathy towards a lot of people. Whoever it is, whether it's Owen Hart, whether it's Mark Merrill, he's going down. One, two, three. That's just the way I see it. What about attitude? What about your attitude as of late Stone Cold Steve Austin? Well, it's like I said, you, you really get bitter and frustrated when you've been held back and back and back. And it's, that, I think that's what teaches you a lesson how to deal with people. And I'm dealing with the people in the World Wrestling Federation the way I see fit. And it's a win-at-all-cost attitude, and it seems to be working for me. I got the same problem, Steve. Oh, come on, stop it. What? Going up to the top rope, wall man, Mark Merrill. Oh, no. Nobody howled. He moved right out of the way. Devastating maneuver, and wild man, Mark Merrill, taking perhaps an unnecessary chance, wouldn't you say, Stone Cold Steve Austin? It took a smarter man than that to beat Steve Austin. He's got a lot of physical tools. I'll give him credit. But come on, man. Oh, man, man. (laughs) Is that where you got it from? (laughs) No, I never fucking, I no, I never, I don't remember that at all. It hits our ear just naturally now, but for its yeah. time, you know, this yeah. is this before King of the Ring. That's crazy. He's just on a roll. He's on a roll, and Vince Russo just remembers fiery. this. Fiery, yeah, it really is. It, it's the kind of thing where this guy doesn't give a fuck. Like, yeah, he doesn't care who he's in the booth with. If he's on live television, it's going to be about him, and he's going to make his. He's going to say his piece, and that's awesome. You can get behind that. Yeah. As uh, Jim Cornette remembered in uh, James Dixon's aforementioned Titan Shattered book, Vince didn't give a shit about Steve Austin anymore. Nothing was working and all else had failed. So Steve was told to just go out there and fucking do it. Do whatever. Do whatever. Um, And then when Vince received word Teddy Biasi was going to leave, this was shortly after Beware of Dog. Um, According to Dixon, he received the word during a live raw taping that DiBiase was the latest to depart. Mm -hmm. And he was upset. Another one of his talents hadn't approached him face-to-face to to tell him he was uh, leaving. According to Dixon's book, DiBiase is uh, confronted by Vince, and uh, he says, bluntly, I got your letter. You finish tomorrow at the pay-per-view. DiBiase was disappointed. His departure was not entirely amicable uh, and apologized for how the tenure was ending. The two shook hands, parted ways, and later that day, DiBiase was asked to shoot an angle in which he declared that should Steve Austin lose to Savio Vega, the second run of their strap match that he would leave the WWF forever. And there it is. DiBiase was gone for good as Austin lost to Savio Vega. Good. Before his career took off here at the Jesus. King of the Ring. It's funny that, you know, in the magazine piece, they they um, they talk about it as if he didn't, you know, mean to lose. But then I do remember a promo, if I'm not mistaken, on TV where he says, I lost on purpose. Lost what match? Just Savio Vega on purpose? Yeah, so to get rid of DiBiase because he was sick of him. Interesting. I don't remember that. Solar System, if you can assist. Yeah. Your photographic Maybe memories. I'm wrong. Yeah, he but did. I kind of remember that. He did do promos along the lines of, you know, I could care less that DiBiase's gone. Like, it's not yeah. a loss to me. But I'm not sure he ever said I lost the match on purpose. But I, it's, it was so weird that he went from not being able to really get it done against Savio Vega to uh, 
King of the Ring saying I'm going to be the next WWF champion in the space yeah, of like right, a month and a half. Right. That's how it that's right. how it goes sometimes. And he was savvy as fuck too because uh well, I don't know if he knew this quite at the time. Gene and Clark says um the tax man sent a big past due tax bill because they had a Irwin? Yeah. Irwin Arshister Mark Rotundo sent him letter, Mike Rotundo rather, sent a letter to the house. I guess they hired some gimmick tax attorney who got them in a hole that they didn't know about until a big fat bill landed on their doorstep. Maybe that informed why Steve Austin made the next move he did after King of the Ring. Uh, or maybe it didn't, but according to uh, Jim Ross's first book, shortly after King of the Ring, Austin um, wanted to renegotiate his deal with the WWF. Wow. He wanted a richer contract. And JR, who was just about to become VP of Talent Relations, um, Jim Dillon was still there and just about to leave. JR was his sort of second in command. Uh, Dylan to go back to, of, uh, of course, WCW and play the on-screen commissioner. Um, JR remembers Austin exemplifying what he was trying to do as head of talent relations. WCW is featuring past WWF main eventers to great effect, but we were assembling guys who were hungry for success, who from mm. bell to bell could get the job done. And I knew Austin could do it because I had called his WCW matches in the early 1990s. And in that whole time we were together in WCW, we were friendly, but not what I'd call friends, but that was about to change. Hey, Jim. My year-to-date money isn't what I think it should be, Austin said, after our King of the Ring pay-per-view in which he'd been crowned king. I was hoping for more. I'm not. I'm working hard, getting over. I told him, wait right here. I'll go talk to Vince right now. Austin had just cut the blistering Austin 316 promo at King of the Ring that I knew Vince loved. Okay, so Jim Ross says Vince loved the promo. Vince Russo says Vince didn't even understand the promo and insisted, in fact, Austin 316 be taken off the cover of the magazine, bro. What promo? Exactly. Well, you, what's, a, what's a promo? Uh, what are you uh, promoting? What's a promo? What are you doing here? Who are you? Why are you? My, why? You're asking the deep questions real quick. Where's my spaghetti? Uh, How about that? So I'm, 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 I'm trying to have my, my, my seasoned steak and cheese and vegetable wrap. What's going on? Where? Is it going on? <laughs> everywhere, Vince. It's going on everywhere. Oh, by the way, boss, Roland Stewart. And I want you to think about the degree to which his innermost thoughts echo off the walls when we can't fall asleep at night. You know, that that's kind of what that's kind of the frame of mind I think is appropriate as we continue to discuss the nineteen ninety six King of the Ring. Would you agree? Is that fair to say? Just, just not. Just forget it. Just Austin. Just, what? What do you want? Vince and I both knew Steve was going to be pretty special, but Steve was not happy because he felt undervalued, underappreciated <laughs> right away. Steve's like, he sniffs like some momentum, and he's like, "Oh, I'm not happy with the, the numbers, hey, son." You understand what I've been doing out there? For God's sake, what the hell's going on? <laughs> so I mean, fuck. I don't know, Steve, it's the same contract you signed before. Nothing's happened to it. What do you mean what's going on? God damn it. I'm out there taking lives. <laughs> well, we didn't ask you to do that. I know you want to get the character oh, over, sure, Steve. I just, I, just, I just made myself really dizzy all of a sudden. Yeah, it'll happen. Oh. <laughs> I'm out there taking lives. Yeah, Steve, that, that's exactly why you're not getting a raise. <laughs> Well, I mean, Steve, that is part of the problem, actually. <laughs> the police are here, Steve. You know, we, we wanted you to take bumps, not lives. And, and right. unfortunately, there are people 
who are coming after you now, and we have to find a way to cover this up so that we don't get in trouble. And um, you've put us in a, you know, and in, in you want to raise? God damn it, I want a goddamn raise! <laughs> he um, says, and, okay, you ready? And you want to raise? And he says... God damn it, I want a goddamn raise. He, re- he repeats it back to him. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Vince. It is bullshit. It just it's a it's a never ending well. It's a bottomless well of bullshit with this guy. He's always on. Always on. You know how exhausting that is? Yeah. He's always, always on. Do you want to know what one of the most... How to describe it? So there's a... there's a. Sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm going off and, 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 and I say something. And I don't realize what I said. Well, I mean, you, you know that part. But then, but then, until what, the moment that you begin to repeat it back to me, yeah. And I realize, like that moment right there. God damn it! I want a goddamn raise. After I, Vince asks, "What do you want?" <laughs> I didn't. You know, like the moment that you were about to repeat it. Before you even repeated it, I realized what I'd said. And it just like, and it just made me keel over. Okay. Like I almost fell out of my chair. God damn it. I want a goddamn raise in response to what do you want to raise? And it's him, like, because the thing is, he's got fake anger because he's trying to negotiate. You know, he's trying to, like, get leverage. So that's even funnier. Like, he's pretending to be unhappy. Well, Steve, are you you unhappy? Yeah! (laughs) Sounds like you're unhealthy, too. Yeah! What are you fucking bleeding out? I'm crying! I'm unhappy! Debra's in the mm. background, like, well, maybe you shouldn't fucking drink so much. <laughs> uh, what? Could, could someone um, just... Steve, there, there is a time and a place, and this is neither the time nor the place, and that notwithstanding, I... I, I just... Steve, can we give him a raise, please? Flash cut to a drone shot of Austin on the ATV driving down his fucking 3,000 acre property. (laughs) That's how it ends. It's like uh, Matt Damon driving off at the end of Goodwill Hunting. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, Oh, shit. Vince and I both knew Steve was going to be pretty special, JR writes, but Steve was not happy because he felt undervalued, underappreciated. I walked into Vince's office and said, Austin's out there and he's fucking fuming. (laughs) 
All of a sudden, he's pissed off. Vince and I went through his deal, which was a fairly standard contract for a mid-card guy with solid skills and a fair amount of experience, which was how the company had viewed Austin when he came in. It was now clear Austin would be more than Vince had originally thought, and Stone Cold had quickly figured out that he was worth more than his original contract. Vince asked me what it would make take to make him happy. I gave him a number that was much healthier than Austin's original deal called for. Without missing a beat, Vince said, do it. I went back to Austin and said, okay, let's just tear up your original contract and sign you to a new one, and it won't be the last contract you get. That was what he wanted to hear, and for Austin, it just wasn't a matter of dollars and cents. He liked knowing that he was appreciated. You know, in WCW, I injured my arm, and they fired me with a FedEx, Steve said. Uh, I'm not like WCW, Steve. Austin smiled. It was a very, very rare occurrence. He saw we cared about his issues and were willing to solve this problem immediately without any BS, without any corporate runaround, without scheduling a series of meetings. He put out his hand for me to shake. You're all right, man. And with that handshake, we began to understand each other a little better. JR. Maybe we should Maybe we should fire people like that, though, when they get injured. It's really making it less awkward. It's a hell of a deal. J- J- FedEx them. J- James, that's a hell of a deal. We talk, talk about maybe the legalities of that? I mean... I'd like to fire plenty of people that are injured right now. I, I think that's not a, I mean, is there, can we, can I get a bunch, can I get some, um, you know, some literature as to what it is, le- legally speaking, that we can do in regards to firing people who aren't actually present uh, in person at the company for specific dates? I would love to start firing people from home. Remotely. Remotely, Yes. Like, if they're injured, I would love to just fucking fire them and then rehire them later if I desire. But these desires are are fleeting. And I, quite frankly, don't give a shit about these people who work for me. And I would like to be able to fire them without looking them in their eyes because I have better things to worry about. Mom! And so back to Shawn Michaels' frame of mind, because his 1996 title run, you know, it's pretty much eight months, nine months of, uh, you know, a a glimpse at what it's like for him to carry the ball, right? To truly be the guy with all the pressure on his shoulders. Sure, sure. And we never really get back there. As wonderful as a career as he had, he never had the run, I don't think, with the belt beyond just this one year. No, he had, like, the... This through, I mean, if you even want to include after he wins it back in, in January at the Rumble, it's like, and he has it for another month, like this, that, that is, that is his run. I mean, it's we like kind of in, in 97, you know, but like not really, he was just holding court for Steve Austin. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, he was. And he was so tied up in the Bret Hart behind the scenes drama, you know, and, right, and the injuries right. that he suffered and things like that, that it was just sort of a, a start and stop proposition with Shawn Michaels, you know, through the rest of the attitude era until his 2002 comeback. It was just like, yeah, Shawn's back. Okay. You know, we'll get two months of four and a half star matches and then he'll disappear for another five months. You know, it just right. doesn't, it's not a run befitting a champion in terms of like, you know, the Bret Hart run, you can picture it. The Hulk Hogan run. Right. You can, even right. the Warrior run, you can picture it. You know, the Sean run, you can. It's closer to the Warrior run in terms of, you know, duration and kind of similar reasons why it kind of unwound at the end. But I think one of the values of King of the Ring 96 is they're still in like Sean's the guy mode to the point that he can elevate 
a Davy Boy Smith to a pay-per-view headliner and they feel yeah. like, you know what yep. I mean? Yep. That yep. Sean's a, enough of a going concern that that's a viable main event. And so as Sean's talked about in his book and other places, he's coming off the Beware of Dog pay-per-view, very frustrated, very angry um, with how that whole thing went down. Just feeling like, you know, he's supposed to be having the absolute best matches of his life and things aren't going right when they really, really need to now that he's got the strap. So he's feeling that pressure. So. Wait, what does he mean by that, though? Like, so one thing happened. Like, is, is everything going wrong? Yeah, it seems like he's, yeah, it seems like he's getting a, I mean, a he lot has, of... He has what everyone considers to be a, a, a killer match with Diesel. I've never seen it. At, um, oh, yeah, great match. At Good Friends, Better Enemies. And then he just has the, the flub that isn't even his fault with Bulldog and that whole pay-per-view. No, it's not his fault, but they, they came back. By the time that match was to hit the ring and they shat on it, you know, but that was sort of like circumstances beyond his control, but he still was unhappy with the match anyway. It's not like it didn't happen. It did happen. It's not like the power outage happened during that match. So he did get kind of a fair shake at it. I think he's talking more about everything after uh, Hall and Nash leave, you know, that that's kind of like when he's truly alone on the ship, you know, as far as. He doesn't have the power structure and the support structure around him that he's used to, you know, sort of like this, this, uh, I don't know, this cocoon around him so that he can throw his fits and have his attitude and and have enough of a power support structure around him that he can just sort of march on and do whatever he wants. Here it's like a, a lot more... Well, whose fault is that? That's exactly it. Mm, Sean, whose finally, fault is that? Finally, it can be no one else's fault but Shawn Michaels, and it gets to him, I think is, is what I'm trying to say here. Um, you know, he said he, he considered the, um, uh, you know, that, that pay-per-view a very important one. Um, but felt that he had a stinker at, at Beware of Dog. Uh, Nash is, is no longer around, and he'd be somebody that would show him, you know, the lighter side of things when he was having a confidence of uh, a crisis of self confidence or something. Call like him. That. Couldn't say hey. I know, pal, seriously, bud. I think that's kind of what Jr. was hinting at when he's like rolling his eyes at the closeness of the click. It's like, yeah, they're abs- they're everyone's absolute best friends. When in the same lo- when they're in the same locker room trying to grow their paychecks in in, in concert. Right. But when right. their financial interests diverge and different people are cutting checks, suddenly that friendship is uh, uh, a little shakier, or at least, you know, it, it sort of reveals the true nature of the friendship. Hey, you know, I look heartbreak. I can't talk right now, man. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I feel you. I feel you, buddy. But uh, you know, um, I'm actually on my way out right now. You know, Scott and I. You know, we got to go. Uh, you know, we got to go conquer a town. So. You know, best to you, buddy. Hope you do well. That's you right. Know? Right. Just uh, you know, don't, don't don't take it so seriously. You know, it's fucking fake. It's a, it's a fucking TV show. <laughs> yeah, you Sean know? always needed somebody to remind him it's fucking fake when he felt disappointed when in his. He does, when he does some fucking moonsault off the right. top rope to the floor. <laughs> right. Hey, it's, hey, you know what? You're not fucking hurting yourself, right? Jesus Christ! I'm just wondering why the world champ is coming off his feet. That, that, that was Scott. That was Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know exactly. You know all I gotta do is fucking stand around, raise my arm, and people go fucking nuts, and I sell about two thousand seats. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Bump, <laughs> that's about it. Bump up a rating point. <laughs> <laughs> so you know he's having matches with uh, obviously Davy Boy. He's working Goldust actually in the house show circuit. If you went to see Shawn Michaels, well, I remember. You yeah. know, I remember. Um, I remember uh, the uh, the after mags talking about the the Goldust 
Triple uh, Triple H, uh, Shawn Michaels matches. It's like a house show. Program. I remember they had. Um, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. They had a ladder match, right? They did, for the yes, title? yes, they yep. did. And maybe more than what one. The fuck is Goldust doing in a world title match? Yeah, well, you know, you got to remember how hot that gimmick was in '96, coming off the Ahmed angle. I mean, it was. I mean, really yes, fresh. no, no, no question, no question. But world title? Yeah, I mean, what what other heel did they have? <sighs> Whatever, man. You know, Owen Hart. Yeah, well, yeah, that could have been. That that might have been an option. Um, maybe they would have gotten there eventually. But yeah, d- let's not forget. Like, let's not confuse the lameness and the swing and misses of the '98 Gold Dust, um, and you know the mid card extraordinaire Gold Dust of the 2000s, early 2000s, with the 1996 Gold Dust, where it was like this thing is really edgy. This thing really gets people talking. How far I mean, can we push it? I agree with you. I agree with you on that. I just it didn't seem like a main event heel to me. Yeah. Even then. I think they were so uh they were so hurting for heels that actually registered as big time heels that he was probably the closest they had on roster to someone who truly elicited the kind of hatred they felt was like a prere- yeah. prerequisite for a touring babyface world champion to defend against in the house shows. You know, Goldust to Shawn Michaels in ninety six is kind of like, I don't know, Killer Khan or Kamala or like, you know, a guy that yeah. Hogan would go around the circuit with uh, defending the championship that had this sort of reputation and this this mystique around him, yet on television wasn't necessarily presented as the top contender and wasn't racking up victories, indicating he's next in line for the world title. That, that was sort of more how they booked their house show main events, I feel like, yeah, sure. in that champion era. So, um, you know, he's busting his ass, putting a lot on his body, doing these matches. You know, Sean's Why not Steve on. Austin? I, I don't know. I mean, we're sort of talking about a couple of months before King of the Ring 96, but I think it still would have been viable even if, you know, we're talking pre-King of the Ring, Austin. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about him being such a, a technical engineer, you know, even even before he he he, uh, he convinces them he can talk. Right. You know, why not? Yeah, technical engineer. That's a whole different department, actually, of Titan Sports. But <laughs> I guess he could contribute there, too, you know, rigging up the lights and whatnot. I, hello, yes, um... Uh, Steve, hello, welcome. I know you're part of the new, uh, you're 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 part of the new um, electrical technical engineer <laughs> department. Did Vince Very say to get to off? On We've got um, we got your uh, your 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 coveralls over here. You can go down to the basement and start, uh, you know, doing whatever it is that you do in the uh, in the electrical technical division of Titan Sports. Wait a minute, son. Did Vince say to get off on the creative services floor or the technical services floor? I uh, can never l- remember. List- uh, listen, um, I don't know what you like, listen. I, I don't know who you are. <laughs> well, Number one, let's start. You're there. not acquainted. Number one, we are <laughs> <laughs> Number one, we are not acquainted. Before you start right. acting like we're acquainted, let me make this very clear, Steve. Before you start asking me where I'm sending you, I'm telling you where I'm sending you because I don't know you. Acquaintance, we are not. Someone okay? told someone told me you're a mechanic. So I sent you to the, the technical and services And so I brought department. all my cars in. So you can, <laughs> you can fix them or kind of, uh, you know, give them a little uh, doctoring or whatever the fuck that it is that you do. All right? So you go on and, you know, you go down to the basement, to the technical, technical services. I picture like mechanical a... Mechanical services, a full, whatever it is. I picture a full Ford assembly line down there, <laughs> like with these big humming, like sky-high machines and... And then just imagine Steve Austin... In cover, in blue coveralls, like looking around with that fucking, you know, the squint. <laughs> I do like to picture that. As a matter of fact, yes, indeed. 
So yeah, Sean's maybe, calling. Maybe, maybe there's a long lost uh, movie uh, with Steve Austin as a mechanic somewhere that we can do on a cinemat. Hmm. Probably one of the um, the matches against Steamboat in WCW. I would say <laughs> that's Steve Austin at his most mechanic. <laughs> at his most mechanical. What we mean, by the way, when we say he was a great mechanic was go behind O'Connor roll block by holding the ropes and Austin flies backwards and flips over on his head and then takes an arm drag. Right. That's what we mean. Right. right. And hammer locks. Right. That's another so, thing. Right. Hammer locks, trading hammer locks, you know, you know, you know, uh, 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 reaching up to grab Sean, but, he, but Sean dodges, you know, like that kind of thing. Like right. looking around, tapping the shoulder, tapping it, tapping it, going behind hammer lock, waist lock into a uh, drop toe uh, hold. Know, Amateur drop toe hold into the uh, uh, front face lock and a smack of the head. So in other right? words, when we talk about a mechanic in wrestling, we talk about someone who really understands the finer points of these moves that pro wrestling created out of thin air and are totally fake yes. and would never work yes. in a real wrestling match. Yet yes. somehow pro wrestling has convinced themselves that knowing these holds are a sign of having like a real authentic wrestling base when yes. those holds barely even exist in a real wrestling match and have no efficacy in a real confrontation. It's spectacular. It's so it's, real. So, uh, so yeah, Sean's putting a lot of mileage on his body. You know, his calling card is going to be, I've got the best match on the card every night and as world champion that can only sort of accelerate that, that sort of value proposition for him. He's going to have to have the best match on every card to justify where he's at. So he's doing that and he's killing himself on the road and everything like that. But still he's not happy with what he's seeing in terms of the business results. He's not seeing the kind of results that would tell him his title run is a success. Kind of surprises me, he, you know, he puts it in his book like business is down, whereas everybody knows 1995 was the absolute dirt worst year for Titan in just about yeah. every metric. And I do vaguely kind of recollect that, that 1996 showed a bit of an uptick in popularity for WWF and that raw ratings improved I mean, and attendance I, I, did. I would I would expect that if he if he's not making, you know, Hogan, bad Hogan money, you know, or or or, or doing bad Hogan business then he's not happy. Uh, yeah, yeah, th that could be it. it it's interesting. I, I would feel that I would feel that Shawn Michaels, especially in 96, would feel that he has 10 times more charisma than Hulk Hogan and can wrestle 18,000 times better than he can. So why am I not getting, you know, you know, where's 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 my WrestleMania 3 uh, yeah. uh 92,000 house? Sure, sure. Well, even less grandiose, which I think is maybe even more possible in his head, is he definitely thinks he's a better champion and more of an attraction than Bret Hart. And if he's not seeing right. data that indicates that, that's going to bum him out. He definitely thinks that, you know, as much as Sean and Diesel were tight, you know, when you listen to Kevin Nash talk about like the WrestleMania 11 match dynamic and things, Sean right. kind of pissed him off because Sean was like basically, you know, saying all the time that right. the only time you've ever had a good match is with me and the only time people have cared about your programs is when I was involved might be true but that kind of stings too I'd imagine if he compares his title run to the guy he says he's 10 times better than and made worth right. a shit and he's not and he's not like it's not like a complete black and white situation right exactly he's not being yeah. embraced to the degree that he told himself he would be once he finally got that coronation moment um as far as you know it, it's kind of a bad proxy for the whole year but as far as the King of the Ring shows compared to uh, 1995. The 1996 show um, sold out 8,762 in, uh, in Milwaukee for $142,000 gate. Now, it's a much smaller building um, yeah. than the 95 King of the Ring, which I'm trying to remember. Was that Philadelphia, I believe? I think it was Philadelphia. Uh, 95 King of the Ring. I'll tell you in two seconds. I'll take a quick gander. Yeah, that was Philly. Philly? Okay. Core stage okay. spectrum. Right. So a much bigger uh, capacity arena. So that was the 16,000... 
590. So that's like, you know, double the attendance. The question is, though, if the 96 King of the Ring was in that building, would it have done as many? I would think so. I mean, I can't think of anything yeah. as cold as WWF around King of the Ring 1995. Oh, that's... Ugh. That was our second ever show because it was such a wrestle crap deal. Right. It was, <laughs> it was right on brand with what we were trying to say early in the show's uh, existence. Hey, you're absolutely right. It used to be better. So uh, <laughs> much bigger crowd, much bigger <laughs> gate. I mean, you're talking about a $311,000 gate for the 95 King of the Ring and $142,000 gate for the 96 show. The buy rate was about even, though uh, 0.65 for 95 was a bit above 0.60 for 96. Overall event revenue actually was higher for 96 when you consider probably higher, higher ticket prices. Um, right. $2.02 million versus a $1.68 million haul in 95. But if he was to look back at, uh, you know, let's say the 94 show, when, when it was very much about Brett and Owen and Diesel just sort of coming into his own, um, that, was a, that was a bigger money night. That was a $2.15 million night um, in terms of pay-per-view and all the rest with a higher really? buy rate, substantially higher. I mean, 0.85 for 94 compared to 0.65 for 95. And uh, again, 0. 0.60, even lower. And maybe people bought it because, because uh, 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 you know, Shawn Michaels didn't wrestle. Right, he's not even on the show. And maybe it does that's why better. They bought that one. Yeah, and yeah. it does substantially better than the show he was a part of, a key part of in 95, and uh, in fact, the part of in 96. So, yeah. yeah, maybe around this springtime, he's feeling a little, uh, a little pissed off. Inadequate. A little inadequate, yeah, and, and it's hard to know who to point the finger at besides himself, and that definitely won't make him no, feel good either. Point, you can definitely point the finger at Brett. Yep. So he just didn't feel he was delivering it on, on the bottom line. Um, as the champion, um, he was sort of, you know, we hadn't gotten rid of the old stupid hokey gimmicks, so we weren't quite at the cutting edge level yet, which is true. It, it kind of strikes me watching this show, you see the red, white, and blue ropes. You see the blue apron, you see the blue mats, yeah. you see the blue stairs. You yep. see the yellow tilted WWF logo in the bottom left corner, yep. and you see this kind of happy-go-lucky, happy horse shit Vince McMahon and the lead announced chair presentation. However, yes. that's what makes the Steve Austin stuff and the Brian Pillman stuff so fucking Awesome. Right. It makes it stand out because it's it's complete contrast to what we've been watching for decades, millennia. And it really feels whatever. like these guys are rebelling within the structure. They're right. not like right. reinventing the whole company in the image of their attitude. They're just saying, fuck this. Like they're, they're yep. literally in, you know, they're in the corporate headquarters and they're breaking desks and things. Yes. You know, right. And, and the security's trying to get them and they're in they just They just don't give a fuck. And that's. That's a very effective sort of a, you know, Petri dish for a gimmick like Stone Cold Steve Austin to really develop is when everything around him stands in, stu- in such stark contrast to mm. what he was representing, the flag he was flying. But that was part of why Sean thinks business was, was tough. I mean, he's looking across the pond at WCW and they're, you know, walking right up to the line and you know, they're not doing risque like sex stuff, but, you know, their programming is, you can take it a lot more seriously in terms of storylines. I'm doing a lot of sex stuff. <laughs> well, you would be with Sonny and Sable and Marlena. But you'd, Damn be, right I would. you'd be teasing a, a Marlena, Sable, uh, I'm lesbian. I'm not teasing anything. I'm teasing. I'm telling you right now, sex happened in my office. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm talking about on television. Penetration. I'm talking about on television, Vince. I'll put it on television. I'd say you wouldn't. I don't care. What? It's, what? Who? What? I'll put it on television. <laughs> don't try to say I won't. <laughs> Famous final words. From Vince McMahon. <laughs> and there ain't no one who's going to stop me. So uh, No one can stop me putting my sexual acts on television. <laughs> he 
he feels like at the time, Sean, my, <laughs> that the only main eventers in the whole company were him and Undertaker around this time in 1996. And then he says, why not turn Undertaker heel? Yeah. Why well, not? Right? He's working with mankind, but you know, that's just getting started. Yeah. Yeah. There's still more people to be turning on him. Um, and he felt he was too much of a white meat, white meat baby face for what was happening in the business in 1996 all around. Mm-hmm. And he definitely didn't like having Jose Lothario, his old grandpa, walking down to the ring with him. I mean, by this point... Why did they keep that for that for as long as they did? Why did they keep that? And they told themselves it's Bruno and Arnold Skoland. For sure, that's what it is. You know, they think that Vince is still in the mind frame that his baby face world champion... You know, has to have this sort of like a handler that like Hogan didn't have a handler. No, he didn't. He didn't. You're right. That's my guess. It's so weird. My like, best assessment. I mean, of all people, too. Like when they, when they, when they said, I when they said that that uh, uh, they were gonna that Sean went back to visit with or <clears throat> train for WrestleMania with his old mentor Jose Lothario. I went, who's a Lothario? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, every WWF fan did. I mean, like who the fuck? Like you know, at least lie and say he he you know worked with Bruno, and then you know put get Bruno in there, and people might actually give a shit. Yeah, Bruno was a. Uh, eh, I don't think I he was a phone call away back then. At yeah. the time, but you know, still, I'm saying anybody, any any old person, you know, from that era, but like that people knew about would be way better. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's, it's, you know, it's maybe Pedro Morales or something. It's interesting. That, that's not a bad suggestion. I think, you know, because there really was a connection between Sean and, and Jose Lothario, they actually had, like, a basis yeah, in reality to work with. nobody knows who the fuck he is. Not nationally, no. It, it kind of struck me, as I'm thinking about it here, that maybe it was a play uh, to get him over with Latinos in and around San Antonio, where Jose Lothario was a generational star to, you know, yeah. three or four generations of wrestling fans in his hometown, of course. And they were sure. planning an Alamo Dome for Rumble. Um it might have been that simple. Like, let's let's try to sort of get Sean over as someone that caters to the Hispanic market as well through Jose Lothario. That's that's another guess I have, but he didn't like it. He hated it, and you could tell by the look on his face. He doesn't even acknowledge that Jose Lothario was behind him when he's coming to the ring during this title reign. He's not feeling it. He felt he was too, uh, you know, white meat, too aw shucks. rude against your guy who trained oh, yeah. you. Well, that's you the know. story of Shawn Michaels' life. You kidding me? Everyone Jose. who... Yeah. There isn't a single person that, you know, Shawn Michaels hasn't met, you know, that, that hasn't that, that hasn't made to been to feel like Shawn Michaels was in their corner who then just suddenly realizes he truly doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> he did not. Yeah. I mean, maybe Ric Flair, because, you know, he's so like uh, fawning over uh, Flair from his childhood right. and stuff. Um, yeah, he, th- he thought he was too cute for the times, um, basically, uh, and, and felt like he should have been a heel instead. And the people didn't want to like him. And um he recalls Russo giving him the idea of calling his fans uh, the click like Hulkamaniacs, uh, but he didn't like that idea. He thought that wasn't really in keeping with who he was and would take him further away from, you know, that kind of streak of So rebellion. he wanted to be a heel? Yes. Yeah, he wow. felt like his real, his real p- place in the business was somebody who was like a rebellious, you know, cocky, smarmy. He's not wrong. No, he's not. I think the babyface persona fit him quite well. It was, it was organically brought into existence. It's it's not like all of a sudden Shawn Michaels came out and did a big angle and was a babyface one day. You know, it just yeah. by the end of ninety five he was so spectacular and the fans had become so sort of attuned to how special well, they, he was. They, they really I mean, you know, I I, I, I was there. I, I remember it. I it, they they kind of shot themselves in a, in their own, you know, in their own foot by 
putting him over so heavily before WrestleMania 11, you know, that even when I, even by February, when I'm at, uh, in Worcester, they're fu- people are going nuts for him. Yeah. When he comes out in the opening match, people are fucking cheering him. Pure babyface cheering, like not even, you know, anti, you know, that, that kind of anti crowd. It was full on. This guy's fucking awesome. We're cheering him. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And, yeah. and what he's maybe putting his finger on is what Steve Austin became, a guy who became the biggest yeah. babyface in the company by changing absolutely nothing about his character, but just by um, doing it. That's exactly it. And, and he was like that at the very beginning. You know, even when, I remember when we did King of the Ring 95, he was very edgy and not, you know, he had an attitude. And attitude goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah, it's what put him in the position for them to consider him as a world champion anyway, I would say. Yeah. But just like, yeah. same thing happened with John Cena. Same thing happened uh, with Roman Reigns. As soon as they pull that trigger, Vince washes his mind of what got you there in the first place. What got you so over and interested, uh, you know, get the right. fans so interested in you that they would even consider you for a world title run. And then it's like, okay, well, that's all well and good. But now we're going, now you're the champion and we're going to follow X, Y, and Z playbook. And you got to wear the, the sleeveless tuxedo and... yeah. You know what I mean? You got to kiss the babies and do the Today Show and all this bullshit. And like your fans have to be like this, you know, national tribe of glowering, screaming kids who buy action figures. And it's like, well, that's not how everybody is going to stay over. You know, it's not yeah. it's not going to work for every baby face. That's not the, the key appeal of every baby face. So he's not feeling it. Um, he felt like no matter how hard he worked or how good the matches were. Uh, business was not reflecting um, his increased efforts. He felt like the click idea was, was, was pandering to the fans and feeling a lot of pressure on his shoulders and hearing gossip, you know, in the, in the locker room that this, this Shawn Michaels title run is not getting the job done. And uh, you know, people were enjoying seeing him fail, which is, you know, his fault because (laughs) he made everybody hate his fucking guts. And, uh, he can act like, oh, that's just, I had no control over it at the time. I was like, no, you did. Just stop being a fucking prick, and then people wouldn't want to see exactly. you fail. Maybe, maybe, or, you know, come out and say, hey, you know what? I know I was an asshole, and uh, you know what? But I'm going to do what I can to uh, to regain your respect. It's really weird. Like, if you're Shawn Michaels, you, you think I'm here because I'm an asshole. You know, like, he's the one guy that could blow up at Vince in front of everybody and have a huge argument and still stay in the exact same position and suffer no ill consequences. Right. That was right. his calling card. He was the guy that could do that. He was Teflon Don in that category. And so that's the only reason he's world champion is because he acted like that. And it's like, it's too late. It's too late to undo people rooting against you now. If that's what, and that's, that's the business, you know, that's wrestling mm-hmm. is there. You're not going to get that run unless you prove to Vince that you will step on the throat of somebody that you shouldn't step on the throat of that you'll cheat on, you know, that you'll fuck yeah. your best friend or your friend's wife or that you'll abandon your family or that you'll move to Connecticut for no fucking reason. Right. When it's completely yeah. unnecessary to your job um, that you'll grin and bear the snow, you know, these guys he hires from the South from Jim Cornette to Jr. All these people fucking hate Connecticut. He wants to, he wants them to live there. <laughs> he wants to make them live there. And he wants, if, if possible... God he, damn it. Get your ass up to New England, you son of a bitch. Exactly. Be a man. Exactly. And you're going to fucking love it. <laughs> I love it. Yes. When you read I that, don't want to be anywhere else. That's exactly right. And that means you don't want to be anywhere else, pal. Especially the fucking and if I don't want to be anywhere else, you don't want to be anywhere else. Get your fucking ass up here and be fucking happy. J.J. Dillon's like, I really would prefer if you didn't talk to my wife that way. I don't give a shit who you are. You know why? 
Yeah. Well, apparently you do. You want to hire me as executive VP of whatever. I want you to get your ass up here, up to fucking Connecticut, move into a fucking house, be fucking happy like we all are. I'm sitting here thinking about it, you know, from Bruce Pritchard to J.J. Dillon to Jim Ross to Jim Cornette uh, to the Briscoes. Vince just loved hiring people who grew up in warm southern climates and forcing them to live in Connecticut. He just fucking loved that shit. It's where Christmas is, damn it. (laughs) That's great. So, uh... Russo is is kind of a background player in all this. He's he's observing yeah. uh, the, the situation. You know, Sean mentioned in his book that Russo would write some of those. You know, shout out to the click promos. Here's his perspective. Russo's that is on what's happening at the time around Sean Michaels. Uh, he wrote in his book during Sean's run as WWF champion. I wrote many of his in-ring promos, the monologues he would cut, and almost every one of his pre-tapes, a taped promo that would be used at a later time, in which he would yeah. hawk tickets to the next show nearest you. Now, don't misunderstand me. It wasn't that Sean wasn't capable of writing his own shtick because he was. It was just that Sean wasn't capable of coming up with the verbiage Vince wanted him to say. At the time, mm. Vince wanted Sean to be the sappy, make-you-want-to-puke babyface, the total opposite of who he was. Sean was a rebel inside and outside the ring, but Vince wanted him to be George Clooney. I had to write such vanilla promos for Sean. We both questioned it, but Vince was the boss, so no offense intended. But at the time, Vince seemed so far out of date, it wasn't even funny. 80s mm. wrestling just wasn't working. All the old world rules were breaking down day by day. I, I remember feeling that in 1996. I, I'm with him on that. Yeah, I agree. Just felt like the things that were totally working agree. were the things that didn't have the Vince imprimatur on them. They didn't have that kind of like, oh, this is this is Vince McMahon's vision of wrestling that we're seeing. It was like, those those things stood out like a sore thumb as like anachronisms, yep. as things that just you had to tolerate to get to the stuff that actually was interesting and seemed future yep. future forward, you know? And yeah, all these books come out all these years later and come to find out that the ideas that really did hit were actually ideas that people had to sort of fight to get Vince to believe in because his uh, his North Star, his so comfort funny. zone. Yeah. And we saw in 94, huh? And we saw in 94, 95 that he kept up with the hokey, gimmicky shit, the fucking Hasbro era shit at a time when there was absolutely no evidence that that's what the public wanted. But he just kept it pushing. It's so it. funny. Why, 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 like, what's he... Why is there, you know, why is there no, I don't know. It just, for a guy who, who was so about changing the business, you know, that was his whole calling card in destroying the territories and, and buying them all up and, and changing the, and turning it, turning wrestling into what it was in the eighties. It's just so funny how he had no foresight to really see the, the evolution of the business and where yeah, it needed to go. That it took him by until surprise it's like, until it's fucking like, you know, until, until he's basically clockwork oranged and sat, you know, and, and forced his eyes open to watch the shit that 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 makes him realize what needs to happen. Yeah, yes, yeah, stuff that he really didn't go for until he had absolutely no other choice. Yeah. You know, until like he was, people in Titan Towers were convinced that WCW was not only going to win the war that they were actually going to put them out of business. Um, so that's what it took. I think Vince's first creative flourishes, his mid eighties creative flourishes, were of the time. Uh, fortunately for him, he was young enough, I think, that he understood the zeitgeist of pop culture in the 80s and understood yeah. kind of like that Rambo style Americana stuff that just sold like hotcakes. We talked about it under, under the cinemata 
appealing to children at the cinema, appealing to superheroes, appealing yep. to yep. things that could be extended into T-shirts and toys and video games. And he just happened to have that idea for wrestling at the moment that the world was ready for it, whereas all the territorial promoters were not thinking of those developments and those sort of right. adjacencies at all. They were just trying to book matches and fill buildings. And to say nothing of the fact that Vince, you know, because of the nature of how he did it and put it together at 84, 85, and 83 to some extent, he just had his pick of the litter of guys who had already proven all over this country that they could get over, stay over, and draw crowds. And he wasn't a micromanager with those guys. You know, they had built up enough credibility outside of the WWE system that they would come in and cut their own promos and drive things in the direction they thought would keep them over and fill seats. And, uh, you know, yeah, he'd have adjustments around the edges and he would saddle some guys with gimmicks they didn't want. But slowly, I think what happened was he started to convince himself that really it's his creative genius that led to the explosion of wrestling in the mid eighties and not his business genius. You know, it had nothing yeah. to do with, he yeah. was it had very little to do with his creativity. I mean, just about every idea that was money preexisted Vince buying the wrestler. He just had the, the business acumen to make it look really slick and really appealing to the broad national public. You know, like Hulkamania and AWA is not Hulkamania and WWF. It's just not even in the same category. Right, right. The only thing they have in common is the word. But the way it was actually put front and center as the money-making proposition was totally different. And he's learning things from Dick Ebersol and all these new business partners, MTV, all these people yeah. who know how to do television at a high level that suddenly want a piece of his action. You know, so he's under the learning tree, too, at, at, at the same time. And I think, you know, come mid-90s, he just wasn't with the zeitgeist anymore. The trial was a huge distraction. He'd built his business on roided up bodies and that couldn't be a, you know, as readily available an, an option anymore to appeal to the public and get people googly eyed and look at these guys like, you know, GI Joe's come to life. And so he just kind of fell back on, well, you know, as long as we make them colorful, right. As long as I can sit here and go, ah, yeah, that's, that's a hell of a deal, pal. Yeah, that's a right, good shit. Right. And, have creative services and all this stupid infrastructure he'd built up around him that has nothing to do with pro wrestling, give them something to do. And he felt like he was, you know, still innovating in the industry. But the thing is, they're coming back with Doink, which was all right, and T.L. Hopper hmm. and Freddie Joe Floyd and, you know, Aldo Montoya. I mean, fuck off. Like, he thought he had built, like, this process to, to create stars, and he had not. <laughs> he was still in a position you know, of, right. I got to hire somebody who already knows how to get over. And then you know, dress them up in a way and, you know, uh, let them leverage our platform uh, to really go to the next level. And I'm sure he said leverage our platform more than once. So that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of what we, you know, that's the main attribute and the main uh, 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 goal as a corporate entity is to right. leverage our platforms. See, that's what he's good at, talking that nonsense. Well, I mean, I do believe that is best practice. Uh, yep. You know, creating a, a digital transformation, uh, creating bandwidth, uh, providing customers with a journey uh, to leverage their own platform right. and uh, right. disrupt the wheelhouse. <laughs> kind of like what he did with Tout <laughs> and the success that was and all of his other uh, Series A funding round ideas when they were that short lived time when they were like, we'll be a VC firm. This will be great. I mean, you know, we're we're dealing with strategic metrics at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, problem. With, you know, <laughs> strategic metrics with a customer-centric platform and uh, 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 innovative influencing blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's someone's. 
pumping the right words into his algorithm, but I'm not sure he knows what he's saying. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a win-win. Uh, hey guys, it's a win-win. am I Either the only way, guy? We empower, we empower uh, or organic optical um, diversity, that, right? Optical networking and and optical, optical switches and uh, at, with, that provides actionable engagement. Yep. Uh, integrated within a um, a uh, 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 sort of <sighs> analytic, intuitive um, right chain of of collaboration. Yep. Optical mounts, you know. I mean, yes. with um, fiber, you know, they got to run subsea fiber. <laughs> the WWE is a subsea fiber optic network. It's about moving the needle. It's about creating leverage. It's about being agile, and what is best practice for the digital transformative age that we're living in. Makes me so fucking sick. Hey, guys, am I the other one on the hill over here saying, hey, guys, the word strategic doesn't mean anything, okay? I don't know what you think you're getting away with. That's what it is. I mean, we're talking about strategic, advantageous uh, storytelling. Yeah, yeah. There is no strategic. There is only uh, opportunistic. That's it. Uh, there is. There is strategic. There is. There is creating, because with well, our strategic <laughs> placement, we 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 are discovering and creating our own opportunities uh, within the 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 bandwidth of the global outreach of the WWE and our creative um, systematic uh, ingenuity. Well, shit! I can't come back on that. That's a great counterpoint. <laughs> You really buried. <laughs> I do like the thing where I like when someone says like strategic doesn't exist, and he goes, "We are strategic," and we, yeah. He just then he just goes, he just subverts what you say, and then he goes, "That's great shit." Well, we are strategic, and well, st- strategy does exist, and as a matter of fact, strate- he doesn't argue on the merits at all. He just like says, "No, you're wrong," and here's what I was going to say, no matter what you say. That's fucking money. That's corporate behavior. Yes, it is. And we support corporate behavior uh, here at TLF. We are we are a, a corporate entertainment infrastructure. You know who else isn't thrilled? And I, I hope you Designed have your finger desire. around this time, who else isn't necessarily thrilled with his stock in the company? Um, have your finger on the trigger. It's Davey Boy Smith. And uh, I think uh, you know where we're going Whoa. here. Of, what? Of course, he's uh, he's involved in a storyline with Shawn Michaels in which his, his wife, Diana, the sister of, of Brett Nolan, um, or Brett Owen, for example, mm. um, you know, is, is showing maybe, I don't know, a passing interest in Shawn Michaels? What, what do you remember of that that kind of... Uh, nothing un, at all. That intrigue, nothing? nothing? at all. I, I, I you know, I, I have heard, I've read that that there was this, this idea of the two of them having this little storyline. I have no, no recollection um, at all of that. I don't remember ever catching on to that whatsoever. Yeah, she was giving him the eyes, essentially, is what was happening. And yeah. whether it would have culminated in her just luring Sean in to turn on him or what would have happened, who knows? Maybe Sean would have rejected her advances as the honorable baby face he is, and she would have went crazy and found some other heel to kill him. I don't know. Uh, Davey didn't love the storyline, but further just imagine, that, just, I mean, just imagine, like, Sean fucking Diana. Oh, absolutely. You know, literally, just, like, totally just ravaging her in a hotel room. Davey comes in, Die! the fuck's going on here oh shit oh, i thought you were telling her to die oh you <laughs> you meant diana i said die oh and by the way after montreal you're wrecking the family die 
Oh, fuck. At a Best Western in Calgary in February 1998. <laughs> Just fucking. Like, Davy Boy opens the, opens the hotel room <laughs> as Sean's coming in. <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? Did you come in my wife? Did you come in my wife? In my home, in her hometown. He waits for him to finish you, before he asks. Because, like, you know, the thing is, Sean was thrusting at a certain pace, and then all of a sudden he, like, stopped, like he froze, and then thrust. And that, he knows what that means. <laughs> yeah, that helped, too. That kind of gave it away. And are then, you, die? are you going to have a hot break, kid? <laughs> Are you going to have a heartbreak kid's kid? Kid's kid. Um, so, yeah. Are you going to have a heartbreak child? That did complicate things. Let's be honest. It did. It uh, did. Look, Diana thinks she belongs on television. It's that simple. I mean, yes, we've seen does. that twinkle in her eye enough by now to know. So I'm sure that had something to do with Davy's discontent. But really, uh, his contractual situation was not to his liking either. I think he smelled a chance to go to WCW and make significant money as he did uh after WWF fired him in 1992, very smooth transition over there. Hall and Nash went over there and got nice contracts. So, yeah, that's starting to um, become a very... Well, and according to one certain tome, there another somebody else wanted him over there as well. That being? Or, oh, Hogan, or, yeah. Yeah, they were buds. Yep, so Davey. apparently uh, Davey Boy Smith, according to the uh, James Dixon book, had sent Vince a notice prior to Beware of Dog that he was going to leave. And... Uh, Vince didn't um, get the notice right away. Um, he didn't actually get the chance to address it until the Tuesday night after Beware of Dog, which was when they taped the matches again because of the power outage. They just turned a ah. Tuesday night taping into a pay-per-view so that when you ordered the replay, you would get every match that was advertised just, you know, spliced in. Uh, so that's the night, uh, according uh, to Titan Shattered, that Vince gets a Davy Boy Smith's notice. And he was unhappy, according to the book, with a number of things in the Federation, namely the scale of his payoffs uh, as a main eventer. And uh, thought, you know, he'd been up towards the top. And so he should be compensated uh, to that level. And I guess didn't see his pay budge as much as, as he liked. Um, and didn't feel like his position on house shows, kind of putting over Ahmed Johnson, made sense when he was headlining pay-per-views for the World Championship. All the things you say when you're trying to get a, a bump in pay, right, basically. Right, uh, And realize they need you enough that they're putting you in pay-per-view main events. Yeah. And uh, he didn't like the, the, the Diana storyline particularly either. Um, Dixon reports the long-term booking of the program called for Diana to make a pass at Sean and to try to bed him, only for Sean Michaels to reject her advances. Jilted Diana would then return to Smith and make claims that Michaels had come on to her first. Oh, yeah, that's right. There would be like this sexual harassment yeah, kind of undertone oh, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'd start singing that tune. Yeah, um, yeah. Davy hated it. Davy thought he just you know was standing by while <laughs> basically getting cucked while Diana's trying to fuck Sean, and then the only she only comes back to Davy after Sean turns her away. Like, how right. does that make Davy look? You know, to not leave her right away. So he was cucked. Why am I the that. bitch? That's right. Oh, huh? and they were trying to sell huh? him like you wouldn't know, Davy. You wouldn't know, and. It's like, you motherfuckers, it's on television. It's on national television. How can right. the audience know? And word not got back to me. They never, they can never square that circle in WWE. You know what I mean? They never like can do storylines where like it's acknowledged that the talent involved watched Raw just like we did. I know. No, right? nobody, yeah, nobody, nobody watches no. Raw. No, the things that happened last week, they have no idea. They don't talk to each other in the days between television tapings and 
television presentation. It's even more pathetic do they, if it, do they still do that and there's YouTube and everything else. Like uh, Right, on-demand DVR, forget about it. They keep that shit up. They keep doing it. Um, so, yeah, like someone will do something behind someone's back on television and, and the, the, the person who was tricked the week before shows up next week with no idea that it happened, even though we had, sitting at home could see it with our own two eyes. Yeah, that, that's a big problem that they just can't get over or they don't feel like they have to. Uh, so, yeah, um, Diana's here. Diana is on the mind and on the tongue. And I yes. think true students of the TLF game know that when that's the case, uh, we take the responsibilities of plucking <laughs> excerpts off the bookshelf and we turn I mean, it over to JP. The only, the only true, like factually true book in the history of wrestling autobiographies under the mat. Yes, the, the the truth that was so true that they had to strip it off the shelves. Right, that's right. That, that to me that to me that is the only reason why they had to strip it off the shelves is because something here is just a little too on the fucking nose. The most fantastical direct quotes you'll find in any wrestling yes. book. Dare I say any book? I, I, I would I would second that of apparent nonfiction. <laughs> Of, 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 a, of a genre of its own, fictional nonfiction. So Diana's right in the middle of all this. She's got to have something to she say is. about this time period to help she orient us on she... King of the Ring. Huh? To help orient us as we go oh, yes. towards King of the mm-hmm. Ring. I think we shall go under the mat in a chapter entitled More Adventures. At the end of October in 1995, I began accompanying Davy to the ring as his devoted wife, He was still a heel, but my gimmick was that I would stick by him no matter what. The fans hated me. I was like Sandy Scott, the referee who used to look the other way when wrestlers were cheating. Who the fuck is Sandy Scott? Sandy Scott was a... Yeah, yeah, he was a... Okay. He was a wrestler in the 60s and 70s, mostly in Portland. Okay. Probably came up to Calgary on on, on, on the regular. All right, I'll allow it. Then the WWE decided to pair Davey with Owen. They were terrific together. Owen became the flyer and Davey the powerhouse. I was the common link, the wife and the sister. We were a heel trio. Owen and Davey often tagged against Jake Roberts and Ahmed Johnson. Both Davey and Owen hated being slammed by Ahmed. He didn't know his own strength. They said that he'd slam them so hard they'd see little birds. When Ahmed body slammed him stone cold steve austin said he'd have to wiggle his fingers to make sure he wasn't paralyzed yes ahmed had a move called the pearl river plunge a move where he would scissor kick the back of his opponent's head the story Tolstoy. <laughs> Tolstoy. oh by the way i'm confusing sandy scott with sandy Barr. sandy scott was uh, a regular in the stampede territory worked all, right. all over the country right. uh, the united states as well yeah uh, and, and also, for those keeping track, the Pearl River Plunge is a power bomb, is a tiger driver bomb, uh, not the scissor kick that yeah. Ahmed would use. His heel would knock the, the, the guy face first into the mat, then he'd pick up his opponent, oh, and then power bomb him. But the whole process is not the Pearl River Plunge. <laughs> well, I was watching from the sides when he gave Owen a concussion doing this move. After getting kicked in the head, Owen's eyes went vacant. And he, he ran flat-footed away from Ahmed, obviously unaware of his surroundings. His, he was wrestling on instinct. Owen ricocheted off the ropes, and Ahmed threw him over the top rope. He landed like a rag doll on the concrete floor next to the ring. This wrestling was real all right. 
Then they added Von Vader to our team of heels. <laughs> they gave us Jim Cornette as our onstage wrestling manager. It, let's keep in mind that that he was already with Cornette. Everybody Absolutely. was with Cornette. You know, and way I, before Diana even fucking appeared. A lot of 95 WWF is kind of like a blur for me, and there's a lot of blind spots I have, I'll admit. But I don't remember her really being featured that prominently no. until the Shawn Michaels 96 feud. I mean, I remember, yes. of course, 92 SummerSlam and everything. But I'm not sure they made quite a big deal about her being central. I think it was after WrestleMania when it all happened. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about 95. Sure. Yeah, but anyway, no, she's right. Now, now, uh, uh, hey, we Jim, were, hey, Jim Cornette, would you consider yourself a wrestling manager or a wrestling onstage manager? Are you an onstage manager or an offstage manager? Yes. What do you prefer? We were a little army and Jim was our general. Jim would lead our way to the ring, followed by Vodder. Then Davey and I would walk up to get talking together. Owen's hands were full because he would he would always carry two slammies wrestling Oscars and his world tag team belt. He'd, no, no, by the time, no, 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 it's okay, but anyway, he had run up from behind and budge in front of Davy and me, sticking his face right in front of Davy's face for the camera and smiling approvingly and pointing his fingers at me as if he were putting me over. Davy would then run in front of Owen and flex his biceps, which would propel Owen to run in front of Davy. I always worried when the boys had to go in with Jake the Snake. Roberts, because I learned later he was a drug addict. At the time, I thought he was just a drunk. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. He's just he's like he's like any Canadian, <laughs> like my mom. Yeah, <laughs> I remember one night Jake came to the show, and the next day he disappeared because he was on a crack binge. <laughs> or was Davy die? When when Jake was on his <laughs> no, crack she, bench. Yeah. <laughs> you, <know. laughs> you sure you sure they weren't both doing crack from a snake? Meanwhile, Vince was trying to get a live TV taping done. He was asking, well, where, where the hell's Jake? Where is he? He's in a six-man tag. Where is he? Turned out Jake was in jail. He got caught with some girl who was the daughter of someone in the police force. I felt bad for Vince McMahon because he seemed to have a lot of disloyalty in his company. He was trying to get his show off the ground. She wanted nothing more all those years than for Vince to think of her as like, you know, his in in the family. You know, that she loved that. Oh, yeah. He reminded me of my dad, especially the times when my dad had struggled. (laughs) Jake was a brilliant man with maybe a genius IQ, but he was troubled. He had a great gimmick. He would carry a burlap sack with him into the ring and stashed in the corner. When he was the victor, he'd empty a huge yellow boa constrictor from the sack onto his downed opponent. Burlap sack. <laughs> Jake's snake provided the inspiration for a storyline that was cooked up for us. Jim Cornette was absolutely terrified of snakes. One night they had me sitting in the crowd rather than at ringside because I was going to be told Jim I was going to be told Jim Cornette had had a heart attack after Jake scared him with this snake. Davy and Owen were supposed to be frightened too and run out of the ring instead of resuscitating their dying manager. 
But instead of just teasing Jim with a snake, Jake dumped it right on Jim, and it began threading itself around his body. Jim came close to genuinely having a cardiac arrest, and that made Davy and Owen laugh so hard they forgot to run out of the ring. That's awful. Yes. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's like the guy could be dying. and like, ah, you a fucking idiot. It's wrestling. I know, right? In addition, the storyline had me leaving my seat to tend to Jim in the back and getting distracted by a handsome Shawn Michaels. Uh-huh. Then to cover my flirtatious behavior with Sean, I leaned over to Jim and said, did you see that, Jim? Sean just made a pass at me. The cameras caught Jim pulling Davey and me into a locker room. Then they cut to Davey throwing a chair across the room yelling, I'm going to kill that Sean Michaels! <laughs> this angle was built for the big pay-per-view event in Savannah, Georgia, three months later in May of 1996. Vince split Owen and Davey up and Davey, uh, and had Davey wrestling as a single. Owen, uh, Owen was paired with Vader and Jim Cornette managed them. When did that happen? Owen and Vader? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know, like April. I don't, really? I don't remember that at all. Much like the soap opera, Vince McMahon eventually created with his daughter Stephanie and WWE superstar Triple H, I was supposedly getting involved with Shawn Michaels. Davey was supposed to be concerned that Shawn was making advances. This would lead to a big fight. Then I found out that part of the big angle had me getting on a closed-circuit camera seducing Shawn. It would have been so good. She if wanted I had it. Just she, gone with it. She wanted it so bad. It would have been so good if I had just gone with it. But I had talked to my dad about it. Brett, who had just lost the world's belt at WrestleMania 13, oh no. in a in a sixty minute hard fought match with Sean. <laughs> Forgot about that that Iron Man match at, at WrestleMania 13. Great <laughs> match. Great Me too, match. Yeah, I always forget about that one. It smelled like iron in the building because of Steve Austin's <laughs> forehead. Yes, I'm sure she'll get to it. But needless to say, Stu Hart did not like this storyline. In fact, in oh the uh, Titan Shattered book, he calls up Jim Cornette. Cornette recalls this and uh, and talks to him about it. And uh, you know, basically. He gets the phone call and thinks it's Owen Hart pretending to be Stu, which he would do all the time. Uh, so he just thought it was just going to be a rib. And no, Stu gets on the horn and screams at Cornette um, yeah. about the whole thing. And everyone blames Bruce Pritchard. And uh, Hart, Stu is just not happy at the portrayal of his daughter, you know, being just this complete trollop is the wording <laughs> Dixon uses, which I think is a good word. And uh, Trollop is a great word. Yes, Absolutely. Um, and, you know, Cornette tells Stu, according to the book, that he's going to speak to Vince about the situation, uh, the angle, and it was dropped shortly uh, thereafter. Uh, 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 Vince, um, Stu sounds pissed. Huh? <laughs> I, I think that's his pissed sound that he makes. Uh, uh, what? Who's? Who's? Dad, 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 say you hate the angle, dad. What? Say you hate the angle. They would never do this in the National Hall. I hate, I hate angle. <laughs> I hate angle. No, no, we like him. We like Kurt, though. Who? Oh. Oh, my God. National ah. Hall. National Hall. Who's Kurt? Gosh. What? Calgary Flames, National Hall. Ah! 
Pasternak. Ah! Hey. <laughs> Hang up, Dad. This is not working. We wanted you to call Vince and say you're not happy with Diana's oh. storyline, and he hits Who going. Who is this? Ah! <laughs> Who is it? Who is it? You called me. Who is that? What? Who? Who are you? I'm the uh. chicken man. Chicken. Hey, chicken man. I got, I got, I got, I got a. Hmm. Uh, you, got a bird, you got a bird with my name on it, too. You got a bird with um, my name on it? I got, and I got fucking, about four, four chickens on the spit going and that, in the backyard right now. The rotisserie just going over that and over. That 7-Eleven rotisserie you got in your porch? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's fucking Donna. Uh, Donna Reed's dining room over here. Oh, okay. who is it? What? You know, Butch's wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I got a tinkle. Please. As Stu, as Stu slowly elevates away from the speakerphone on one of those <sighs> railings you can install in your stairs that push your wheelchair up the stairs. Oh. <laughs> He's just going like 0. 0.3 miles an hour up the oh. stairs. Come on, you fucking piece of shit. Get up the stairs. Come on. Oh. Oh. Well, that didn't go so well. I think they're still going to do the. I think they're still going to do the angle. Oh. Helen. Helen! Shut the fuck up, you piece of shit! <laughs> alright, alright. I gotta go. Can I go on the stairs? I don't fucking care what you do, you motherfucking piece of human waste. I hate you. Alright, I'm just gonna go pee on the stairs. I can't move. Uh-oh. He says, uh, he says, he says, I can't move. And no one cares. I can't move. Oh, poor me. I can't move. Oh, shucks. <laughs> and then, and then a growing wet stain on his, his light gray trousers. It gets off. How do you know you're old? When you sell a piss like an orgasm. That's when you know you're old. <laughs> um Okay. Uh the Alright. Uh, 60 minute hard fought match with Sean who had entered the ring on a harness from the ceiling of the Anaheim duck pond. He wasn't crazy about Sean, about losing the belt to Sean. He wouldn't have minded losing to Steve Austin or diesel. Okay. (laughs) But Brett and Sean were always vying for Vince's attention. So he had a chip on his shoulder. He decided to put wrestling on hiatus while he pursued an acting career. The WWE's booking agent, Bruce Pritchard, and Jim Cornette approached me. Jim said, you know, this is going to be great. 
You're going to be making the moves on Sean, trying to ram your tongue down his throat and undo his belt buckle while Sean tries to resist. Your feelings will be hurt because he has spurned your advances. So you go back to Davey and say that SOB, that goddamn Sean Michaels, has been making passes at me, and I want you to put a stop to it. I want you to finish him. Davey hated this. He said, it makes me look like an asshole because my wife is making moves on Sean and I'm going after Sean. I should be going after her. Right. Jim rolled his eyes. Oh, you see, Davey, you don't know she's a bad one. You love her and believe her when she says Sean's trying to grope her. But Davey didn't like it. I was uncomfortable with it because I'm Diana Hart, not Sable. Oh, wow. There's a shot. Jesus. Everyone's got a shot for Sable. Every yeah, single one of these women. Right. Jesus. For one thing, I was using my real name. I was nervous about acting out the scene on TV, but I would have trusted Sean to help me through it. I would have trusted Sean to help me through it. It would have been really, really good for me to get that kind of exposure. Oh, she doesn't say that. Yes, it does. Come on. Anyone anyone's ever said exposure, like you know yeah. what kind of person you're dealing with. Exactly. It would have been... Really good for me to get that kind of exposure. It was what I've been waiting for my whole life. Okay, Diana. Okay. I was so stupid and stubborn. I should have thought of it like the Undertaker. He's not an Undertaker. (laughs) He's not really a funeral home director, but that's his role on TV. Is it? Is that his role? <laughs> He's got just this undead monster, but that's fine. Yeah, I know, but like I, mean, I guess he is an undead monster who runs a funeral home, I guess. <laughs> I guess it was the way Jim Cornette told me about it. He was so coarse. He was really laughing, and I thought maybe it was a joke on me. I didn't really comprehend the potential of the whole thing. I could have been such a good, bad sister. I got back to my hotel room, and I called Brett. He was absolutely against it. I think at the time, Brett did care about what I did in wrestling, and he was concerned about the way I would be perceived. But at the same time, he was mad at the WWE because he had to lose to Sean at WrestleMania. Brett said, You can't do that. You're Stu Hart's daughter. When Dad goes to the IGA or the Safeway store, and some guy says, Hey, Stu, I saw your dad on TV. God, what's happening there? Well, you just can't put Dad through that. I understood what he was saying. Yeah, it did. We were Stu Hart's kids, and we didn't want anyone to think we were brought up to, to take advantage of our father's name. My <sighs> mother has always said, darling, we'd never want anyone to think your father's daughter was that kind of girl. So awesome. Oh, I love it so much. The naivete, <laughs> pretending they're not carnies, you know, it's just my favorite yeah. part of the whole thing. Except you know what? I know you're that kind of girl. You're a <laughs> fucking whore. Yeah, read Bruce, I've seen you. Read Bruce's book about all the incestual, you know, back in, I mean, I'm, I'm being unkind <laughs> with that term, but, you know, like wives and girlfriends, you know, making their rounds. I see the <laughs> way that it is. You're a fucking whore. All right? Go ahead. Fuck Shawn Michaels. I don't care. I don't like Davy Boy Smith. I don't like your father. I don't like Brett. I don't like yep. Owen. I don't like any of you. Right. Go fuck Shawn Michaels. Fuck Vince McMahon. I don't give a shit. Leave me alone. Alone in my room with my bottle. You 
fucking cunt. <laughs> She's like a six month old. Leave me in my room with my bottle. <laughs> correct. That is absolutely correct. Brett advised me to take the first plane out of there. Then I called my dad. He was furious about this angle. I could hear him yelling to my mother in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, goddamn Bruce Pritchard wants Diana to appear as some sort of a tramp. So I, I think that's a goddamn disgusting. What do, you, what do you want his mother to be watching his daughter doing a role like that? <laughs> Can I take my finger off the mute button yet, Die? Like as soon as he gets a cogent sentence out, they immediately mute it because they know here comes a fucking string of like guttural utterances that are just gonna. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, in other words, your your Stu Hart impression. What is this? It's a bone. Yeah. 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 Do getting ready in the morning. That's all this is. Damn right. I love it. He snaps into consciousness for a second. And it sounds like he's just a little paranoid for like a half second. Like, huh? Why? And then he just goes back to making noises that indicate there's nothing happening in his in his brain. But he comes, he becomes aware just long enough to be like, wait, what, where am I? Like, what the fuck this happened? And then just loses it again. I heard. Oh. Just imagine, you see, his picture's too hard, okay? Yeah. He's just sitting in his chair, all right? Sitting in his chair in the living room and just kind of like, you know, just, just not moving at all. But his, his, He's got kind of lost a little bit of control of his of his jaw yeah. and his, so his tongue is just kind of sticking out, completely. At, you know, no control over that, but his tongue is just like stimpy. Yep. Uh, my dad was going ballistic. Yeah. Then Owen pulled one of his ribs, which didn't help. Vince had these 1-800 phone line rooms set up where wrestlers talked to wrestling fans and answered questions at so much money per minute. Owen and Jim were working. Who cares? So much money per minute. Oh, what a fucking stupid detail. I mean, it's a 1-800-9. Yes, we get it. it that's a, you're going to pay for that call. 
fucking moron. Um, Owen and Jim were working the phones when Owen discreetly dialed my dad, who answered. <laughs> oh, no, who answered? Oh, hi, it's Owen, he said. Right away, my dad started yelling. That goddamn Bruce Pritchard and Jim Carter, you know, what kind of perverts are they? I'm so goddamn mad I can rip their nuts out. Owen couldn't resist the opportunity. Without saying who he was talking to, he handed the phone to Jim. It's for you. Oh, my God. Jim Cornette grabbed the phone. Yeah, Jim Cornette here. In wrestling terminology, my dad cut a promo on him. But Bruce Pritchard was notorious for his impersonation, so Jim assumed Owen and Bruce were trying to pull one over on him. He decided to go along. Uh. He really hammed it up. Yeah, we're going to have your daughter go up there, and he's going to look like a goddamn orgy by the time we're finished. <laughs> we're going to have her French kissing her brother. We're going to have her. Uh, we're going to have Owen with his hands all full of her, uh, full of her ass, and Davy Boy will be in there for a three-way. <laughs> <laughs> I like his story a lot better, her story a lot better than the other one. Of course. My dad was just going nuts on the other one. He's going, God damn it. I don't like this guy. That's kind of horseshit. I don't want my dad. I don't know how to do with that. I don't want that. I got to get the chickens. Yeah, you do. Jim Cornette held the phone away from his ear, laughing, and looked at Owen, saying, Okay, who the hell is this anyway? Owen was trying to keep his laughter in check. It's Stu Hart, my dad. <laughs> Think of Jim Owen's Lappin. face. Owen's face. Picture it. <laughs> God. <laughs> While this is going down. Yep. Jim laughed again. Yeah, right. Then Bruce Pritchard walked into the room. Jim turned white as a sheet and started backpedaling and apologizing to my dad, who was way beyond being pacified. To this day, my dad thinks that Jim Cornette and Bruce Pritchard are really warped guys who wanted a perverted, incestuous orgy to be portrayed on TV with his kids. My TV flirtation with, with Sean was toned down considerably due to my resistance and because my dad objected so strenuously. Jim Cornette was sincerely afraid of my dad. Sean was good about it. I told him I really wasn't comfortable with the scenario when he said that was fine. We'd do something else. How about anal, Jack? <laughs> But I wonder what would have happened. But I wonder what would have happened Diana. had I gone through with it as planned. Die. Maybe it was my Lance, my last chance to star in wrestling. Die. Die. Maybe my being such a square cost me. Davey gave notice to the WWE. He had to give three months' written notice through a lawyer by registered mail to WWE Titan Sports in Stanford, Connecticut. At that time, Vince was losing guys to the WCW. Hulk Hogan still wanted Davey to join him there, but Davey had only given notice so he could renegotiate a better deal with Vince. Vince called Owen, Davey, and me into his office and said, Davey, look, I don't want to lose you. All right, come on, come on! Your family. He was really decent about it. Owen had already signed. He had no intention of leaving. He had the good sense to stay in one spot. Wow. There it is. Thank you, boss. I think she uh, put us where we need to be. Always. But no, no no, commentary about Davey trying to renegotiate his contract, too, at the same time. So that's uh, that, that that's important context as well, mm -hmm. one would think. Um, according to uh, Titan Shattered, Bischoff learns of... Davy Boy Smith's contract situation offers him a deal, and uh, it's pretty much to the tune of half a million dollars per year uh, guaranteed. 
Let's not forget that Davy Boy Smith, as we've talked about in prior podcasts, had also gone to trial uh, not too long uh, before this uh, regarding a 1993 fight he had in a, in a Calgary uh, nightclub where he basically guillotine choked a guy and, and knocked him out and got wow. sued for all kinds of things. And it was because the guy was drunkenly coming on to Diana, as a matter of fact, and tried to step to Davy, having no idea what he was doing or who he was. And Davy was mostly, you know, didn't know his own strength and neutralizing the guy and didn't so much, you know, didn't didn't so much attack him. And it was basically ruled a, a case of self-defense, but he had to spend a lot of money on lawyers to get there. Anyway, that, that probably uh, factored into him trying to score a quick payday as well, because he had to pay these lawyers. Um, so this is going down. Members of the office at Turner were confident Smith was going to come over. And in fact, according to the book, uh, he was penciled in for the September 2nd, 1996 Nitro. I invite you to consider mm. that. I mean, wow. Davy's name did come up a bit when they were talking about the third man if you recall, uh, in July 96. Yes. Yes. People thought there was a possibility it could be him. Uh, but Davey didn't want to leave WWF, according to the reporting at the time. And uh, they put the Diana angle behind them. And uh, it was kind of unclear as, the, as we entered the summer of 1996 if Davey Boy Smith was going to stay with WWF or not, keeping his cards uh, relatively close to the chest. Ultimately, though, um, he mulled over both uh, proposals and put pen to paper on a five-year contract with WWF uh, worth two hundred fifty grand per year. And uh, this was the contract that included, in addition to royalties and pay-per-view payoffs, um, trying to get Smith up to the level he thought he should be, this was also the contract that contained the clause that he, if, if he ever wanted to leave before it was over, he'd have to pay him a cool hundred and fifty grand to get wow. out of his deal. And if you recall after... Montreal, it's exactly what Davy Boy Smith did. He had to buy That's himself right. out of his own contract to go to WCW and flounder and eventually suffer a career ending injury and get as high as fuck. I don't see a problem with that at all. So that's the, uh, the Davy Boy Smith, Shawn Michaels saga, such as it was and such as it culminates for all intents and purposes at King of the Ring 1996. Now, after that match, of course, Warrior hits the ring along with Ahmed Johnson and to save Shawn Michaels from Camp Cornette setting up. Yeah what was the penciled-in six-man tag team main event of the July 96 in your house show. And as far as Warrior is concerned, we've touched on it already a little bit, but in terms of his return to WrestleMania 12, uh, very rich, uh, $1 million guarantee, as we talked about, for an 18-month uh, contract, 14 days working a month, uh, and anything above that with, with a different uh, bump up. He had all those things around, you know, merchandising the, the comic book, and he had a very sweet multifaceted deal to come back to WWF. Uh, they've been working days for some time. Months. Jesus Christ almighty. Yeah. They could use him for more, but they'd have to pay him more uh, to do that. Uh, very much, very Hogan-esque in terms of the uh, the considerations here, I well, would say. That's what he wanted. Absolutely. So, um, yes, oh, there's a licensing fair in New York in late June, right around the time of King of the Ring, probably days before, days after. Um, yeah. And WWF had a booth up at this, li- as the story goes, at this... Uh, at this licensing fair, uh, and WWF was using the always believe slogan that Warrior felt he had trademarked. Um, and oh. they, they were using it independent and separate of Ultimate Warriors if they had sort of cribbed it from him. So this pissed him off. Um, and uh, Vince McMahon wrote in some court papers, or at least he wrote in a letter that uh, appeared in court papers, or maybe it was a deposition transcript. Nonetheless, Vince is quoted as saying, this is from the uh, Bix and Span piece in Fighting Spirit magazine. As I recall, what happened on that was we had someone who subsequently was a thief. He's talking about someone who worked for the company named Jim Ooh. Bell, who later ended up uh, pleading guilty to mail fraud and 
getting kickbacks in exchange for directing WWE licensing deals. That's a totally different saga. But he's mentioning that in, in kind of framing what happened with Warrior. So yeah. we, we had someone who was subsequently was a thief, uh, which we didn't know at the time. His <coughs> name was Jim Bell. He was in charge of licensing. As I recall, Jim Bell had some sort of the always believe insignia or call it what you will at the booth. And that's the first I heard of it, as I recall. And then Jim went ballistic, Jim Helwig. And when he went there and subsequently decided again to take his ball and come home. That's right. Let me be the first take his ball and go home from Vince there in 96. <laughs> so, uh, yes, after that, Warrior was pissed and he started no-showing bookings. Uh, he no-showed a house show on June 28th, 96 Jesus in Indianapolis. Christ. Um, and uh, there, was, um, there was reports that he actually flew home. He was in Indy but had an argument over the phone with Vince and just bounced town and no-showed the date. Um, McMahon later would claim that Warrior held him up said basically you have to buy you have to pay me for a hundred thousand magazines every month <laughs> he wants he wants that as, what yes he, he what he, he wants the wwf it, it seems like what he's saying is he wants wwf to pay him for the comic books that they're putting in their magazine so instead of this being a solid they're so, doing to get the venture off the ground he wants them to basically be his main customer for the comic book. You need to pay me, Vince McMahon, yes. for all the things that I wanted you to do to begin with as a solid <laughs> for the Wolterman <laughs> Warrior. McMahon, as the piece reads, recalled having pleaded with him not to break the relationship once more. Don't make this mistake. This is, you know, business suicide, Jim, going home. This is the last straw. Strike three. Don't do this. I'm begging you. Don't do it. So you want me to pay you for the thing that we already are doing a solid for you? Is that is that what you're saying? So so you you want me? I just want to clarify here. You're asking me to pay you for something that we already agreed to put in in the previous agreement. You talk about <laughs> things that maybe people don't understand on the street, but I am the ultimate warrior, and I know things that you do not even comprehend in the bowels of your eyes. <laughs> I see. Things you don't comprehend in the bowels of your eyes. Yeah, a lot of cerebral power in our eyes. Um, well, Jim, uh, please don't do this. This will be strike three, Jim. Please don't do this. Please don't make me fire your ass. <laughs> you don't even know where the word fire comes from, you incompetent fool of the gods. <laughs> And as this conversation's going on, back in Phoenix at Warrior's house, a van pulls up with a sniper and he loads his rifle. I think Fairfax Partners is the company they are. Anyway, um, this comes out that Warrior's no showing dates. And, and, then he's, and then he pivots and says he actually took the dates off to grieve his, his dead father, who had just passed away suddenly. Um, on June 30th. And then there's this whole game of like, you never even knew your dad. You didn't talk about him. You, you barely, <laughs> like you didn't have a dad. You That's don't, basically, you don't have a dad. Yeah. Because exactly. your mom is my wife. You, you, you're you going to grieve your dad? You never cared about your dad. And we know this because we're your wrestling employer. Because I'm your dad. Yeah. 
Um, and you never grieve for me. <laughs> well, hell, if he, if, if Warrior's going to call Linda his mother in actual correspondence from 1991, he, that, that by, by proxy makes Vince his father, doesn't it? You know, Vince always saw Owen as a, father, as a son. You know, Vince always saw Davey as a son. He always saw Brett as a son. He, I wish he would have seen me as a daughter, you know. <laughs> so, uh, I think that Vince McMahon should see me as his little baby girl. The warrior goes on AOL or Prodigy or whatever the fuck and says, since Prodigy. my return at WrestleMania in March, there has been from day one contractual discussion for one reason. Titan Sports has not made the finalization of my contract a priority, yet I have fulfilled all aspects of the agreement we do have. Although the rumors speculate my recent no-show at the listed venue is contractually related, the truth is my father passed away. If resolving my personal issues and protecting the way I choose to believe puts me in the WWF doghouse as stated on the money-making 1-900 lines, apparently they were shitting on warrior on the WWF. Wow. Huh? I miss that, man. I miss those days when they could talk oh, shit about their own shit. guys. Yep. Uh, then so be it. Bow wow and kiss my ass. Always believe warrior. And then, okay. After that, he was interviewed on prodigy by Bob Ryder, according to the fighting spirit piece, which you really should check out. It's, it's, it's tremendous overview of warriors litigious WWF run to put it mildly. Um, at two of the house shows, they did announce that the ultimate warrior refuses to wrestle. So you know how Vince does it, you know, we're not going to let him, <laughs> Make us the heels here. Uh, he goes about on his uh, Warrior Whereabouts hotline, which he apparently set up as well. Oh, my God. To, I'm sure to collect 100% like Hulk was doing in Atlanta. Um, says this, I've been in contact with people in Florida that were aware of my father's condition where he did pass away. I got a phone call that things were taking a turn and I took the appropriate steps, made the appropriate phone calls, informed the appropriate people in regards to what I was preparing to do and what I had to do. And that's the last time I heard anything about it until I got back into town this morning. So he's saying, you know, everyone was made aware that he knew his father was dying and that this was going to, uh, I, I suppose what he's trying to say is going to lead to his potential absence from book dates. And um, he said he didn't even know his no-showing was being characterized the way it was um, until uh, the uh, Bob Ryder, who interviewed him for Prodigy, told him that. Um, Bixon's band reports that same day, Warrior wrote a letter asking the WWF to make a $25,000 payment to him for using Always Believe Without Permission. This guy, Jesus Christ. Such an idiot. Uh, in oh. recount, as the piece reads, in recounting the June 28th phone call with Warrior, <laughs> McMahon said he didn't learn of the death of Warrior's father until he read the Ryder interview. McMahon also, it's worth noting that Prodigy was a, was a rival to AOL. I remember those days, right? On the dial-up internet days. You could have yes. AOL or Prodigy. WWF was clearly a business partner with AOL. Keyword WWF. You remember the AOL station oh. backstage at pay-per-views? Of course. So Warrior goes on Prodigy and does an interview of for Of course them. he does. McMahon also didn't go on CompuServe. Well, that's that's really taking it to another level. That's a, a true escalation. Yeah, going on CompuServe was the nuclear option back in 1996 for wrestlers. <laughs> McMahon also repeated that Warrior hated his father, never had a relationship with him, and wouldn't have taken time off to grieve his death, even adding that Warrior had refused to pay funeral expenses when his sister asked for help. I love Vince always finds out shit like this. He puts yes. McDavid on it, and pretty soon Warrior's fucking, you know, his jilted relatives are on the phone with Jerry calling him a dickhead and you really should look at this and you know what I mean? God damn. He's such a killer. You know, I, it's my understanding. His sister didn't even uh, <laughs> ask him to pay for the, uh, the funeral expenses and he wouldn't I mean, even do I it. As far as I know, his sister doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> so I don't understand where, where do these, this is even coming from. Yeah. Last time I checked, I have a sister. More of a sister. Than, than, <laughs> yeah, more of a sister, which is to say none at all. Which is none. Exactly. But I do have a rod. A Bixen Span reports it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, you do. 
<laughs> yeah, we've seen it. Almost. It wasn't until July 8th, he reports, when Warrior returned home from the San Diego Comic-Con that he sent a fax to Vince and Linda McMahon stating that he was ready to return to work. That night on Raw, Storyline President, WWF President, Gorilla Monsoon, more or less stated the company's real-life stance. Warrior wouldn't be wrestling until he posted a $250,000 appearance bond. Oh, my God. This is the new thing. If we're going to do business with you, you've got to give us $250,000 in escrow, and if you don't show, we put it in our pocket. If you do show, you get it back. Warrior continued to sit at home while his attorney attempted to resolve the situation with the returning Sid taking his bookings, which, of course, was Sid becoming the mystery partner uh, in his place at International Incident. Um, here's, here's a copy of, of a memo um, from the WWF legal department a month after King of the Ring. Obviously, it was the intention of Titan, based on the representations of Helwig, that Titan would have the benefit of the services specified in the agreement, as well as compliance with Mr. Helwig with all other terms. It now appears to us that Mr. Helwig's true intention was not to perform and not to comply with the terms of the contract, but to create an instrument whereby he could then claim that he had obtained the rights to the Ultimate Warrior registrations. So they're saying he's trying to backdoor his way into saying, I own all the, uh, the IP here. Uh, following execution of the contract, Titan proceeded to discharge the obligations it assumed under the contract based on Mr. Helwig's representations shortly thereafter. However, problems began to develop with Mr. Helwig and his performance of the contract. These problems were complicated by the irrational and unpredictable behavior of Mr. Helwig in response to certain situations which developed. This is, uh, according to the piece, uh, Linda's mm-hmm. July 15th, 1996 letter to the Ultimate Warrior. On July 19th, a letter from Linda McMahon was faxed to Warrior's lawyer, Charles Baxley. Okay, so he's the recipient wow. of, the, of the letter. This is Linda's writing. Uh, the WWF stance was that Warrior never intended to complete the term of his contract and acted in bad faith to get the Ultimate Warrior trademarks signed over to him. After asserting that she believed Baxley, Warrior's attorney, was acting in good faith, she accused Warrior of negotiating with WCW, not paying legal fees owed to his previous lawyer, and also claimed the Titan Sports owned the trademarks in question because Warrior had breached the contract. So see, wow. a key term for him to come back in 96 was giving him the Ultimate Warrior name. Like, you know, other guys have been given ownership of their, of their name in the past, like Brett, who fought for that. Yeah. Um, not just the name, he had the name as his real name, but like, you know, being able to call himself the hitman everywhere. Um, so... They're saying this classic. Like you, you don't own Bret Hart. You do not own the name Bret Hart. Yeah, no. Sorry. Oh, oh, and, uh, that, that was funny. He mocks him. Yeah, yeah. Your... <laughs> Didn't you have a stroke, by the way? Can you have another one? Maybe you piece of shit. So you don't own shit. I own you. I own your intellectual property. I own your intellect. Well, obviously they prevailed in this battle because he couldn't call himself Ultimate Warrior when he came to WCW in 1998. Right. And that's why he changed Warrior. his legal name to Warrior, so so he could flip the bird to them in this oh God. Uh, this this dispute from '96. Could he could he have legally changed it to Ultimate Warrior? That's a good question. You can't, like, I mean, can you anybody can't, just? Ch- yeah, you could change your like, first and last name. Yeah. Like, why not? Could I do that? I could. I if I wanted to change my name to Hulk Hogan, it's kind of weird that? that he didn't do that. When you consider that the whole point was to still be able to call himself Ultimate Warrior, right? You know that that's kind of. Why didn't you rename yourself Ultimate Warrior? Why did you go with this weird one-word name? Right. Fucking bizarre. Um, I'm sure he told himself it's an evolution. <laughs> the tone. It's of- the evolution of the warrior to go and take away half of his existence. <laughs> so this is it. King of the Ring 1996 is it for the Ultimate Warrior so in the World Wrestling Federation. And I was, was so, you know, I was like, 
I was so angry. I was so angry when he was when he was taken off the uh, the six man tag. So angry. Absolutely. I wanted my warrior in the rumble. And you got to think, right? I mean, this is like he said, three strikes, you're out, right? This is it. I mean, he left him high and dry. He tried to backdoor in the IP. He uh, blew up at every last thing. Came up with six, seven different reasons to pay him another, you know, five, six figures. Uh, So fuck this guy, right? Forever and a day. Well, I don't know. If WCW takes off, starts kicking our ass in the ratings, and if Brett leaves for WCW after Montreal, maybe on December 17th, 1997, Vince is going to write Jim Hellwig a letter trying to get him to come back. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah, there's copies of some of the memos back and forth in in the lawsuit between Warrior and WWF, including a letter from Vince. Uh, This is dated December 17th, 1997, in which he writes, Jim, this deal is far more lucrative to you than our last agreement of 1996 and obviously far more long term. I look forward to building the resurgence of the Ultimate Warrior again. Just so Look fucking at him and desperate. his fucking worded motherfucker. You know, it never stops with this guy. It's all bullshit. It's all relative. It's all, you know what I mean? All up for debate, all up for negotiation. Uh, working days, it says in the, in the memo, 14 days per month for everything. Good stuff, Jesus. pal. <laughs> fucking love it. So, yeah, obviously he didn't come back, and they did the Self-Destruction Ultimate Warrior uh, DVD. And... Uh, when asked during his 2009 deposition why he went to Warrior again, McMahon did not remember. He just said, I don't know. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that is Warrior 1996. Jerry Lawler, wow. of course, wrestles Ultimate Warrior on this show and uh, does not reflect uh, positively on the experience. Here's a brief excerpt from his book, It's Good to Be the King. I had a short-lived feud with Ultimate Warrior. Some company in California just released an Ultimate Warrior comic book. This was right down my alley. I'd always wanted to be a comic book artist, so I knocked the artwork in his comic book. I did a really nice portrait of Ultimate Warrior. Had it framed and everything to prove that he should have come to me, the best artist there was. Eventually, we called him out to the ring, and I was going to bury the hatchet by giving him the portrait. He knocked me and wouldn't accept the gift. As he turned to leave, I busted the portrait over his head. Problem was, the big, tough Ultimate Warrior was scared of the glass breaking over his head. He was afraid he might get cut. I told him I was going to hit him with the backside of the picture, not the glass. It was just a piece of cardboard. The glass will break out away from him. I assured him I'd done it several times before on Memphis TV, and no one had ever been cut. So we're going live out on TV on Raw, and I'm standing there with the picture, and here comes Ultimate Warrior out to the ring, and he's wearing a freaking baseball oh my cap. God. He looks so That's, stupid with his hair looks, under the cap. I remember that. I think he looks so... He's so stupid. Why does he look stupid? Why? I mean, because Warrior's not supposed to be a human being. Right. You know, he's not supposed to know what normal clothing is. Right. Exactly. He's sort of You know, when he comes out wearing a baseball hat, like, where did he just come from? A fucking Yankees game or something? (laughs) Yeah, because he's still in full gear. He just has the hat on. Right. Exactly. Right. That's what makes it even worse is that he's in full gear and, and... You know, at least he's not in high gear. That'll be a whole different thing. <laughs> you think he'll be on full gear this year? No, he's daddy. <laughs> he's daddy camp. He can't. Well, you never know the way they do these graphics these days. He looks so know, maybe he will be. stupid with his hair and up under the cap, oh, Lala Rice. Just a moron. It didn't even really look like him. Never once had anyone seen the ultimate warrior wearing a baseball cap. It was an instant nice. angle alert, he wrote. You could tell oh, something was coming is? that involved him getting hit on the head. As far as I was concerned, that killed our angle. Eh, it, no, it didn't kill anything. The, the angle was exactly what it was going to be, even if you didn't wear the hat. You were going to get your ass kicked because there right. were a few other guys that, you know, with any credibility that they could feed to him for a 10-minute match, and you were the next guy. And anyway, I don't know, maybe Jerry thought there'd be a couple more paydays in it for him as far as extending the program. But uh, yeah, um, Pritchard doesn't remembers this very negatively, going nuts on Warrior for insisting on the cap. And 
and all that. But uh, that's that's just the way it went. So Jesus. To further string out the intrigue, we talked about that show closing scene, Shawn Michaels, Ahmed Johnson, and the Ultimate Warrior. Yep. We've gotten yep. in the head of Shawn Michaels at the time period. We've gotten in the head of the Ultimate Warrior, such as it is in the time period. What about Ahmed Johnson? And we can't, we, can't, we can't get on Ahmed Johnson's 1996, uh, June 1996 wavelength, to be exact, without telling the story of how the Goldust character came to the point that in the build to this match between Ahmed and Goldust for the Intercontinental Championship at King of the Ring... Goldust is basically making out with Ahmed Johnson on a gurney backstage at Raw. <laughs> yes, yes. Do you remember this angle? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Totally watched watched it as it happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it as it happened. Thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, it was unacceptable at the time. Really was. It was, it was a true violation you know, of Ahmed Johnson's masculinity. It, it, it was. I mean, you know, you got to think about all that. It was. It was. It was very, you know, it was very uncomfortable. A lot of the stuff the Goldust time. had done at that point, you know, he would actually fondle his opponents in the ring. You know, he would do that. Like, remember, 96 Rumble, he's behind Razor and caresses his breasts, for instance, from behind. Yeah, right. Oh my but God. it's all under the guise of, you know, trying to get a psychological edge on his opponent in the body yeah, of a the, match. The, the actual kissing was something very, yes. was very different. It wasn't in a match. It wasn't towards winning anything. It was just like, no, this guy's actually not just doing this to get a, an edge on opponents and win matches. Yeah. He's doing it because he's an exhibitionist in every, uh, in every sense of the term. I mean, it's sexual right. assault is what it is that we see here um, in, in any, any way you would slice it. But, you know, the whole idea is it's going to make Ahmed so fucking furious that he's going to fly off the handle, and he does, uh, including flying way, if you believe his version of the story, flying way more off the handle than the script called for um, when he comes to and realizes what Goldust did to him um, and tears things up and knocks over yeah. tables backstage and even tackles this jabron they hired to, quote-unquote, guard Goldust's locker room door. But really, he's there to get shoulder-checked by Ahmed, a high-level college football player, right through the fucking door at 100 miles an hour in one of the hardest core things you'll see in, oh on a wrestling God. show. Yeah, um, I know. It's pretty, it's pretty nuts. And so I remember that. The, uh, the fuse is really lit for a hot match here at King of the Ring for the IC strap. And uh, to get acquainted with the Goldust character and how it was landing at the time, at the public at large, such as it was, uh -huh. we turn to the Stanford Advocate newspaper, which in February, if you can get these clips ready, boss, we'll have you read these. It's in the... Yes, absolutely. Um, February 96, this is the first time, I think, that people um, outside of you know the wrestling world were catching on to what this Goldust character was doing and portraying, and clearly this is before the aforementioned stretcher makeout session with Ahmed Johnson, and... Uh, you know, gay rights groups like GLAD are not exactly happy with... I'm the, sure not. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, <clears throat> it's also because... I mean, think about it. When you really think of it, it's, it's not any different than... I mean, it's they were going more extreme with it. But in terms of him being a bad guy for essentially... You know, he was being portrayed as a bad guy for being gay. Yeah, It's, it's like, no different than, than, than um, what they were doing with uh, Mero as Johnny B. Bad. Or Muhammad Hassan. You know, it's like... Muhammad Hassan, right? It's like, was he gay? No, no. I'm just saying, like oh. playing playing on the prejudices of the audience to get heat, right? Right. And acting like it's hey, it's not our fault that the audience hates gay people or hates Muslims, <laughs> right? It's well, like, no, you, actually, you're actually 
you're actually, first of all, assuming that, and it's right. And further, right. you're seeing that it's absolutely true because how are you not going to hate a guy that carries himself like such a fucking prick all the time or a psycho? I mean, right, that he's like molesting everybody. Right. It's like, yeah, you know? no, yeah. We don't have a problem with a gay wrestler. We have a problem with a gay wrestler that that fucking brings unwanted touching and kissing on people. You know, just as we would not want that from a guy towards a woman on on the television either. But what do you they, mean? Right. We're holding up a mirror to society, etc. In other words, listen, we're, we're, we're listen. We know that America hates gay people, right, 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 and we're just showing it in real life. Not our fault that people hate gay people. Not our fault. Doesn't stop us from you know I don't know and portraying fan, reality, fan, fanning those flames within our fantasy, fan, fanning those those flames. Pardon the pun. And so you know, so fuck. I mean, just just you know, more of the same. And the thing is, Dustin did such a marvelous job with the character that he made lemonade out of the lemons. He actually took sure. this character and made did something transformative with it. And they can act like the WWF brain trust can act like that was on the drawing board from the beginning. But what was on the drawing board from the beginning, I have to say, and I'd be willing to bet was, hey, if this guy is basically, you know, coming on to guys in the ring, that's heat. And that's the kind of heat we can make yeah. money with. That's all. That's the beginning and end of the idea. All the rest of the fantastical Hollywood flourishes, the dialogue, the look, the presentation, the 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 the, the double entendres and triple entendres. That's a lot of that is Goldust's ingenuity trying to do something with the character. But right. right. At its heart, just like the mom and son, at its heart, it's about our fans are prejudiced and we need to get them screaming slurs at people to make money. <sighs> Fucking Christ. You know, so let's go to the Stanford Advocate. How was Goldust being received in February of 1996? Group charges WWE TV wrestling show depicts gay bashing. A gay rights group in San Francisco targeted the World Wrestling Entertainment in a recent letter writing campaign criticizing the Stanford based entertainment group for promoting gay bashing. The San Francisco Bay Area chapter of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation most vehemently objected to a nationally televised January 15th episode of Monday Night Raw, in which the character Goldust was beaten outside the ring after revealing his crush on another WWE wrestler, Razor Ramon. It's, quote, it's sick. It's the grossest thing we've seen on TV in years, said Glad San Francisco's managing director, Christy Belluni. That episode where Razor Ramon chases Goldust down a dark hallway is by far one of the most homophobic things I've seen on TV ever. The message to children is that it's okay to beat up someone who appears to be gay, Belluni said. Last week, WWE's fan services coordinator, Christine Wipey, Whippy? W-Y-P-Y? No. I'm not tripping over the name. I'm tripping over that job title. What is it? WWE's Fan Services Coordinator. Okay. She, opened, she opens fan mail? Is that what it means? Probably. Christine Whippy said, quote, We're an entertainment business. We're aiming to entertain, not to offend. Is this Mrs. Whippy or is this Vince McMahon on the phone? This is, well, this is Mrs. Christine Whitney. <laughs> we are in an entertainment business, and we're maybe to entertain, not to offend. In response to Glad's charges, Whippy said, it's not the intent whatsoever to depict gay bashing. Except when they literally bash a gay character over the head. That's fine. With something. Is this John Miller? <laughs> Goldust is a featured wrestler on the weekly television series Monday Night Raw and is the WWE's reigning intercontinental champion, one of three individual championship belts. 
no, two individual championship belts, one tag team championship uh, belt. That's, but that's, that, okay. that's, that's forgivable. His next appearance will be on WWE Superstars on the weekend of March 2nd and 3rd. He is also scheduled to be interviewed during Monday Night Raw on USA Network Channel 37 at 9 p.m. on March 4th. Glad's protest has taken the form of articles sent over the Internet and media alert messages sent nationwide to gay activists and publications. Glad has asked readers to write and call WWE to protest the treatment of Goldust, which the group says promotes gay bashing and acts of hate violence. Whippy said the January 15th episode was about two wrestlers trying to settle a score, as many in the past have outside the ring uh, for the viewing public. Whippy said it never intended, uh, it, Whippy said it has never been explicitly stated that Goldust is gay and instead called him androgynous. As part of his wrestling costume, Goldust wears a glittery gold outfit, a, blo- a long blonde wig, and dark black makeup around his eyes and his lips. On that word, androgynous, Vince, um, oh, pardon me, Goldust has talked about how when he got Isn't that the who gym- Charlotte's married to, androgynous? <laughs> what? Is that his new name in AW? Androgynous. Um, that when they first told him about the character on the phone, they said he's going to be an androgynous character. And Dustin said, okay, sounds great. And then he had to go look up what androgynous meant afterwards. He didn't even know what the fuck they were talking about. He, just, he was just taking the gimmick. <laughs> we're going to have you be androgynous. Androgynous Rex. Nice. Um... Balloonie of Glad and Gold said Goldust is portrayed in a stereotypical limp-wristed fashion, but the way he's turned into a villain and a gay menace is more offensive. More on page A6. Glad's media message sent over the internet said that in the January 15th program, which was rebroadcast January 20th, Goldust uh, lisped his romantic intentions regarding Ramon and revealed a heart-shaped tattoo on his chest inscribed with the name Razor Ramon. On camera, Ramon tracked down Goldust and savagely beat him. Since the letter-writing campaign started, Balooney said the she knows of between 50 and 100 people who contacted the WWE, but Glad has not received a response yet. Balooney finds the silence from the Stanford-based company surprising. Quote, Usually when we attack in full force like we did on this issue, we get a phone call from a producer saying, Please, call off your dogs, Balooney said. But she said her 1,000-member organization has not given up the fight yet and will continue to encourage people to call or write the WWE and ask them to turn Goldust into a role model rather than a strange, bizarre character to be beaten up. Whippy said her office has received a lot of feedback from viewers regarding Goldust, most of it negative. And he's certainly caught the attention of the majority of our viewers, Whippy said. But I mean, this sounds like a Vince McMahon creation, this Christine Whippy. Oh, yeah, for sure. Can you do me a favor? P- Patterson, get in here. What's up, boss? I need you to, I need you to, um, we need a, we need a, a job. We need some kind of, we need to create a, a position here. Don't we, don't we already have jobs? Uh, yes, but not for someone to do a job. We want actually this to just be a falsity. <laughs> Much like our in-ring competition. Say, base seems covered as well. What, what do you have in I mind? I know, but I need someone, to, a corporate, a corporate falsity. Cor- so, um, basically we need <laughs> someone to respond to this, 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 this fucking company. This organization that, that, that that's saying we're gay bashing. Do you think we're gay bashing? You know, are we gay bashing? Are we bashing gays? Uh, absolutely not. Thank you. Um, create a uh, department that um, uh, that 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 that's I don't know services people. 
uh, a people services d- department and and um, create a, a person, create an email address, um, uh, a uh, uh, a wimpy name, something wimpy. Did you? Did you what? Uh, uh, what? Who? Uh, C- C- Cindy Whipple. Cindy Whipple. Like the Whipple. Bad. <laughs> what about? What about? What about Chris? Whatever it is, I need, listen, I don't want anyone else to handle this. I'm going to handle it, all right? Okay. I'm going to tell them what's going on here. Yep. But I want to do it through this false individual's uh, uh, character, <laughs> all right? So basically, give me this thing, and I'm going to tell them that what we did was for entertainment purposes, that it wasn't meant to offend, it was meant to entertain, get people talking, you know, get people at work talking by the water cooler, that whole, that whole sort of thing. Oh, right. All right, so create a false image. That I can hide behind and therefore proclaim our message as a company as an entertainment factory, a factory of smiles. <laughs> a factory of smiles. And he has certainly caught the attention of the majority of our viewers, Whippy said. But while the WWE is sensitive to audience response, Whippy said that there are currently no plans to change the portrayal of Goldust from a controversial and bizarre character. Westport oh, resident Mary this is a fucking Westport resident Marianne Segerman contacted the advocate after reading about Goldust on the internet. Quote I thought it was pretty deplorable and amazing that they would do something so blatantly and encu- that would so blatantly encourage violence oh she yeah. said this week huh wrestling encouraging violence yeah, right. what the fuck i know right uh but segerman said she has not contacted the wwe roger hooverman the communications chairman of the triangle community center in norwalk said he also saw glad's message over the internet hooverman said media creations like gold does create a homosexual panic you know, the straight man thinks the gay man's looking at him cross-eyed and then bashes him, you know? This is the message is that beating up a gay man is fun and to be applauded, he said. The same message can be construed by members of the religious right and intolerant conservative politicians, he said. Like Segerman, Hooverman did not contact the WWE. A San Francisco woman who did, Al... Al, Al Albertina Prinz wrote a letter saying gay men and lesbians every day are, quote, hassled and beaten and sometimes even killed. She said. She said the skit in which Razor Ramon (laughs) beats up Goldust for revealing his crush on Ramon is reinforcing something that happens all too often. The skit. Yes, that's. All right. Let's, let's not forget that. Let's not forget that at all. That word needs to be highlighted as what goes on here. It's a skit. Whippy responded in a letter to Prinz that said the overriding theme of Goldust's character is uh, is that he uses unorthodox elements to keep oh, his competitors no. off track, confused, it, and yes, even sometimes disgusted. It does not say that. It says that. Repeat verbatim. that, please. Repeat it. The Whippy responded in a letter to Prince that said the overriding theme of Goldust's character is, quote, uh, it is that he uses unorthodox elements to keep his competitors off track, confused, <laughs> and yes, even sometimes disgusted. 
He I'm used, telling you, he this, uses unorthodox elements. This is this is Vince McMahon. Oh, a hundred and ten percent. There is no this such Christine person. Christine Whippy. I mean, have you no, ever heard no. of Christine Whippy before? No. Why don't you spell it for me? Let's do a little forensics. It's, um, so it's Christine, like normal. C H R I S T I N E. Yep. And then uh, Whippy is W Y P Y. W Y P Y is her last name. Yes. Like I've never even fucking heard. Maybe it's Wipey. Like wiping my ass or right. something. Well, there is a person with that name. Yeah, she worked for yeah. WWE for 30 years. <laughs> I don't believe it. Yeah, fan services coordinator from 95 to 97. Marketing, marketing, marketing. Wow, she just left uh, last year. Jesus. How bizarre. Now she teaches at an elementary school. That's got to be of a Of course she does. Uh, the letter went on to say that creating a character like Gold just requires trial and error. As we push to the edge to create uh, inter- interest in the character, you know, fans like you, let us know when we have gone too far afield. So fucking Tracy, weird. so fucking so weird. weird. It's, it really is. Tracy Canady, uh, field organiz- organizer for the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force in Washington D.C. <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> sounds a little. They're about to break down the door. <laughs> I know. What they I imagine a fucking a SWAT-like van coming <laughs> out. All of a sudden, a battering ram breaking down Titan Towers' door. You haven't lived till you've seen SWAT team jump out the back of a rainbow-colored van. <laughs> oh, shit. I love it. Said, there is definitely a correlation between hate messages in the media and gay bashings on the street. The clearest indi- quote, the clearest indication of that is in states where there have been anti-gay ballot initiatives, Conady said. Where the verbal bashing of gay and lesbian people reach new levels, so does the violence. One of the most publicized cases of gay bashing occurred last year after a taping of the Jenny Jones talk show in which a gay man revealed his crush on a straight man. After a few days, the straight man, Jonathan Schmitz, shot and killed Scott Amadour. In 1994, Conardy said 2,064 incidents of violence against gay people was reported to gay and lesbian anti-violence projects in nine U.S. cities, including New York City. That's a 1.6% increase from the prior year. A, an, quote, incident includes everything from verbal abuse to murder, she said. But Conardy claims that she, that, 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 claims that was only a fraction of the actual number since many gay victims don't report crimes against themselves. Conaty said her organization is aware of the WWE's portrayal of Goldust and will soon send out its own messages to gay activists across the country to join in the letter-writing campaign against the WWE. The Worldwide Entertainment Wrestling Entertainment, it does say, she says worldwide, by the way. Are you serious? The worldwide wrestling entertainment needs to give a homophobia a half Nelson and get it out of the ring, in her opinion. Just a half Nelson? All right. You wouldn't want to go full? That doesn't undermine your message to be playing with you know, words like, like that. Okay. But, all right. Uh, emailed messages sent over the internet on a WWE chat line in response to Goldust seems seem to bear our out Connerty's point. In its media alert, Glad said that although a portion of the messages are positive, many others aren't. One, pus- one message said the beating sequence was funny. Quote, it was great how Razor kept beating on him, slamming him into walls and doors and pounding him with trash cans. <laughs> it's good to see that Monday Night Raw is showing the new generation how... 
uh, gay slur should be treated anyway. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's like fish. Jesus. You talk about fish in a bear. You just cast your line back in the chat room, man. You just wait for a bite. There's yeah. gonna, there will yeah. be a bite. Especially you fucking Jesus. wrestling fan chat rooms in 1996. Oh, Jesus Christ. Christ. Age, location, sex. <laughs> Balooney said the depiction is particularly unfortunate since television is finally showing, quote, well-rounded gay characters with complete backgrounds. She cited the lesbian characters on Friends, Roseanne's boss on Roseanne, and a gay teacher on the soap opera All My Children as particularly good portrayals. There have been a lot of breakthroughs, Balooney said. Wow. So that's how Goldust was received. Yeah, I remember. I mean, you know... It, it, it it's weird it's like it's, it was not a, a good it's like i remember you know I, you know i didn't think it was i, I don't think I, I don't know if i've ever thought that it was bad to be gay you know if i've ever been in that mindset but i definitely remember there being a time where i thought that was inappropriate to do you know you kind of have that, that yeah you know, it was inappropriate for a man to be kissing a man on television. Well, it, it was it was almost like the, the message was on a lot of this stuff, and that's kind of what Glad's talking about, that a, a straight man could feel justified in beating the shit out of a gay man for coming on right. to him. Right, right, right. I think that's exactly what we're talking about. Rel- you know, aside from how you were raised or whatever to feel about homosexuality, what it really is about and what they're putting their finger on is like, And this is what's changed is a public saying, yes, fucking kill him. Yeah. Because I would want to kill him. And that wouldn't happen now. You know, it it would. Well, it it probably would. But it would. It it wouldn't be the popular response. I don't think it It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, I I think that certainly people have been, uh, uh, you know, in, in other ways encouraged to do so by by certain people in the media and in the uh yeah, you know, yeah. in political places and to do that to this day, like, and they do it. I mean, just fucking happened, <laughs> you know, Yeah, yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. It, it does happen. It's a, uh, I think the, the prevailing kind of um, mood of the country, as far as thinking that yeah. acting violently in response to that is justified is, is no longer as potent. Sure. You know? Sure. But at the time, yeah, overall, playing on that. for sure. They're playing on that like complete paranoia that like yeah yeah that would justify an ass beating and I totally and I'm glad this letter was about the gold um, the razor angle and not the the Ahmed one razor by the way hated the angle too he, he wasn't he wasn't feeling where this whole thing was going and didn't really participate in a full fledged way but you know that whole like the heart on his chest thing I remember that that was kind of the first yeah. time that Goldust went from innuendo and like right quoting movies and leaving us scratching our head to actually straight up you know, coming on to another wrestler. Right. You know, I remember that regardless was, of was, how they framed his motivations. That's what it was. Yeah. They were asking us to respond viscerally to that and, and trying yeah. to leverage that and yeah. play with that. Um, for Goldust's part, interestingly, I've, I haven't heard Dustin talk about sort of what he planned to do in this make out on the fucking uh, stretcher thing with Ahmed yeah. Johnson and what he, and what happened. Well, we'll tell you in a sec what Ahmed says, but, I think there's some important context from the book that, that Dustin did do when he was with WWF, where he says, needless to say, my insecurities started to rise toward the surface. There were a couple of times when Vince told me not to do something, and I did it anyway, as Goldust. 
don't rub up on anyone in the ring tonight, he said before one match. I did it anyway, and he was furious. He told me he'd fire me right there on the spot if I ever did something like that again. I apologized, but I still slipped up a couple more times. In a way, I think I knew that it was all coming to an end. The roller coaster was gathering speed on the way down, and I was having a hard time hanging on. So he tells a story in his book about how, through a significant portion of this whole thing, he's just, like, hopelessly getting hooked on pills and stuff, and Jesus, just in a haze, and kind of like, you know, he's, he's kind of said it, uh, he's never really explored it, I don't think, in, like, non-kayfabe settings, but he's kind of, like, hinted that there's something of an exhibitionist in him, like... Sure. He was, you know, Steve Austin was kind of talking about serial killers that way too. And a couple of things I saw, like, I don't want to get too much into it, but really fascinates me, you know, like, yeah, right. Like I could see myself being a serial killer uh, if if, if things (laughs) fell a certain way. Um, You know, I could be a serial killer in no life. You know, oh, cool, Steve. Uh, Listen, I got to go, but uh, (laughs) I think it'd be a fun occupation. Isn't your flight, isn't your flight in two days, son? Well, yeah, but, you know, I'd like to get to the airport early. You know, TSA and all that. Check it. It's fucking 48 hours out from flight time. <laughs> you know, it's something comforts me about sleeping in the airport. Yeah, good Auntie Anne's, you know. Auntie <laughs> Anne's. Um, awesome. So, yeah, kind of read between the lines there and what Dustin says about this time period. And the way Ahmed talks about it is that, you know, he was, uh, again, taken uh, by surprise by the way this, this played out on, on the stretcher. Uh, before we do that, here's a... Here's a piece of sound, Goldust Ahmed, if you could cue that up, boss. This is kind of how far he went, that is to say, Goldust at the time, in terms of just trying to push all the buttons you imagine would be pushable in 1996 in a storyline like this. I understand you claim that you saved Ahmed Johnson's life? Hmm. Have you ever heard of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation? I gave Ahmed Johnson the breath of life. I did what any other caring individual would have done. A man was in trouble and I simply ran to his aid. What did you want me to do? Allow him to expire? No, I didn't have it in my my heart of gold to do that. I only did what came natural. All right, come on. Ahmed Johnson may have indeed been incapacitated. But he did not require mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. It gives me a great satisfaction. Much like the same satisfaction in which chocolate gives one. The taste in the mouth is exhilarating. Mm. And now I'm at Johnson. I share... That very taste. Well, congratulations, Goldust. I hear the Red Cross is going to present you with a medal for your efforts. What? In, in their opinion, you acted in the same manner in which a trained registered nurse would have acted. Well, thank you, Your Royal Highness. You see, some of the best nurses are male nurses. I have learned some of my best techniques. All right, come on. What about the matchup against Ahmed Johnson at the King of the Ring? That's King of the Ring. That's King of the Ring. It will be me and the mighty man Jingle. One-on-one. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And I will be holding that Golden Wonka ticket. Like, fine Godiva. Ahmed Johnson will this time melt in my hands. And not in my mouth. 
Wow. <laughs> and he's Jesus. eating a chocolate bar while he's doing right. this. I want you to know. Jesus Christ. Because, you know, Ahmed Johnson's black. So, right. <laughs> you know, oh. chocolate in his mouth. So not only do we get the, the, exactly. uh, the, the homoerotic, but we also get the racial uh, uh, issues as well. <laughs> Jesus yeah, the whole Christ. kit and caboodle here. So uh, fucking real. On a podcast called Under the Mat Radio, which is excerpted in the aforementioned. Is James that all game. Diana Hart all the time? <laughs> yeah, she's broadcasting from her kitchen. <laughs> well, you know, I just saw. I was watching Tucker Carlson, you know, and he makes some good points. <laughs> Under the Mat Radio. Um, this is in 2013, and, and the quotes come from the James Dixon book I've mentioned, uh, Titan Shattered. Um, Another skit that left a little to the imagination saw Goldust give Johnson unnecessary mouth-to-mouth resuscitation against his will, which served as a unique way to jumpstart a program between the two. Norris, that is to say, um, Tony Norris, I'm at Johnson's real name, recalls the segment well. I was really pissed off about that kiss. <laughs> we had practiced it, and he was supposed to put his hand over my mouth and kiss his hand because the way it was shot, no one would ever know. We had rehearsed and rehearsed it. Dustin knew it was going to be live television, so instead of doing what we talked about, he decided to have a little ha-ha and do it for real. So I'm lying there with my eyes. Got that little ha ha. Well, you know what that is? The ha ha. That's um, and I've heard this several times. That's a reference to Pat Patterson, who they would always, yeah, he he would always be out for the ha ha. Like he Jr. said this, he'd always kind of convince guys to do things on television just to pop him. And a lot of it was like you know gay innuendo and yeah, sure. I'm sure a lot of the things like you know Gorilla would say about Brooklyn Brawler, um, right? Or Mel Phillips and feet on commentary were all. Designed to the ha ha to pop Patterson. I mean, that's just my supposition on the deal. But yeah, there, there's basically a subtext here that like Pat Patterson put Dustin up to this just to get a, a rise out of how Ahmed would react, you know, have, actually having gold dust's gold paint Jesus. all over his lips. Uh, so I'm lying there, uh, Nora says, with my eyes closed and the part is coming up and then I feel his motherfucking lips and man, I lost it. To me, another man's lips touching your lips is the grossest thing in the world. I didn't find any humor in it. I went hunting for him, but they told me he already had his car running down the angle, uh, running during the angle, pardon me. And as soon as he got back to the back, he jumped in and took off. After that, I disappeared for like a month because I was so pissed that I quit. That's not true. He doesn't disappear for a month. Not at all. I was going to say, don't you come back and win the championship? <laughs> yeah, the right. final championship? I knew I was going to hurt him real bad if I stayed, so I quit. When I came back, I was still heated up, so Vince sat us down and made us talk and shake hands. But inside me, I couldn't put the fire out. Every time I saw him, I couldn't let it go. Uh, The reaction backstage to the title change was not as enlightened, uh, Dixon writes, with Norris infuriated to discover that someone, and with this boss, I ask you to hit uh, the next um, piece of sound. And this is from a different uh, interview, actually. Okay. This is uh, one that he did um, with a podcast on what was called, and I'm not sure if it's still around, with a wrestler slash podcaster named Mike Knox in 2013. It's called the BDSIR Network, a show called Perfect Plex. And um, they interview Ahmed Johnson uh, about winning the Intercontinental Championship at King of the Ring Mm -hmm. 1996. And just what a lovely reception he received becoming the first African-American to hold the strap. Boss, hit the fucking sound. That Ahmed interview? That Ahmed interview. I read that when you first won the Intercontinental title, something about a, a, a noose in the locker room and someone spray painting, you know, that ignorant word on your, on your car. Is that true? Yes. Somebody, uh, when I won the belt, I went to my car and somebody had scratched on my car with a key. Right. 
Uh, congratulations, nigger. Oh, wow. How did that, how did that make went you feel? You probably the next day, and at Malacca the next day, there was a monkey with a noose around his neck. Jesus. So this is the uh, congratulations that I had to live with. How, how did you respond to such racism? Right. But as usual, they took a good moment and made it that a moment I was shared to the end because I was going down in the history books mm-hmm. and they took it and, and made me feel like shit. How are you how doing did, it? How did, you, how, did you, how did you feel? What did you do at that point? Was it, was it maybe well, a in the locker room? Or? Well, let me tell you something. You've got to think about this, down dog. Okay, this is when they woke me up, though. See, what I believe in doing, because when you do something bad, I try to find the good in it and why it was done. Okay, and God always has a good plan in it. Okay, now what they did by doing that, they made me look at the WWF as a whole. And I said to myself, why did they wait until 1996 to crown a black man champion? Mm-hmm. So I started investigating that a little bit, and I come to find out they had a meeting before that, and it was said at a meeting by WWE official and Shawn Michaels and some of the other top boys that uh, the public wasn't ready for a black champion in 1996 in a fake-ass business-like <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, yeah, it's the beginning isn't funny when he says fake ass business like wrestling. It's pretty fucking yeah. funny. Yeah, it is. But uh, yeah, so um, that's is fine. He? That's fine, right? <clears throat> oh, totally fine. Yeah, makes <laughs> makes perfect sense. Is he really the only? Was he the first intercontinental champ, black intercontinental champion? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, he, you know. Well, he says first black champ. I don't know if you want to count Rocky Johnson and Tony uh, Atlas. I mean, I would. But I don't know why. I they, mean, yeah, I would too. They played that up big that they were the first black tag team champions, first right. black champions right. of any type in WWF history. Uh, so there's that. Um, but yeah, besides that, no. Um, and he he's interesting because he says a couple more things in those interviews. One that Shawn Michaels told him, you know, in this King of the Ring match when he does the huge dive over the ropes to the floor, clears the yeah. ropes. Like crazy for a guy his size to be doing that. Yeah, totally. And that, you know, Sean and others told him to not do that, please, because it kind of takes the steam out of guys who need that to get over because they don't have the incredible physique he does. And if a guy his size can do it, it's that much less impressive when smaller guys do it. Um, and I don't know about that. Yeah, I disagree. I, mean, I disagree. I think it's still just as I don't cool. think, I guess here's the thing. I don't think it's impressive when smaller guys can do it. I think it's, it's just part of it. It's just that, that they can do it. Right. They have to do you know? matches to overcome the size right. differential. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but we know wrestling. It's like I know. you do something that gets over, and you don't want anybody else to do it. It has to be your thing. Sometimes, it's a, sometimes, sometimes the the falsity becomes reality. It's correct. And also, um, you know, let's face facts. Ahmed Johnson was a complete head case in the ring uh, in terms right. of his ability right. to control how hard he hit people. I mean, you heard Diana in her book talk about when he hurt Owen, and that was just his reputation. He was a guy who just. Kind of, you know, kind of like the way Brett talks about Goldberg after Starcade '99. You know, a guy who's just yeah. out there doing whatever with no real interest in controlling how hard he's hitting or how badly he's hurting people, so long as he uh, comes off looking good. So that's really why 
the worm turned on Ahmed Johnson in sort of the conventional narrative of his WWF yeah. run is people just got sick of that. And he was hurt all the time. I mean, on top of hurting others, he was hurting himself constantly and disappearing for months at a time to rehab injuries. In fact, when they started a slow burn tease in September of 96, I remember this vividly on Raw, that Ahmed might be gunning for a title shot against Shawn Michaels, which is probably where I get this recollection from that year of hoping uh, for an Ahmed Johnson, Shawn Michaels match. They were actually leading me to that water and I was drinking. Yeah, right. Um, he got hurt again and had to disappear for several months. And then when he came back, they turned him heel in the nation and he never really got that shot until he had that, uh, that pay-per-view match against Undertaker, um, wherever, whenever it was, um, as a heel in the nation uh, at around the time Farouk wrestled yeah, uh, yeah. Undertaker at the 97 King of the Ring. So it never really came together for him, what they, what they saw. And it wasn't, uh, so much the racism thing as it was, um, the fact that it was hurt as far as if you read the whole, you know, sort of chronology of things, but these stories that he tells, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, that's just like, who knows who wrote that on his car? It could have been a fan. Who knows who put that in his locker? It could have been somebody not associated with the company, but it's still disappointing. It's yeah. It's, it's a reality check about kind of where, yeah. where they were at the time or where whoever did that was at the time and, and what a black athlete could expect a black wrestler oh. could expect to receive in terms of treatment. It's also important to note, that Ahmed Johnson really got the push in WWF in that very short period of time that Bill Watts had power. Uh, they brought him in October 95. He was gone by oh, WrestleMania yeah, 12. No shit. And Bill Watts, of course, built his fortune on pushing Junkyard Dog in New Orleans and drawing huge swaths of the African-American community in that city to shows, to matches, um, to the Superdome in New Orleans if the program was right. hot enough, and spent really the rest of his life trying to find another JYD to keep that crowd from uh, Butch Reed to uh, Brookhouse Brown, to Ron Simmons in WCW when he was running the show over there. So a lot of people read into Ahmed's initial WWF push, which started in earnest in late 95. I think, didn't he? He slammed Yokozuna in his first Raw appearance. Oh, yeah. He fucking runs in and he picks up Yokozuna. Again, that's that's why he became my Hulk Hogan. Yeah, right of course. Right. Exactly. So I'm like, he fucking slammed Yokozuna. There's Hogan. Just like Lex Luger slammed Yoko on the Intrepid, and we knew what that right. meant. When a, Hulk Hogan. Yes, exactly. When a muscular baby face body slams the fattest guy in the company, he is supposed to be our God and Savior in the vein of Hulk Hogan. It means Hulk Hogan. That's right. So um, that was a big signal. But yeah, it was, it was Bill Watts uh, that that probably saw in Ahmed another play for that audience that he had uh, so masterfully played to under the JYD Mid-South run that yeah. that might yeah. account for it. They, but they picked it up after Watts left and... This intercontinental title win at King of the Ring certainly is post Bill Watts's tenure at WWF. Sure. Uh, it's still worth pointing out. Um, so that's a lot wow. there. And Ahmed, you know, I'll say he's told he's told some tall tales in his day. It's not like he hasn't said a bunch of things that aren't demonstrably false or can't be proven to be way out of whack in terms of chronology and who said what, when and all that shit. He's a he's a tall teller, tall tale teller, just like anybody else in the business. But I don't know if I'm going to go all Jesse Smollett on this guy and say he made all that shit up. It. No, it seems. I, I mean, I, I I can I can buy that shit. Yeah, sadly. Yeah, it, um, it seems like you know. something that he said in forums where he wasn't really trying to make a big splash. You know, he's just trying right. to talk about his experience. He wasn't out there like you know trying to broadcast Dude, it aggressively. That's but that's that's something to up. keep in mind when you watch King of the Ring '96, huh? Yeah, it certainly is. So we deal so with. So how could I mean uh, to be able to like maintain? A relationship with like to even an on screen relationship with with Shawn Michaels when he says shit like that. I'm sorry. You know? When Shawn Michaels said, says what? It, 
when he says, didn't you say he was he was one of the ones who said they weren't ready for a black champion yet, people? Well, yeah, he he, he did. He said that yeah. the meeting involved Sean. Yeah, I don't, th- I don't know if he said that Sean said it, but he said they had a oh, meeting where yeah. it was said. It wouldn't surprise me. Look, <laughs> I wouldn't surprise me if Cornette said it. I mean, he, he kind of, right. he, he's had, he has some strange uh, instincts when it comes to talking about African-American wrestlers. I'm not saying the guy's yeah. a racist. I'm just saying he's, you know, he got fired from, um, uh, was it MLW for, for making some kind of untoward comment about a black wrestler that kind of was kind of anachronistic and kind of like a a vestige of the past uh, in terms of what he brought up. Um, And it's, it's like, you know, he was in the room, he had a voice. He does not like Ahmed Johnson for a lot of the hurting guys reasons uh, that that I outlined in terms of what he said about him on his podcast, but he would have been in the room. You could just see someone spouting off about that and him hearing it. Right. But yeah, that's not ready. What does that mean? You know right. how you find out if they're ready? Do it. Yeah, exactly. Do it. You know, and then if, tell me they're not ready. If, not. if they're ready, they're going to be happy about it, and he's going to draw money. And if they're not happy, if they're not happy about it, then he's not going to draw money. Right. And by the way, that's going to have everything to do with whether he's a great pro wrestler or not. Not whether right. he's you know black or not. By the way, right. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever you want to tell yourself about the lesson learned there, but at least do it and find out. Um, yeah, and in, in, in late July, they were even pushing Sean and uh, Ahmed as a tag team against the Smoking Guns for the tag yep. titles. Wow. July 22nd, Raw, they had a match, uh, and that's where Farouk debuts um, as Farouk Assad, the gladiator, and uh, attacks Farouk Ahmed Johnson. Assad. Uh, they were supposed to wrestle in SummerSlam for the IC strap, Farouk and Ahmed, but uh, Ahmed suffers a uh, kidney rupture and uh, can't make it to, the, uh, to SummerSlam. So they do, they even do a battle. Oh, I, want, I would like a Farouk and a side of fries, please. <laughs> well, he got a side of Sonny, who was original, his original manager. Oh, I that, know. What a fucking weird. That ended after two weeks. That whole thing was so fucking bizarre. But it's, it's advantageous that we bring up Sonny in that context because uh, Sonny was in a period of time during the show where they were basically trying to transition her away from being tag team to your manager. And she was going to start building up a stable of heels, the tag champs and whoever else. Really? Yep. And the Farouk really? thing is kind of a, like a, the vestige of that kind of like the fumes of that idea, uh, made manifest, but she was, a, she was hard to deal with. She would, and they made her hard to deal with the locker room did. I mean, they tortured the woman, uh, in terms of uh, ribs and stuff like that as, as we'll talk about, but this was a good one because on the free for all, which is, what they were calling the uh, pay-per-view pre-shows back in 1996. Uh, they debuted, not Sonny, but Cloudy. Oh, God. Cloudy, who was um, uh, a man dressed up like Sonny. Um, his name, wrestling name was Jimmy Shoulders. He was an independent wrestler that they hired and a friend of Chris Candido's. Well, thank you, Mr. McMahon. Oh, my God. That's what he says. That's what he says. Skies were cloudy over uh, oh. Milwaukee in this particular night. Um yeah, they debut him, and it's supposed to be a big gag because, you know, Sonny, of course, managed the body. Don is originally her uh, boyfriend, lifelong boyfriend, Chris Candido, up to that point, lifelong, and uh, Tom Pritchard um, as the body Don is, and then broke off and started uh, flirting with all the other teams. So her thing was she was following the belts wherever they went. Right, right. She went with the to the Godwins and then to the guns. Right. She got Phineas all love struck, thinking that, he was actually oh, yeah. going to fuck her, and then she was just playing him, and then the Smoking Guns, and come King of the Ring 96, Billy and Bart, the Smoking Guns are the tag team champions, and Sonny is in her full... Seemingly Sonny fucking Billy. Yeah, apparently. that was that was the tease. Yeah, she wasn't into Bart. It was definitely a Billy thing, and she had her cowboy. Which, which, of course, played out brilliantly 
by the uh, by the fall of that year when the guns finally broke up and uh, their wives came down. That's right. I forgot about that. You know, they like, finally went with the Billy Gunn singles push, and then it never materialized because of yeah. the injury. And never does materialize, no matter how many times they fucking do it. It's fucking incredible. Mr. Ass, the one. Oh, what a disaster. What what a, like, the guy can do a leapfrog, right? And he's tall. Oh, he's the, he's the so greatest let's pure athlete in the WWE <laughs> today. Off, please. Um, so, yeah, that didn't go anywhere. But, yeah, she's in her full cowgirl regalia, just, you know, cozying up to whoever has the straps and the glory at that point in time. And uh, the debut of Cloudy was the body Don is bringing in a manager to counteract her. And uh, Jimmy Shoulders, um, as he explained, he's explained in many forums, including the, um, uh, oh man, what's it called? The In Your, it's not In Your House Wrestling Podcast, but I think it's IYH, but I do want to give him credit because it's a good interview. All right. Let's see. Cloudy shoot interview. So we, yeah, the, uh. Yeah, it's the IYHWrestling.com uh, podcast. In your head, I'm sorry. In your head, not in your house. When I see uh, IYH, I just think in your house. In know. your head, they got a lot of good interviews they've done with sort of like marginal, you know, figures over the years. Not to say that's all like their that. interviews, but that's yeah, good. they get their story down. And um, yeah, so as he said in the podcast, he came in around 87, 88, broke into the business, and his friend, Chris Canito, his best friend at the time, roped him in. Um, and he would give Chris rides to events um, as he was trying to break into the business. And one time he drove him to a WCW show so he could get some work in before the show started and try to impress people there. And so he's sitting in the stands because he's not really interested in wrestling. He's kind of a bodybuilder type, but he's not really interested in getting into the business. But it's kind of like a problem because he's sitting there watching them rehearse moves and stuff. It's actually Jim Cornette and Bobby Eaton, Minette Express days that he recalls. And they're like, look, if this guy isn't a worker, he can't sit here and watch us fucking pretend to wrestle here and expose the, have a match. the secrets. Exactly. Hate each other. So he has to, he has to, so that Chris Candido can still follow through with this opportunity, he has to basically lie and say, yeah, I'm a worker. It's fine, man. You know, we can, we can do things that expose wow. the business in front of me. So now he's got to be a wrestler almost. Um, later on, Candido needed a ride to the, the Monster Factory wrestling gym that Larry Sharp ran in New Jersey. And uh, he got in the ring and Larry Sharp said, work with Chris, do something. Because, you know, he saw that... Um, he had pretty big shoulders on him, this guy. And so that's where he got the nickname Jimmy Shoulders. And uh, That's funny. Yeah. So Candido, of course, was you know, a tape trading wrestling fanatic. He knew everything about wrestling from every corner of the world and um, kind of roped his buddy Jimmy into the whole world. He ended up working in Puerto Rico a bit for Savio Vega. Um, Chris goes to WWF and does the Body Donnas and gives him a phone call after a little while and says, you remember when you said you'd paint your ass blue and jump around like a gorilla uh, to, to, to make it in the business or to help me make it in the business. He says, well, it ain't that bad, but we've got, we've got something uh, in mind for you to do here in Titan. He goes, Vince wants you in the office Thursday morning and he's going to sign you and you'll be managing me and Tom Pritchard because uh, Tammy Sitch left. Um, you manage us. And then eventually the idea was he would break out. And so um, break away from the body Donna's and Tammy Sitch would have a, um, a stable of wrestlers and you'll have a stable of wrestlers. And so it'll be cloudy versus sunny basically. And their stables going at it. Um, so he gets to Stanford to the office to do his interview and to meet everybody. He goes into a conference room. There's Vince and Jim Ross and JJ Dillon and Bruce Pritchard and Jim Cornette. And out of nowhere, he recalls comes Vince. Let me me ask you a question. Have you ever been a woman? (laughs) Excuse me. Have you ever been a woman? And with a woman? No, no, no. No, I 
don't encourage myself to get involved in your personal affairs. No, I mean, have you ever been, as a man, a woman? Isn't that my personal affairs? That is not your personal affairs. That is my affairs because I'm going to make you a woman. No, Vince, I've never been a woman. Well, you're going to be one here. How so? You're going to be the best goddamn woman that we could ever possibly uh, uh, create in our creative services department. Kevin Sullivan takes exception to that. <laughs> Kevin Sullivan can kiss my ass. That's true. We want we want you to be we want you to be stormy. Stormy. Vince, Vince, it's cloudy, Vince. Cloudy. What? Sorry. Cloudy. It's not cloudy, it's nice. It's beautiful. No, 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 I know. But, sunny. Sunny skies. No, but the sunny degrees. The sunny thing, the counterpoint. What? The counterpoint to sunny is cloudy. Well, I don't watch counterpoint. Not stormy. What? We're not gonna call her stormy. What are you talking about? Who can you please I'm trying to have conduct an interview here with a guy who's going to be a woman. Can you please, like, can we please just be a fucking professional, serious group for once? Stormy the woman. That's who you're going to be. <laughs> Sounds great. So he comes there. Jim, welcome to Titan Sports. Shakes his hand. They sit down. Takes a seat at the end of the table. Does Vince. So Chris informed you and uh, gave you some of the details about your character. Um, he said, yeah, yeah. He told me I'd be coming in and managing and ended up being, uh, going up against Sonny Stable. And he said, yeah, did he explain the character to you? No, not exactly. And then everyone busts out laughing. <sighs> Cornet the loudest. Chris just kind of turned away from him. Couldn't face him. According yeah. to his recollection of this. He yeah. already signed a contract. So it's not like he can put oh up a fuss God. now. This well, guy's fucked. Well, we're going to call you cloudy. We're going to dress you up to mock Sonny. I'm like, what? The wig. You're going to have tits. That's right. You know what tits are, right? <laughs> Never know with you guys these days. The wig on you. Yeah. We're going to put a skirt, a sports yeah. bra, the whole gimmick, just like Sonny. And he's like, are you kidding me? He says, no. yeah. But then you come out and she has her stable and there's this whole long-term storyline. At that point, he said, I only had one kid and I wanted to make sure she went to college. I signed for a decent amount of money. Chris is like, please, please. And he'd already spoken with Tom Pritchard and he's like, I'm quitting if you don't do this with us. So if you don't want to do wow. it, I'm gone too. Uh, of course, Tom Pritchard's fucking Bruce Pritchard's brother, so that's awkward. Right. What the fuck? What are you doing, pal? I love these two. Uh, Jamie's shoulders were called, uh, Chris and Tom. Chris, like a little brother, so he decided to do it. He said the rib was on him, and there he is, uh, top transgender athlete of the year. That gimmick would get over big time, he says, today. Uh, he says he might have... Uh, it ended what, with WWF. Would it get over big time today? Uh, no, no. It would be a very awkward situation, I think, to yeah. listen to the fans kind of not react to it i think it wouldn't be like uh, abject hatred i think it would be sort of like like yeah. yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna like respond one way or another to this that's my prediction as to how yeah. the fan base would do it yeah, i don't think people would give a shit but. <laughs> yeah, i think they'd be kind of bored with it yeah, yeah. exactly um but whatever it doesn't make this person interesting that they're transgender you know what i mean i think that's what the fans right. would like okay and you know are they gonna yeah, win matches right. like what the fuck uh, so I might have uh, lumped somebody up in the locker room, he recalls, as to why it ended with WWF. I'm going to leave it at that. I don't know who he's talking about. It kind of seems like he's talking about Shawn Michaels. I'm not sure. I'm sure. Uh, he says, Vin I'm sure Shawn Michaels got in everybody's fucking face and about everything. Well, that to, happened. to say nothing of the fact that Shawn and Sonny were romantically linked in 1996. That's true. And there was no shortage of hay made about that backstage. Of course, you know, Chris Candido having to pretend he didn't know that Sonny was absolutely surrendering to Sean's every desire. That's right. And he's still Just pretending to be uh, pummeled. Right. He's pretending to not know this is happening. And the locker room 
to a man feels bad for Chris, and they all look back on this time period right. remembering that and the position he was put in. Um, Pummeled. That's correct. That, that's absolutely correct. Um, great stories in Sunday's book about the Shawn Michaels affair and how so they were like, you know, looking at house designs together and we're going to move in together. And then, oh, Jesus Christ. She was such a fucking, she was all over the place, man. Oh. She, she was starting trouble everywhere back then. That's right. Oh. And then today. Still is. Yeah. What are you talking about? You want to talk about it? Yeah. We'll, Jesus we'll, we'll, Christ. We'll She's close that loop. We will close that loop. Um, oh, but the, the the takeaway from all this is all this tag team stuff and you'll get this. You'll have your own stable. These guys. No, it's about Vince wanted Sonny and nobody else. Uh, he wanted Sonny to be on her own. I do want Sonny. And they, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and they felt like this was a way to get Sonny away from the body Donna's so that they could feature her as an entity, which was smart because she was a huge like attraction. Feature her on my lap more regularly. <laughs> right. It happens now, but doesn't happen enough. Naked. I think that it'd be better if I'm at comment, if I'm on commentary naked and, uh, you know, <laughs> So is she, and she's on my lap, riding my Johnson. Oh, everyone, I'm Vince McMahon, pantless, here ringside at the Poughkeepsie Civic Center. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, oh, it, yeah, I, feel it. Don't ask me why. Feel it right there. Don't ask me why, but yeah. there are protocols for showing up pantless at the Poughkeepsie Civic Center, and uh, needless to say, you're not allowed to just announce a television show for the whole... Uh, <laughs> The ration. Ride my junk, Sonny. <laughs> come on. Make me come all over you. Imagine. Every time you do that, I think of a letter we got, and we'll read it next time we do a feedback segment from our friend Kaipo in Hawaii, who delivers mail, I think, and he was listening to the last episode while delivering mail and cracking up. And the best part is he describes how someone at, what's that, what are you listening to? What's that podcast about that you're cracking up about? And he goes, it's about history. <laughs> And he says that while you're screaming, making the noise of that guy's father from West Virginia coming <laughs> in the back. It's about history. Ah, ah. It's about history. All right. Yeah. Shout out to Kaipo. Grind and Masubi. No question about it. Uh, so keep in contact. They kept in contact with Candido every day. Uh, okay. Broke his neck in July. Ninety nine uh, wrestling. Um, Jesus. Did, did Cloudy. This is kind of after he left WWF, of course. And so he was done with the business. And um, he says, you know, he was getting pretty hooked on pain pills. So it was probably good. He would have been dead if he hadn't been forced out of the business by the injury um, because he didn't think he could have done it clean. He worked with ECW bit, Tracy Smothers and the FBI. Um, he worked New Jack and got smashed over the head with toasters and shit. So that wasn't good for him. Um, but he looks back and remembers a lot of egos and personalities at the time of WWF, heat with Shawn Michaels and how he had to hold, ba- hold back Chris Candido, or Chris had to hold him back a whole lot, attacking Shawn for things that yeah. would play out in that whole dynamic. And it would have gotten him fired anyway. I was a hothead. The reality was, he said, Tammy was the fucking problem. She's the one who stirred the pot. She had a juvenile mentality with Shawn Michaels. Wow. He doesn't have any heat with Shawn anymore. He ran into him again and they got along okay. Um there's a, there's a deal on the pre-show uh, where Al Snow, the, the body Don is a wrestling, the new rockers, Marty Jannetty and Al Snow. Oh, God. Leaf Cassidy, as he was yeah. called at the time, uh, gets kissed by Cloudy in, in, in his debut. And uh, every time he runs into Al Snow to this day, they look at each other like, is this going to happen again? That's really funny. Just a little bit. Um, at Jimmy Shoulders, Cloudy actually gave the eulogy at Chris Candido's funeral. Of course, Chris Candido passing away untimely in 2003, I believe it was. Uh, after developing a blood clot and um, passing away at the hospital. Uh, 
So awful. Yeah. Yeah, pretty bad. And he said the last rib Chris played on him, he played ribs on him all the time, was he just decided to go around at some point telling um, everybody that Jimmy had found religion and was actually an ordained reverend now, or ordained is, is the right term. He's a reverend. So wow, <laughs> he's at Chris's funeral and everyone's calling him reverend and he doesn't even know why. And he That's finds out amazing. later that Candido is telling everyone he's a reverend just as a rib. That's a good one. Uh, so that's that. He says, God damn it, Chris, you dress me up like a woman and kill my career. And then you call me a preacher, everybody. So that's that's the story of Cloudy. <laughs> but there's some good detail on this whole time period as well um, as it regards Sonny and her role in things. And the No Gimmicks Needed book by Johnny Candido, Chris Candido's brother, who kind of wrote a posthumous book about Chris's career. Uh, that's pretty good. It just came out uh, not too long ago. And... Oh, right. uh, they remember a few things about this time period. First of all, um, around In Your House in April, uh, it was Sunny uh, shocking everybody and revealing she had signed uh, with the Godwins, and so she starts coming out with them because uh, they were the champions at the time. And then she ditched them for the Smoking Guns, who won the titles from the Godwins at In Your House, Boar of Dog. Uh, Tammy, uh, he writes, might still have been a hit with the fans, but she had long since worn out her welcome with the boys in the locker room. It was right after Sonny joined the Smoking Guns that the WWF locker room pulled an infamous stunt on Tammy. Following the end of her affair with Shawn Michaels, Tammy found herself more and more the butt of jokes from the boys. One evening, before TV taping, the Godwins and Tammy were told that Tammy would finally get hit with the slop bucket. Phineas I. Godwin took the bucket half full into the men's locker room. Let's hit some sound, boss. Let's hear what that sounded like as Vince McMahon goes into absolute overdrive. Oh, my God. Selling the moment on WWF television where Sonny gets slopped. She thought for a moment that she was safe and out of harm's way and completely controlling this man's mind. Look, she throws him a kiss. And then, and then, no. Ned Hopper, yeah. Look at that, yeah. Big chunks and all. No, let's go to commercial. Look at this, down into her stringy hair. She's slipping and sliding it. Take another look at it. No, her, not yeah, again. Please. She's don't show she it. Oh, she can't believe it. Oh, look at that. Look at the big chunks falling off out of her. Yeah. Man, I'm about to lose my life. Right again. <laughs> we can see this over and over and over again. No, Sonny finally again, got her come up. Let's look at that. Oh, she can't believe it. Oh, she has been slapped. Is Vince right. normal or is he abnormal? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Right. He just starts. He just has, starts having a poltergeist experience. He just starts like, he's like, so like his skin weird. is melting. He's so. What the yeah. fuck is wrong with this guy? Like, why he's don't I remember so these outbursts? Like, like also like to you know, I mean, it's a poor woman getting God know a, a vomit like substance. Well, if she pisses you know? people off, if she pisses the boys off, then of course they're going to do that to her, right? Because they think oh, it's man. funny. Uh, right. to watch her have to do that on television. So, uh, Johnny Candido continues. One evening before TV taping, the Godwins and Tammy were told that Tammy would finally get hit with the slot bucket. Vinny said, Godwin, if, if you don't know, by the way, the slot bucket, you know, the Godwins would come to the ring with a pail full of what was supposed to be the shit they'd feel, f- feed to the pig, slop, just this like, that he would use, um, Henry Godwin would use like the leftover catering, like salad mm-hmm. and pudding and shit oh. to make a disgusting fucking... But it was just food. so nasty. What the fuck? Fendi Side Godwin took the bucket half full into the men's locker room and set it down in the middle of all the boys. Sonny's getting slopped tonight, he said. Don't nobody do nothing to this. 
When Phineas returned a short time later, the bucket was full. It was not full when he put it down. She got a mixture of a little bit of everybody that night, Phineas later admitted. <gasps> no! No! I'll just put it this way. Doesn't look like piss, doesn't look like shit, but it definitely looks thick. Oh, fuck. So, in her book, Sunny pretends that she had no problem with this and that she loved it. Um, I'm sure she didn't. Yes. So uh, she writes, Oh, my God. After about a minute of the trash talking, I called my trusted guns into the ring to deliver a beating to them. I'm such a heel. They did. Okay. They did. Even though they were later, late on their queue and I hopped out of the ring, I was met at ringside by Hillbilly Jim who was managing the Godwins. I turned and ran the other way, only to bump into Henry Godwin. Apparently, they weren't too pleased with me breaking Finney's heart and slapping him across the ring, the mug. I turned and ran up the ring steps, only to run into Phineas, who had made short work of Billy and Bart Gunn, and now had his sight set on me. He was holding something in his hands. Yep, the dreaded bucket of pig slop. The Godwins were well known for dumping the pig slop over the heads of their opponents, but they couldn't possibly dump that on me, could they? Little innocent me, a woman? Phineas must have remembered his southern manners because he hesitated for a moment. I took advantage of his hesitation and began taunting him. He won't do anything, I purred into the camera shortly. I was mm-hmm. wrong. When I looked back in his direction, I felt the entire bucket of cold pig slop pouring over my head and down my body. I couldn't believe it. I wonder why she insists on saying cold there. Uh, the crowd couldn't believe it either. They couldn't That it was been- cold? <laughs> or that it isn't yeah. what you think it is, which would be warm. The crowd couldn't well, believe it either. Well, at that point, either. come on. I mean, you know, it's been out. It's been, it's been out for a while. It's been out of the body for a while. It's cold now. They couldn't have been more. Imagine ecstatic. cold cum dripping down your tits. Jesus Christ. All right. That's what was happening. Even though I was technically a tweener at this point, they were still happy to see me humiliated and embarrassed by the slopping. I made the most of it. I flailed around on the slop as I credited about it. Uh, cried about it, I think she means to say. I, this was my chance to exact a little revenge upon the fans that hated me for so long, so I took advantage of it. I grabbed handfuls of slop off the floor and flung it into the crowd. So she did right. that because she was pissed off, and <laughs> she acts like she was, you know, getting, she was working when she was just pissed at people. She was. She was working the fans. Aha, uh-huh, the perfect revenge. Oh, yeah, you got revenge. All right, Sonny, that's the takeaway from this moment, oh, that you got God. revenge. I made my way to the backstage area and got a standing ovation from the boys. Not only for being slopped and taking it like a champ, but for the tremendous promo I cut before the deed was done, they knew I knew what I was doing. I was then told that I would be slopped every night on the road for the next month. So much fun was in store for me. I mean, is that is that unusual for her? Is she always getting slopped on? By exactly. What exactly was in the slop, you ask? Well, it was usually a combination of leftover salad from catering that afternoon, mixed in with some bread and water. I had heard stories in the past about the boys leaving the bucket in the guy's locker room all day for all the guys to um, urinate into, so I was careful. I told told the road agents that I wouldn't get slopped unless I made the slop and kept it in my locker room until it was time for our match. A lot of people, even to this day, ask me how I could have enjoyed doing something so gross and disgusting. I truly did. I enjoyed every minute of it. I'm sure you did, Sonny. Just look at all the publicity I got out of it. I was, I love that. That's so great. Like, oh, oh yeah. It's always about the publicity. Poured look, it all over my happened. head, but look at this. Look, I got cum and, and shit. Look at and this all magazine cover. Other sort of male, you know, excrement on my fucking body. But look at all the publicity. You don't have a magazine cover. Right. I was, on, I was seen on every TV show over and over again, replaying the infamous slopping, and I got a Raw Magazine cover out of the deal. Yay me. I'm really proud of the fact yeah, everyone that... Everyone and their mom got a fucking Raw exactly, Magazine cover, exactly. for fuck's sake, you idiot. Diesel got one after he left the company. Right. I'm really proud of the fact that the WWF had so much trust in me. 
letting me ad lib my own promos. That's where they were totally off the top of my head. That's what they were. Uh, I'm also proud of the fact that they knew I could handle anything they threw at me from birthday cake to pick slop. Eventually the guns lost the tag team championships and I fired them. It was time for me to move on to bigger and better things like my first singles champion. Uh, but yeah, who was that? She thought it was going to be Farouk. Oh, Farquad. Sure. Farquad is who she's talking about. Back to Johnny Candido's book quickly. Cloudy was scheduled to make his her debut in June of 1996 at King of the Ring. Jimmy flew to Milwaukee with Chris for the show, and when they headed to the rental car area, they spotted some of the WWF brass. Jim Cornette was in the group and raced over to greet them. Chris, Jimmy, so good to see you. Jim bear hugged Jimmy's shoulders as well as Chris, and three of them chanted for a moment before splitting up to get their rental cars. Jim was feeling great when they reached the rental car, but when he looked over at Chris, he could tell something was wrong. What's wrong, said Jimmy. You know, how we were just talking to Cornette, said Chris. Yeah, said Jimmy. That was great. I hadn't seen him for a while. Jimmy, the whole office saw him hug you, said Chris. That's like the kiss of death. Even then, Cornette was a polarizing figure, a guy who spoke his mind without any regard for the consequences. Cornette had heed with a number of people in the company. Anyone who was in with Cornette was seen as one of the Southern boys, regardless if they were actually from the South or from Jersey. Chris explained the situation to Jimmy, who just shrugged. Chris, I like who I like. I don't care if I get heat or not. Chris was a loyal person who valued long-term friendships far more than short-term politics. Bobby Blaze also tells the story about the night he first went to work for the WWF. As soon as Chris saw Bobby, he welcomed him with open arms, letting everyone know Bobby was one of his all-time favorite opponents. Cloudy made her debut on Free For All, a 30-minute pre-show that preceded the King of the Ring pay-per-view. Skip and Zip introduced Cloudy as their new manager, and she stood at ringside as the Body Donnas took on the new rockers. Cloudy proved uh, she was ready to pick up where Sonny left off, helping her wrestlers to gain an unfair advantage. Cloudy kissed Al Snow on the lips, stunning him just long enough for Skip to roll up Cassidy for the win. Unfortunately for Jimmy's shoulders, Cloudy was not a hit with the fans and vanished from TV. When WWF presented their July pay-per-view in your house international incident from Vancouver, British Columbia, the body Donnas were on their own. Cloudy showed us that we... Didn't really need a manager, said Zip in a pre-match promo. Oh, I see. That's what it is. What we needed was the fans more than anything else. That's yeah, it. Have they ever made, do they ever make a proper face turn? I don't remember them doing Not that. Not really, no. No, they didn't. No, because she just like, it was just the Sonny leaving them that turned them babyface, which is not enough sometimes. Uh, it's never Sometimes enough. it is. No, really? If they yeah, get yeah. like, if they beat the shit out of the the manager, but not like that. So she was having the time of her life, Tammy Sitch, getting all these receipts and public humiliations and God knows what. That's right. Uh, Henry Godwin, for what it's worth, in an interview with Hannibal, said that um, X-Pac shit in the bucket, which I don't, I don't know. I don't see any shit in there, but he would do I mean, maybe they stirred it. Yeah. You you never know. They could have just fucking. Well, X-Pac stirred the shit. That's for sure. (laughs) Every single day he was there. I wouldn't put it past Waltman to shit in the fucking slot. Not at all. Bucket. And there's also a story Henry Godwin tells of uh, they were on the road in uh, India or overseas, Germany it was. Um, And uh, I guess what they would do is they would have catering at the building and then you could write your name on a a takeout container and they'd put some in for you to take back to the hotel. Of course, do you remember this? Sorry, I can't tell you. You know, I just, I don't know why I just, I just pictured it, but I just pictured, you know, the Phineas with the, the bucket, leaving the bucket and like walking out and then all of a sudden like six grown men standing around the bucket, oh, cocks yeah. in hand, jerking off. Into <laughs> of, course, the fucking thing. of course, that's what happened. Cause, like, it's, it's cause these are so, normal guys. Look, I watched it. We watched the slopping. It, it does oh, not look like anything but thick liquid to me, but I don't know. I know I'm probably know. seeing things. So oh. just disgusting. 
And that's what they're going to get a kick out of is that being poured right, on her head. Right. Because they're going to, because, because all they want to do is come inside her and come on her right. anyway. And make, it feels like so they might almost as well did do it. it this way yeah. on TV. It's like the closest they'll come. That way they can tell all their friends and family and they can tell their children and grandchildren that they came on Sunny on live TV. That's really cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so they're overseas and they're supposed to write their names on these takeout containers and they can take some of the catering food back home. Uh, and so they all do that. So everyone knew what one was Sonny's. So she gets back to the room and she's got her, her chicken salad or the spaghetti in there. And underneath her food is a turd. Because oh wrestlers love sh- leaving shit in what women's personal belongings. Like, it's not funny. Because she had, she was a pain in the ass backstage, so they thought that it was fine. So what? So she goes screaming down the hallway to Jerry Briscoe, uh, who was on the same floor, I guess, as Henry Godwin tells the story. And shortly thereafter, she was she was gone from the company. But uh, yeah, that's um, that's the way it was. I mean, shitting in bags, shitting in personal belongings, just unbelievable, unbelievable that they would do that, and it would be like fucking cool, you know? <sighs> Whatever. Hardly the uh, women's evolution. <laughs> No, definitely not. Say that. So, uh, what yeah, was Sunny State? I wonder of, how that would how they go go about that nowadays. I, I do wonder. There's Randy Orton shitting, pissing on people. Oh, shit. they'd be fired in a day. They'd have an internal investigation if it was some of the level of Randy yes. Orton, and then it would go away. But anybody else gone? Most others gone. Um, so yeah, because there'd be like a picture of like a turd on Twitter, like look what I found. Right. You know? Right. It's like what I found people tweet like you know cockroaches in their Big Macs and it's like Jesus. half the time it's total kayfabe but they still get some notoriety and maybe an apology out of it maybe a maybe some money that'd be nice so um maybe, maybe. so Sunny's having a great time according to her book right she's loving getting slopped she's loving being in the spotlight in the center of all these storylines well it was time before King of the Ring 1996 for her to do a quick uh, bit of publicity with the Milwaukee Journey Journal Sentinel which of course is uh, the big paper in the city of mm-hmm. Milwaukee. And uh, this is a month out from King of the Ring 96, May 4th, 1996 <clears throat> edition. And boss, I wish you could uh, bring us home, so to speak, with this uh, rendition of Sonny trying to get us hyped for the 1996 King of the Ring. So we're sitting at a table at Turner Restaurant. Turner. What? Why? Gotta be a rib. Having, having lunch with the WWE superstars, Mr. Perfect, Baked Cod, Diet Cola... And Sonny, Caesar salad, very light on the dressing, diet cola. When Sonny, who is wearing a pulse-elevating pink-checked shorts ensemble, turns to us clam chowder coffee and confides, quote, I'm a loner. Mm. Poor kid. Here is a young woman whose digital image has, she says, been downloaded by America Online customers 260,000 times, more often than the star of Species, she says. That's funny. You know, Species, Species, uh, Natasha Henstridge. Yeah, it kind of rings a bell. Yeah. Nude in the whole fucking movie. Like, she's basically nude the whole goddamn movie. I think that probably got downloaded more. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm going to say probably yes, as much as I want to believe Sonny. Um, Who, as manager of the WWE tag team, uh, the Body Donnas, makes a, the manager of the champion WWE tag team, the Body Donnas, makes a living displaying her cleavage to arenas of roaring fans, who, in describing what it is she does at ringside, includes her in her job descri- description, flashing the referees. And guess what? Journal Sentinel staff. What? Oh, Quote, that's probably I've, just, yeah, that's probably just a caption from an image. 
Oh, all right. Quote, I've always preferred being alone. Maybe you think she's being manipulative. Well, let us quote Vince Russo, who in an article about Sonny featured in the March issue of the WWE magazine writes, quote, manipulative? Yes, but to the advantage, but to the average male dripping with hormones, who cares? Sonny and Mr. Perfect, a.k.a. Kurt Hennig, were in town to talk up the WWE King of the Ring tournament, which is scheduled for June 23rd at the Wisconsin Center, formerly Mecca. Tickets for the event go on sale today at the Wisconsin Center box office and at Ticketmaster outlets. They're $10, $15, $20. The really big fans might be tempted to plunk down $150. What was it, $1,000 for some reason? Yeah. $150 for a limited number of golden ringside t- seats. I love that. Those who, $150, Jesus Christ, what was it? I mean, it's so cheap. They would, Well, yeah, not at the time it wasn't. They would spray paint yeah. the, uh, the railing. Remember gold for King of the Ring? Mm-hmm. And they spray painted. I always the wanted one of those. One of those seats. Yeah, yeah. I always cool. wanted one. So bummed out, I never got one. Those who pop for the 150 seats can bring their chairs home. Really, we're going to assume you haven't been keeping up with what's happening in the world, WWE wise. <laughs> "Quote: It's like a soap opera," says Sonny. For simplicity's sake, we'll focus on our two lunch companions. Mr. Perfect, after achieving two WWE Intercontinental title reigns, retired from the ring a few years back. Since then, he's been fishing and golfing. An inventor, an inventor, an inventor. The inventor of the devastating perfect plex inve- maneuver. The inventor of the devastating perfect plex maneuver was extremely popular, and there's been speculation that he might make a comeback appearance during the Milwaukee tournament. It's a rumor, he acknowledges. That's all I can say about it. As for Sonny, Vince Russo says it best. Quote, creeping through the roots of the woodlands like thick fog through the night, she utilizes a deadly tool that has the effect of a python's venom on the unsuspecting giants. That tool, her beauty. While this is no fairy tale, in the end, it it very well may be beauty that slays each and every one of the beasts. Wiping the spittle from his typewriter, Russo continues, <laughs> make no bones about it. She is a knockout. Perfect face, per- beautiful golden hair, gorgeous features, and a body, well, a body to simply die for. Anyone in his right mind who even takes the slightest glance at her is instantly mesmerized by her beauty. Want proof? Try diagramming this sentence. Quote, Without her even knowing it, she has more power over men than she could ever realize. However, that makes her even more dangerous. Uh, is oh however what makes her even more dangerous is she realizes it. she likes it she likes it so there you are both Sonny and mr perfect will be in milwaukee on june 23rd so will Shawn michaels ultimate warrior undertaker gold dust ahmed johnson jake the snake roberts hunter hurst helmsley and vodder <laughs> if you see Sonny. I just picture a news. <laughs> I picture a news anchor just saying all those names and Vader. <laughs> and by the way, where can I sign up for the newspaper job where I quote a magazine article for forty percent of my my article? Right, seriously. Not only that, but a fake fucking magazine. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, talk about mailing it in. And if you see Sonny, however much she may rock your world, be careful. Quote. This is Sonny. I can't stand to be groped. Unquote. 
And with that, it's time for the 1996 King of the Ring death toll. Oh, my God. Oh, you just spurring that on me. I was not prepared, but here we go. Uh, We got all, uh, is it 11? I think 11 here. Uh, Gorilla Monsoon, Howard Finkel, Owen Hart, Skip, Vader, Ultimate Warrior, Paul Bearer, Jose Lothario, British Bulldog, Mr. Perfect, and The Undertaker. Quite the roster. Uh, Gone from this planet, from the 1996 King of the Ring, but we're hardly gone, boss. We've got a whole lot to chew on. Indeed we we do. deep dive this historic event on our 316th episode. Can you believe it? I cannot believe it. You're going to have to, because on the other side of this break, it's time for the latest, the 316th, if you will, deep dive into that fucking Peacock archive. It's the WWF King of the Ring 1996, and it's the birth of Austin 316 on the Lapsed Fan Wrestling Podcast. Don't go anywhere. And boss, before we deep dive this son of a bitch, you got to know that there's at least one person out there. In the lapsed fan solar system, who was fucking there at King of the Ring '96? You know, here's the thing. I, 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 you know, if someone's at this point, at this stage of the game, if someone hasn't been there, I'm, I'm shocked. Yes, if not deeply. Someone always comes out of the woodwork for, for to say that they were there. Yes, and it's always a pleasure to get a lapsed perspective. Um, most folks that write into us with that perspective were the same age we were attending these events yeah. in the old catalog. So there's a sense of wonderment and lost innocence in a lot of these uh, dispatches and Paul in Milwaukee's dispatch, who's been lapsed by the way, since 2014 EST 2014 mm-hmm. uh, is certainly no exception. He writes, hello chairman. Finally, the show I've been waiting eight years for you to review. Wow. King of the ring, 1996. I was there. Breathtaking. My parents got me tickets for my 10th birthday. My dad and I sat in line at the Ticketmaster box office for three hours on a Saturday morning trying to buy them. I was all set to experience my first pay-per-view in person. Was Nash doing a sign-up a sign too, maybe? No. Uh, he didn't mention that. <laughs> I doubt it, considering where he was at the time. I don't know. Maybe he was still there at that point. Could be. Yeah, the on-sale. <laughs> um, Can you imagine? Could you imagine? That'd be amazing. Buy tickets. I I don't know if I'll be there, but you know. I can tell you right now, I ain't making the drive. (laughs) All right. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Kev. (laughs) You know I'm here to buy tickets to this show, right? And you're basically telling me you won't be there. So Basically, I'm telling you the fucking fact. I ain't gonna be there. I ain't making the drive. He says it as if like, if they, you know, if they, if they accommodate me, if they bump me up to first class, maybe I'll be there. He's like negotiating with WWF through this kid he meets at a meet and greet. Thinking if he just puts it in the air, it'll somehow end up going to uh, Stanford. (laughs) Look, kid, you write a fucking fan letter to Titan, you know, let them know. But as it stands right now, I ain't making the drive. Fuck that. (laughs) that to the kid the 10 year old kid um oh by the way sorry every generation for the rest of humanity uh missing out on the experience of waiting in line all saturday to buy a ticket oh i know i know now you gotta wait by your computer in your pajamas and you don't even know you have the ticket you know half the time as far as like you know your parents buy it they're they're quick on the draw 
And it's like, there's no drama there. Um, no, here no, you stand no. in line. It's, it's an event. It's a happening, it, you know, and it's look, a lot of it's drudgery. A lot of it's misery. Sure. I mean, you're usually standing out in the cold, even if it's summer, you know, it's, it's miserable. It's probably raining for that matter or snowing, maybe both. Yep. But do you ever yeah. forget it is my question. No, never, never. That's why we can sit here and talk about that fucking, I can, I can even, you know, I can even picture that clown in the, my fucking brain yeah. when you and I were standing out to get tickets for the rumble in Boston that year with meeting Kevin Nash. Yep. 2003. I remember the Boston sports authority. The guy who had all the, the download on all things Boston sports and was not afraid to talk about it in line to anybody who would listen. Um, now, here's another question. Uh, did we or did we not read the Wrestling Observer out loud in the line? Oh, fuck yes, we did. It's like six in the morning. <laughs> yes. That's good shit. I remember reading like descriptions of Masawa Kobashi or something. like No. <laughs> It would have been something like that. Something about like high level, you know, work yeah, rate I mean, with it would have like, been a work yes, it would have been a strong style work rated match. With those long turnbuckle pads in the corner, not three separate ones. <laughs> oh God. And and ticket sales and gate. <laughs> and selling out the Budokan at intermission right. because right. somebody That's just right. somebody just got four and a half stars. I mean, yeah, maybe you know, so well maybe yeah, maybe the Celtics can do this, but you know, Kobashi Misawa and the Budokan. Whew, we're talking business. It couldn't have been Kobashi Misawa because that was in, that was in like oh uh, three, and we bought tickets to the oh three Rumble. So I don't think that's true. Good point. Anyway, <laughs> maybe uh, it was the contract signing. Paul <laughs> for the match. <laughs> Paul continues the morning of the show. How about that? The morning of the show. That just, <sighs> I just love hearing that. I mean, is that is that going to be a good breakfast? Yes. Yes. Is oh that going to be a late breakfast? It's, yes. It's it's the slowest. It is the slowest day of your life. Right. Exactly. A Sunday at seven has never taken longer to get here. Oh. So the morning of uh, the morning of the show, my dad had gotten some poster boards so I could make a sign. My parents thought I should write the WWF rocks Milwaukee on the sign. <laughs> But I thought, that sounds like a mom and dad thing. But I thought that was lame. I wanted to trace my fingers in a V and write Vader time. There we go. We ended up compromising and doing their idea on one side, mine on the other. It's like my WrestleMania 14 sign. <laughs> on one side, WWF attitude. My best attempt to get the scratch logo yeah. drawn. So yeah. that thinking, they'll put that sign on camera because it's so right. on, on right. The other side, icons suck. God. <laughs> And I think I was a smart. You're so fucking in. <laughs> we got to the arena and we're waiting at the entrance to get our tickets taken. As we're waiting, an older teenager saw my Vader time sign and gave me a thumbs up. That was all I needed to know. I made the right call. And yes, you did. Yes, That's you a did. powerful thing when you're a 10-year-old boy, let yep. me tell you. Yep. Some yep. high school kids saying, cool, dude, check yeah. you out. Vader time. Fuck yeah. that, man. That's awesome, dude. This, this kid's with the heels. This kid's with the heels. Hey, you watch... Uh, Look at that. You watch All Japan Women? <laughs> you tape trade? <laughs> Do you think Manami Toyota is the best wrestler of all time? Do you tape trade? <laughs> son, son, son. Son, let me get you away from this man. 
said the teenager to his to to, to his father. It's my yeah, yeah. You know, he's like, <laughs> it's my understanding this man uh, has a basement full of handicam tapes. <laughs> Hey, uh, let me ask you something, little bud. Do you tape trade? Is this to catch a predator? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> Walking around before the show. Or as my quote-unquote cool friends in, Hall- in L.A. used to call it, T-cap. Oh, no, they did not. Oh, they did. Oh, jeez. Nothing, nothing annoyed me more. Oh. And I think you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> How did they never, during the Randy Orton title reign, title a pay-per-view to catch a predator? Oh, my God. That should have been it. That should have been that, uh, that, that, that one after he declared the, uh, the Orton era. Yes. The era of Orton or whatever it was. It should have, that one should have been to catch a predator. I could see Vince going for that. <laughs> yeah. Just don't catch me. Right. It depends what predator we're talking about. I'm talking about the apex predator. Yes, we can do that. Well, uh, well, a sexual predator, but not a sexual predator. No, not a sexual predator. Apexual, but not sexual. Yeah. All right, it's fine, Vince. Don't worry about it. Walking around before walking around before the show, my dad told me I could get something from the merch stand. I took this opportunity to select the gray foam tag team belt and add it to the intercontinental mm. and heavyweight I already had Did you at get home. Two? Um, no, he, he, he uses the singular belt. I think he just bought oh, one. Man. Yeah. Big mistake. Pathetic. Now what I'd have, that? now I'd have all three belts for my fed. I ran alongside my stuffed bear. The bear had long <laughs> limbs and some solid weight, oh, which yes. made him an excellent yes. worker. The power yes. bombs would have snap like you wouldn't believe. That's all I want. I just want a wrestling play toy that can sling up onto my shoulders on a power bomb, so that I can, you know, so that they're seated on my shoulders when I yes. snap down. Yes, I'm not ashamed that I do that at at, uh, at Costco. Oh yeah, with those giant stuffed animals because I want to know. I mean, honestly, if one had if one had the proper weight distribution, <laughs> it's like an kicking, appropriate limb. It's like kicking the know, tires on a used car. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I would. I might get that. "Quote unquote" for my child, so awesome. Yeah, for your child. Yeah, for your inner child. <laughs> exactly for my childish play. <laughs> Speaking of TCAP, um, uh, 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 there's a there's a man uh, body slamming the stuffed animals by himself. In he's in definitely Island. alone. I, I don't. It's it's very frightening. <laughs> yes, yes, it's it very is. frightening. He's he's. He has lifted, uh, bear with me, please. He has lifted the bear up and he has <laughs> the genitals in his face. <laughs> right, exactly. The, ar- the legs of the bear around his neck. This is a pervert. He seems to be he's holding it there in some sort of delayed motion. He's, he's <laughs> <laughs> it okay. looks like, I, officer, it looks like he may be about to post. I don't know. Hold on, I'm going to... All right, you want me to run it up the chain? I will. You want me to talk to Rose? I will. All right, what aisle is he in? Two? Rose, psycho on two. Uh, hold on. <laughs> we continued to walk aimlessly around the arena waiting for the show. We ended up walking down mm. this long, downward sloping hallway. 
And when we got to the end of it, we looked mm-hmm. around the corner and saw Sean Michaels and Owen Hart playing catch with a football. What? Before I could even register what I was seeing, Sean <coughs> saw us and yelled out, Hey, you can't be down here. <laughs> what an idiot. If this is what a 90- fucking fool. If this was 97 or 98, Paul would have been within his rights to say, I can't be where. <laughs> down here. As my dad and I turned around and walked away, all I could think to myself was, I thought Sean and Owen hated each other. I knew wrestling wasn't real because my older cousins and uncles loved telling me, you know that shit's fake, right? (laughs) That was probably the most repeated phrase of my childhood. But despite that, I still had no problem. About a lot of things, not even just wrestling. (laughs) Buying into the kayfabe all the way, especially if an angle. Eating a bowl of cereal, you know that shit's fake, right? (laughs) You're aware of that? Depends. Fucking fake. You know you're raised an idiot over here believing all this shit's real. I've had some fake cereal in my <laughs> life. Like, instead of Frosted Flakes, it was like Bear Flakes or like some generic like cartoon they came up with for a generic label of it. <laughs> bear Flakes means it's not frosted at all, actually. <laughs> Polar Bear Flakes, not B-A-R-E. <laughs> I know. And like and like honey dipped O shaped rings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> honey daddy's bunches of nuts. Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Grape daddy's nuts. <laughs> Grab daddy's nuts. <laughs> Grape D's nuts. <laughs> um, <laughs> but despite that, I still had no problem buying into the kayfabe all the way, especially if an angle was well done. And I believed 100% that Owen had given Sean a concussion with the enziguri a few months back. We eventually get to our seats and settled in. The first person we hear over the house mic is Michael Hayes welcoming us to the show. The very first words out of his mouth, Are you ready for the WWF to rock Milwaukee? (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah, I am, and I've got the sign to prove it. That's really funny. I grabbed the sign and held it up high and proud like it was my idea all along. Did he say what, um, did he say if there were, uh, what seats they had? No, he doesn't indicate. Oh, all right. As the show begins, some random thoughts. Cloudy with the body dawn is Sonny was very over with me at this point and can do no wrong, which made this even stupider to me than it already was. I was expecting a Mero vs. Vader final. Interesting. So the first two matches surprised me a lot. I do wonder, you know, hindsight, you know, kind of blurs the picture here, but... I don't think a lot of people would have picked Steve Austin going into this to win. I didn't. Not even a, not even a chance. That was going to be a Merrill. Oh, no, you said Jake. No, I, I, I thought for sure it was going to be Jake. I thought there was no question it would be Jake. It's interesting that this young man ended up at a Merrill Vader final in his head. They didn't really seem to I be mean, teasing that. I mean, if you're into, into Vader, you know, right. obviously you want him in the finals. And, you know, if you're, I mean, which says to me that there is a, 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 Relative believability in athletic athleticism. Yeah, that Vader is with, the most able. With that, 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 and that means if you look at the other guys, who's most, most athletic out of them all? It's it's you know Marrow with his flipping and flopping and shit. Yeah, yeah, you know? it's interesting. You know, in traditional booking, if Vader's going for the title at SummerSlam, he should win King of the Ring. But he should have definitely won King. Of I'm the not Ring. sure that was on Young Paul's mind at the time. Um, okay, yeah, I was expecting a Mero versus Vader final, so the first two matches surprised me a lot, especially Jake advancing over Vader. 
Even more so surprising was Mankind going over The Undertaker. I remember hearing a lot of groans in the crowd at the finish. It was awesome seeing the IC title change. I thought the match was a lot of fun, and I was happy to see Ahmed as champ. It was fresh and exciting, and Ahmed felt like a big star. Totally agree. Austin totally wins agree. and says the famous words. I remember listening to him and thinking to myself, whoa, he said ass. Right. He, he just swore. He man. said a daddy word. Oh, man, 1996. That's uh, what daddy says to me all the time. He says I'm, he's going to kick my ass. <laughs> I would have given him zero chance. You do your goddamn homework or I'm going to kick your ass. You fucking twat. Milwaukee dad's TikTok. Milwaukee dad's say ass. I would Fuck have give- you, asshole. <laughs> That's right. You think it's a video of guys saying ass, and it's kind of safe for work. In, in every other video, they st- they say fuck first, and then they, then they say ass. That fucking ass. But somehow the video isn't Milwaukee dad say fuck. It's Milwaukee dad say ass. Because <laughs> at some point he says, I got to take a shit out of my ass. I just thought of a hilarious. This is going to be a viral YouTube TikTok thing, and I won't get credit for it, but that's fine. I'd like to see it happen anyway. Uh, a series of videos. <laughs> That are titled mm-hmm. something along the lines of, you know, dads try to pronounce supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And so you watch the video waiting for the moment, or the videos, the series of videos, waiting for that moment when they try to, to, to pronounce it. And they do try, but it's at the end of the video. But before that, they, they, they unleash a tirade of curse words completely unrelated to supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What the fuck you want me to say this word for? Fuck I ain't yes. saying this. What, I don't even know. What the, this ain't even a goddamn motherfucking word. And every the fuck is wrong with you, you stupid piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Every video does the same thing before it gets to super California. I ain't. I'm a self-respecting man. <laughs> I ain't saying this fucking word. Yes. Fucking hate you and your stupid ass face. It's like a guy fucking piece of shit. It's a guy literally in a standoff with police, like a a hostage situation. And he says supercalifragilisticexpialidocious at the end. Fine, supercal fuck your ass. And you're fucking docious. (laughs) Docious. He just swore. I would have given him zero chance to win going into the night. So the fact that he not only won, but is now on stage talking like this, it all felt very surreal. I didn't yes. really know what to make of Austin yet, but I knew he felt different than everybody else. Mm. Amen to that. Loved the main event. I was a big Sean fan and popped huge seeing the super kick in person, though I still couldn't help but wonder why he'd possibly be hanging out with Owen. The post-match stuff was fun and mm. sent the crowd home happy. I sang Sexy Boy under my breath to myself <laughs> the entire week awesome. from the arena to my dad's car. Just a sexy boy. Sexy boy. Ding, 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 ding. Boy, toy, boy, toy. I'm just a sexy boy, sexy boy. <laughs> I, I tend to just go that part before hands off the merchandise. <laughs> Overall, it was a great show and a great memory. And since then, anytime the topic of live wrestling shows comes up, the first thing I always say is that I was there the night Austin 316 mm. was born. That's awesome. 